Welcome to the Grand Theft World podcast, hosted and sponsored by GrandTheftWorld.com. It's sept- I'm sorry, it's February 27th, 2022. This is uh, episode 69, and this is Soros, NATO, and the New World Order. We're going to cover a lot of news that's happened in the past week. Uh, it's been a dense week for news. We're going to go into some deep dives and some original document findings and look under the covers of some of these censorship issues that we're going to espouse upon tonight. And uh, one of the things we're not going to be talking too much about tonight is the COVID story. It's kind of kind of gone missing. I don't know what happened in the past week, but all of a sudden there's not a lot of COVID news. It's like crickets. Then there's some new 9-11 footage that surfaced. After 20 years, we're going to look into some new footage. It's very enigmatic. Let's say, let's say it like that. It's a short piece of footage. We'll discover that after tonight's intermission. The intermission later is, uh, is a well-planned and well-thought-out expose of some of the machinations going on today. It's going to take you back into a little history, so there'll be some flashbacks from you know eight or ten years ago. You can juxtapose those to what's going on today to see some views on uh, you know history as it unfolds and you're living through it. You might as well have a little context to help you understand how it's unfolding. We'll also cover the fact that the Washington Times has censored a story that it wrote on its own site. And all of a sudden, about maybe nine months ago, it went missing. It's particularly relevant in context of some of the other news stories that have happened in the past week. So we're going to take a look at why that connection and why that particular article might have gone missing on the Washington's time site. And then last but not least, we've got uh, these two stories that we're going to cover later. The Interparliamentary Union, founded in 1889. It has a world map that has like everybody's in the club except the United States. It's It's an interesting map. The idea of an interparliamentary union foreshadows anything anything that you might know today as globalism or what some might call the new world order and by some i mean like hg wells and princeton's and marines and marie slaughter who works at the council on foreign relations and robert kagan who wrote of paradise and power america and the new world order like it's not my term these guys made it up last but not least there's this story that's kind of been floating through the news in the past week a lot of fog of war on this one and it is nato versus russia nato versus putin if you want to put it that way it's a battle that started about eight years ago with the overthrow of ukraine and now in the past week has been escalated by some uh you know events and activities undertaken by putin with his uh his military regime over there so to kick out kick it off tonight let's go to luke radowski he's going to give us a little survey of the landscape before we get into the uh, the deep divey type material, we'll be right back. Okay, let's separate the clothes. So much crumbs here. It's probably Chelsea and her cooking. Now we need to add the wet ingredients. So we need the egg. You know, with memes going around like that on the internet right now, you know the situation is very serious in Europe. Welcome back, beautiful and amazing human beings. This is Lukadowski here of WeAreChange.org. And of course, we have so much important news to get into today. As of course, the situation gets more drastic by the day, as there are more escalations that are definitely worth 
talking about as this is a very serious situation that is getting more serious by the day and of course will be affecting you in one way or another we're going to be talking about this plus a lot more all on this independent media organization but before we do on a personal note i just finished my coverage from cpac 2022 where the former president of the united states just announced that he's going to be running in 2024 i got some really amazing interviews from lily tang and from some uh, really interesting doctors those videos will of course first be available on lukeuncensored.com so stay tuned for those but but before starting this video i also just wanted to preface that the situation in ukraine is an extremely complex situation that has a lot of people emotionally invested in it obviously because there is a massive human cost here i just wanted to let you know that i would be doing my best to try to report on it correctly and i might get it wrong sometimes and i promise to tell you when i do but just know what we're doing our best to prevent it in the face of so much propaganda and disinformation out there. War is awful, it's tragic, it brings horrors and suffering to humanity, and no matter what previous foreign policy agenda was happening, when you start a war, you lose. It's a lose-lose situation. And as John Paul II said, war is always a defeat for humanity. And my personal perspective on this situation is that if a politician wants to start a war, he has to fight it himself. Just like, you know, during medieval times. Now, I'm not gonna lie to you, but report on this situation has been very very difficult as of course there's a lot of unverified reports videos coming out which are purely coming out for propaganda purposes this is not only done by the west it's also done by russia and with this being one of the first wars that's being broadcast on tiktok and on other major social media outlets we have to understand that the people who control the algorithms control everything we see about this entire situation which is having a lot of people question a lot of the bombastic unbelievable almost impossible stories like the Ukrainian Reaper and of course also the ghost of Kiev stories that look like they're right out of movies that have garnered millions of views and shares when of course there's not much evidence backing them or supporting them specifically with the ghost of Kiev story a story about a Ukrainian fighter jet shooting down six Russian jets spread online after there was video footage from a video game shared online purporting to be the ghost of, of Kiev. This has led to a lot of other people online to satirically make their own versions of the ghost of Kiev, which some people have prophesized will soon be a Netflix original special. But I do have to point out that a lot of these propaganda efforts are especially counterintuitive because this leaves a lot of people asking what's really going on here and questions the credibility of other news that of course we're getting from the front lines as of course there's also old footage of the ukrainian president in full military gear running around ukraine which was taken years ago it's being resurfaced right now which is making some people question the validity of the ukrainian president refusing to leave ukraine now the president of ukraine along with the mayor of kiev klinchko staying in ukraine and deciding to stand for their people is an important pr representation especially with reports coming in that president zelensky refused u.s devised escape plans and asked them for more 
ammunition instead is important PR that is going to motivate some people to fight. Now, the president of Ukraine has also been releasing videos on social media. He was also able to galvanize Elon Musk to send Starlink satellite internet to the country of Ukraine to make sure that they do not lose service to the world. Now, of course, each country involved here has their different positions here, has their different messaging here, as of course, even the Chinese embassy in Russia decided to specifically release a message to the world talking about who the real threat to the world is, alluding that it's the United States with their long bombing campaigns since, of course, the Korean War in the 1950s. And we have to understand that during a time of conflict, PR information is absolutely critical to be able to achieve your goals. Now, of course, there's also the incredible story about the soldiers of Snake Island with an audio recording that has gone viral on the internet shared by many mainstream corporate media outlets, allegedly showing 13 Ukrainian soldiers saying, which is a not so nice way of saying bug off, to a major Russian military ship, which according to the Ukrainian president has led to, of course, the Russian battleship firing on the 13 Ukrainian soldiers, essentially taking them out. Some people have even questioned if that has even happened, but there are video reports allegedly coming from that island, with specifically even one video coming from a soldier that of course, stopped broadcasting when he was fired upon by this Russian vessel. Now, even according to CNN, we're learning that the defenders of Snake Island may still be alive and prisoners of war after, of course, original statements said that 13 of them were taken out. And as you can see, there's a lot of fog of war and there's a lot of other reports out there that have not yet been verified, like this report from the Times of Israel that the Ukrainian forces have destroyed 56 Chechnyan tanks. There's also reports of Putin only sending in one third of his military units that are stationed outside of Ukraine. And with information being weaponized as it has been, I think it's fair to say that we need more information more than ever in order to be able to independently verify what's been happening out there. But that looks like it's the opposite approach of some Western governments as the European Commission is proposing, even banning the broadcasts of Russian-related news organizations like Sputnik and RT. And I think it's fair to say whether it's the West banning information or the East banning information and arresting protesters like the people of Moscow that have come out to the streets to protest this aggressive move by Vladimir Putin. Anytime that you limit speech, anytime that you limit the free exercise of ideas, you are the loser in people's minds. And I think any kind of suppression of information should be resisted and pushed back at this moment and time, especially with how key and critical information is right now, especially with the world on the brink of a major escalation very soon that might, of course, expand past Ukraine. But before getting into that and talking about the switch, I hope to see you there. Now, if you remember, as I was talking about this specific topic not so long ago, one of the things that I have been warning about are the major ramifications if the West kicks Russia out of the SWIFT banking system. And just moments ago, the European Union just announced that they are banning certain Russian banks from this global financial system, which, of course, will create not only an extremely volatile situation on the world financial financial stage, not just disrupt international markets, which Russia previously warned that this would be a precursor to a bigger conflict that would start if Russia was kicked out of the SWIFT banking system. Now, it's important to note here that only some 
banks were kicked out from the SWIFT banking system in Russia. Some banks still exist. This has already started what some people are calling a run on the banks in Moscow. As you could already see long lines at the ATMs as some Russians are scrambling to get their money out of their bank accounts. Since, of course, if they get kicked out of the SWIFT banking system, they won't be able to do so. In response to this news, Putin has just ordered nuclear deterrence forces on special alert in response to this move, which he said he would respond to. Now, this is a partial banning here, which is which is important. It's not a full banning, but obviously this is one key important foreign policy decision that we have to keep a close eye on, specifically when it comes to the larger financial ramifications here, which are important since, of course, Russia is a major exporter of energy on the world market. Market. This is why this latest instability has caused energy prices to skyrocket, which directly benefits Russia. Some people are even arguing that with this war, Russia has been able to actually gain more money, even though they are sanctioned, mainly because they're earning more money as the price of oil goes up. And as some American politicians are telling you to dump your bottles of Russian vodka, banning importation of them in some instances, we still have to understand here that the United States and Germany and many Western allies still depend on Russian oil, which they are continuing to import into their country. When they do so, this finances Russia and gives them a lot of money. And with how complex this entire situation is, it's looking like Russia is actually making money off of this war. Already, our financial systems are reeling, and there's a lot of implications here. The corporate media is trying to blame a lot of the financial instability on these latest developments in Ukraine. They, of course, play a significant part of it, but of course, the problem has been here for a very long time. The European Union also announced that they are completely closing their airspace to any kind of Russian aircraft that now is forbidden to fly over their countries. There's been, of course, major cyber attacks against Russian state media organizations like RT. Also, six government Russian websites have been taken down. As of course, there's also an aspect of cyber warfare here, as even Turkey has announced that they are implementing a pact that will limit Russian warships to the Black Sea. Turkey is a major NATO country. They most likely got a political favor in order to do this. And this creates a very complex situation that has a lot of interconnected pieces here that, of course, do affect you. What will happen with Russia? Well, as we could see from Putin's latest moves that he's becoming more unpredictable, Vladimir Putin lied about a limited military operation in Ukraine and then launched a full-scale invasion of it. Ukraine is obviously the serious underdog here. They are outmanned, they are outgunned, and Russia was the one that aggressed upon them first. How long is Putin willing to keep his troops inside of Ukraine? How will the Ukrainians fight back? Will their insurgency plans work? As we previously detailed, that was their, their main plan here. Will Putin send in two-thirds of his troops finally into Ukraine? Will he start using his serious munitions, which he hasn't yet been doing? Will he expand towards Poland after conquering Ukraine, possibly? Will this happen within the next few days or the next few months? Well, those are very serious questions that I'm currently investigating in order to find out. On, on, on the first kind of whim, I do think that this conflict has the potential of going on for months, but that's just some of my preliminary analysis from everything that I'm seeing right now. 
I might be completely wrong about that, but do you have any answers to all of those questions that I asked? If you do, let me know down in the comment section below. As we're making this video, we also got the news that the Ukrainians and Russians have agreed to finally sit at the table together and agree to talk to each other. And who knows, this conflict could end when these world leaders and politicians talk to each other. Overall, I think that would be one of the best important situations that would de-escalate this entire conundrum and prevent more loss of life. And before ending this broadcast, I wanted to highlight this post by Representative Victoria Spatz that talked about a Serbian saying that says, quote, in war, the politicians give ammunition, the rich give the food, and the poor give their children. When the war is over, the politicians get back the leftover ammunition, the rich grow more food, and the poor search for the graves of their children. And I, I think this Serbian saying is more important and more relevant than ever. And if you agree, share this video with your friends and family members again very complex situation will continue to unfold a lot of interconnected pieces here that are absolutely confusing for a lot of people to understand i hope i made you somewhat understanding of it if you think so like this video and i wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you this is why i love you guys stay tuned for more here on we are change all right that was excellent reporting by luke Radowski of wearechange.org and bestpoliticalt-shirts.com. I want to provide a little context before we go into the next clip that's going to explain some of the Russia-Ukraine situation and the ongoings, current events type thing. Um, there's a little bit of history that we need to like just touch there's on. A lot of history. A lot of history. But we can't touch on it all before. Yeah. But I, I had a couple of things I just wanted to enter into the record real quick. Mm -hmm. Uh, LD, also, while I'm doing this, would you pull up my Twitter feed and go back to the beginning of maybe earlier today when I was laying out some documents? All right, let's go to this is a book. Let's put it side by side of Paradise and Power, America and Europe in the New World Order by Robert Kagan from the Carnegie Endowment for Peace. He's also a neocon. And um, this is from 2003. So uh, I have just uh, two passages real quick here that uh, if I zoom in, we could see. There's a lot of talk in here about the Cold War, Soviet Union. One faint, <clears throat> one faint element of confidence, which the French cling to, is the fact that American troops, uh, however strong in number, stand between them and the Red Army. So they're talking about this this uh, reminiscence of World War II and Cold War and this new American posturing as they go forward into this new century, again, written in 2003. And uh, the psychologies of power and weakness are also described throughout this book. So uh, this is just a quick, you should know this book exists and maybe you want to put it on your, uh, your list of things to know about in the world. Interestingly enough, Robert Kagan uh, his dad is, I think he's still alive. He's a famous professor from Yale, history professor. I'd actually, I'd taken uh, some of his uh, online courses a couple years ago. And then I was like, I wonder if he's related to Robert Kagan. And you find out, yep, Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So uh, I was just trying to sample what is the flavor of history they're purveying to the students at Yale for all that money in the East India Company College. It's not the quality of history you might get on a podcast like this, by the way. So save your time on Donald Kagan. Uh, Belarus Secret. This book was published 
1989 by John Loftus, who worked for the United States Department of Justice Office of Special Investigations. In here, he details, and I'm going to show you a couple of these pages real quick. Again, you should know it exists. Uh, I just checked on Amazon and tweeted some links. You can still get a copy, a hard uh, hardcover copy for like 15 bucks. It has been republished in paperback as America's Nazi Secret by Trinday.com. Uh, uh, Chris Milligan's publishing house. So there is a republished kind of updated version, but I always like the first edition. And uh, in this one, let's go just, uh, let's read a little bit from the beginning inside the, the jacket here, as it were, let's go uh, make sure it's in focus. <clears throat> Need like a drum roll for this while I put my glasses on. This is the first book to reveal how after World War II, the United States government illegally permitted the entry into America of Nazis from Eastern Europe, especially from Bielorussia, a region of the Soviet Union occupied by the Germans. Unknown to the Congress and to the public and even to the American intelligence agencies until recently, a secret section of the State Department began in 1948 to hire members of the puppet wartime government of Bielorussia. Some of them had brutally massacred Jews and later served with the German army, defending the Reich against American troops. The State Department section recruited them for guerrilla warfare inside the Soviet bloc. But when those operations collapsed, the collaborationists were brought into the United States and allowed to settle here. John Loftus, a former Justice Department investigator, uncovered this extraordinary story in the files of several government agencies. So I've interviewed John. Uh, that footage is not released yet. It's like a five-hour, two-day interview, kind of like the ultimate history lesson. So we'll cover that at a later time. We have published in this podcast heretofore the 10-minute sample of that interview. Uh, you're talking about Reinhard Galen helping the train troops. I know I mentioned that last week, but it just happened to pop up in this book from uh, earlier. I, I referenced this in Pete Quinones' podcast yesterday when I was doing an interview. Uh, Kim Philby, he's the guy that sold the Arab Nazis to Alan Dulles for the CIA. The MI6 had uh, groomed proxy armies, much like what they're talking about here. This is Operation Gladio type stuff, also Operation Paperclip type stuff. And there was a page in here, if I could find it for you, there's Dr. Hans Six. He's one of the guys that they were working with. If you guys know anything about the Russian side, I'm sorry, the, the German scientists that were brought over. But there was a page in here where they were talking about where they reloc oh here it is here it is this is i just wanted to get the irony on the record ironically most of the belarus nazi settlements in america are located near large concentrations of jews so the people who were persecuting them over there were brought over here by state department and settled next to people who were war refugees i just wanted to get that part on the record that's from page 121 so uh and let's not just call this CIA, let's call this CIA uh, MI6 funding, because basically uh, there was a training and funding aspect carried on by Britain and the United States with respect to Project Dustbin, Ashcan, operate, what became Operation Paperclip, and uh, one group did the training, one did, one did the funding. So you have to consider them all together. So this is not just 
uh, CIA, OSS, American type of activities. This is us with the special relationship ongoing because uh, both Fort Detrick and Port and Down come from this kind of let's bring Nazi scientists back to uh, the West. So with these two pieces in place, and we'll add a lot of other more interesting pieces later after the show gets rolling, the Nazis that Putin claims he's fighting against have been collaborated with by the West for a long time. When Justin Trudeau is sending a whole bunch of Canadian equipment over there and people who are neo-Nazis are rolling around with it, like this is something they've done under Operation Gladio since, since World War II. This is just part of the history. So I don't think anything that's gone on in the past week is that, that surprising given the context of history and the lens through which you could see the greater or the new great game, as they call it. So with that, let's roll this clip from the high wire with Dell Big Tree, and we're going to get uh, a nice summary of where it was at on Thursday. So as I was sitting here watching this, you know, happen to Alexa, but watching Canada descend into authoritarian rule, it appears, you know, emergency. And, and by the way, we talked about this last week, you know, prompted by President Biden telling them, use your federal powers, just move in there and just clear those people out of there, bring in the police, bring in tanks, whatever it takes, as though this is how we do things in America. Is this what we can expect here? Uh, but then, as you well know, as we're watching the news, it's not like it's almost like COVID-19, as she said, has disappeared. These, these these police beating on people, you're not seeing mainstream. But what you are seeing is another shocking moment in the middle of all this. I mean, right on the heels of the pandemic, it's like we're almost through a breath of fresh air. And then this is what we're all watching in the news. Tonight, the warning for President Biden that the world is witnessing the beginning of a Russian invasion in Ukraine. Russian President Vladimir Putin has told the Russian people he is now recognizing the independence of two separatist regions of Ukraine. New video shows that Russian tanks are on the move despite the appearance of heavy artillery. Moscow claims that these are just peacekeeping forces. Russia's amassed more than 150,000 troops around Ukraine's borders. Who in the Lord's name does Putin think gives him the right to declare? new so-called countries on territory that belong to his neighbors. Russia's military is ready for a full-scale invasion, which could come as soon as tonight. If Russia chooses to move against any NATO country, they will be met with the full force of American and allied might. Ukraine's president drafting a state of emergency. President Zelensky said the future of Europe's security is being tested in Ukraine, a country bracing for a full-blown war. It's no longer a question of if, but when. Under the cover of darkness, we are beginning to hear a series of explosions. I just wanted to play for you some of what they're hearing in Ukraine now, uh, a few hours before the sun comes up. Well, as we were putting this story together yesterday, I planned on sort of showing all these different perspectives. Of course, uh, late last night, the bombing began in the Ukraine. Our hearts uh, go out to all of those involved. I'm not here to try and choose sides or even try to fully understand what that um, interaction, that war, as it as it appears, is all about. But, you know, here it is. Russia declares war launches attack and Ukraine explosions reported. But what I do want to ask you right now is, are you like me? Are you saying, boy, 
you know, nothing would really erase the fact that we are seeing rising death rates all over the world from COVID. We keep reporting on negative efficacy, the fact that the vaccine isn't working. Everyone's got egg on their face. And if you just kind of want to turn the page and move on and maybe save your, your butt in the next election, a war really would come in handy. Now, I'm not saying, I know people say, are you saying that the United States of America is somehow involved with, you know, goading uh, Russia into a war against Ukraine? Uh, no, not necessarily. But I am asking myself, is there something that brings all three of these stories together? Trudeau um, in Canada, Macron in France beating other people, and now Putin in Russia starting a war with Ukraine. What, you know, like, what would pull all these things together? That's what was going on in my mind. And then this video came up last week. It's an old video out of 2017, an interview with Klaus Schwab uh, at the World Economic Forum, something we've talked a lot about. This is the guy that dreams of a future where nobody owns anything. Everyone is renting everything. Look what he said are the players that he essentially controls. Listen to their names. When I mention our names like Mrs. Merkel, um, even uh, Vladimir Putin and so on, they all have been young global leaders of the World Economic Forum. Mm -hmm. But um, what we are very proud of now is the young generation like uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, um, President of, Pres of uh, Argentina and so on, that we penetrate the cabinets. So yesterday I was at a, at a reception for Prime Minister Trudeau and I know that half of this cabinet or even more half of, uh, half of this cabinet are for our actually young global leaders of the world. Economy. That's true in Argentina as well. It's true in Argentina and uh, it's true in France now. Mm -hmm. I'm here with the president who is a young global leader. Young global leaders of the World Economic Forum. Uh, you know, he mentions Trudeau, the president who had just been elected that time, Macron. That's in our pocket. We're filling their cabinets. Uh, we've got Putin in our pocket. You know, and so when we sit here and I watch the news saying our enemy, Russia, you know, I ask ourselves, well, if they are our enemy, certainly those that are controlling them should be our enemy, too. But wait, we have a problem because we're taking orders from them, too. Remember the Build Back Better plan written by Klaus Schwab, voiced by Trudeau, voiced out of New Zealand and and, you know, here in the United States of America, Biden himself standing at a podium, build back better. All of our politicians saying, I love Klaus Schwab. So does Putin. So does Macron. So does Trudeau. What is going on here? That's what I'm asking you. What is actually going on here? You know, we keep thinking we have borders. We keep thinking we have enemies. But are we all just pawns in some giant game? This is Putin speaking just this last year at the World Economic Forum event in Davos, Switzerland. Uh, you're going to have to read it, so pay attention. I get it. This isn't like any other news channel. I'm not giving you five seconds. I want you to really absorb what Putin said to all of his friends in Davos. Во время работы в Петербурге я действительно неоднократно посещал этот представительный форум и хочу вас поблагодарить за то, что сегодня есть возможность донести свою точку зрения до экспертного сообщества, которое собирается на этой всемирно признанной площадке благодаря усилиям господина Шваба. Клаус сейчас упомянул о вчерашнем моем разговоре с президентом Соединенных Штатов и о продлении договора 
по ограничению стратегических наступательных выражений, безусловно, это шаг в правильном направлении. Но, тем не менее, противоречия все-таки закручиваются, что, вызывает, что называется, по спирали. Как известно, неспособность и неготовность разрешать подобные проблемы по существу в 20 веке обернулись катастрофой Второй мировой войны. Конечно, сейчас такой глобальный горячий конфликт, надеюсь, в принципе невозможен. Очень на это надеюсь. Он означал бы конец цивилизации. Но, повторю, ситуация может развиваться непредсказуемо и неуправляемо. Если, конечно, для этого ничего не предпринимать, не предпринимать для того, чтобы этого не случилось. Есть, тем не менее, есть вероятность столкнуться с настоящим срывом в мировом развитии и чреватом борьбой всех против всех. С попытками разрешить назревшие противоречия через поиск внутренних и внешних врагов. С разрушением не только таких традиционных ценностей, а мы в России дорожим этим, как семья, но и базовых свобод, включая право выбора и неприкосновенность частной жизни. Отмечу здесь, что социальный и ценностный кризис уже оборачивается негативными демографическими последствиями, из-за которых человечество рискует потерять целые цивилизационные и культурные материки. Наша общая ответственность сегодня заключается в том, чтобы избежать такой перспективы, похожей на мрачную антиутопию. Обеспечить развитие по иной, позитивной, гармоничной и созидательной траектории. I mean, incredible as he talks about a dystopian future. I think we're all asking ourselves that question. I don't know. I mean, I am clearly not choosing sides. I don't know what side there is, is my point. What is happening here? We're all being divided against each other, as the gentleman in Canada says. This isn't who we are. We're coming together, yet they're lying about us. There's wars going on. All of this at a time where we've talked time and time again about the, the financial destruction of most of the world right now, going into debt. Is this some wag-the-dog moment? Well, imagine if you decided to ask. This was a, a question given in the Parliament of Canada uh, just uh, recently, asking about Klaus Schwab and how many of you. He said, remember, he said, we have injected ourselves. We have penetrated the cabinets of many of these nations. You got to wonder how many have been penetrated here in the United States of America. Look what happens when that question is asked in Canada. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and I listened to my call speech, I had a constituent that wanted me to ask a question about outside interference to our democracy. Klaus Schwab is the head of the World Economic Forum, and he bragged how his subversive WWF World Economic Forum has quoted infiltrated governments around the world. He said that his organization had penetrated more than half of Canada's cabinet. And I was wondering, in the interest of transparency, could the member please name Which cabinet ministers are on board with the WEF's agenda? My concern is the deputy. Uh, order, order, order. I, I know he was. I know the, uh, the member was in a, a really good, good question there, but the the, the audio is really, really bad, and the video is really, really bad as well. Um, and I and I and I apologize. I don't know if if the member. Okay. Uh, the audio sounded pretty good to me, but look, I wasn't in the room. Maybe it was legitimate. But for those of you that have gone before these school board meetings, that have gone in front of, you know, the Senate or the congressional hearings like I have, and you see them basically tuned completely out, if they can shut you down or turn off your mic, they do. 
but it's a really good question. It's a question we should all be asking ourselves in every nation in the world. Will you please tell us how many of yourselves consider yourselves to be young leaders from Davos and the World Economic Forum that plans on making all of us renters around the world with the Great Reset? Is that what's happening? Is Putin bombing Ukraine just another part of the Great Reset? It's certainly a question you should be asking yourself. And I'm going to get deeper into that. I've got a fantastic show today. Um, you know, I got Kyle Sefcik, who is uh, one of the truckers that is leading one of the convoys across America now. Yeah. We're going to check in with him. And then I've. Well, that's interesting. And we saw a couple of those clips later in last week's show. Um, the idea that. Right, so let's take the evidence. Putin has been at the World Economic Forum and he has known Klaus since he said in that video since like 1992. Correct 92. me if I'm wrong. No, you're correct. And he was in one fact, of the young that's... leaders who graduated with Madeleine. Uh, I'm not sorry. Uh, the former German prime, uh, uh, Angela prime minister. Angela Merkel. Angela yeah. Merkel. Oh, I was thinking Madeleine Albright and the. Now I was going to say that's the that's the road. That's different. That's a different yeah. situation. Angela Merkel also was World Economic Forum around the same time, 1992. And then uh, there's someone, there's a third leader that came out of that that class that. Uh, that you know, it's also, hard to find too. It's not on the way back machine, I think, because I was talking to. They're getting good at scrubbing that internet, as we'll see. Not yeah. good enough. We're we're capturing stuff as they're like trying to deep six it. Uh, you know. Uh, it's almost like the the Streisand effect for them because if they had just left it on their site, nobody would really read it. They haven't read it for all these years, but now that people might be interested, like, yeah, how did Soros get to be so powerful that he can be meeting with, uh, you know, U.S. ambassadors to help undermine Ukraine eight years ago, right? And as you're looking up, like, what's his influence in that area? How is that area being used? How has it been used along with, you know, Belarus? since world war two for a whole bunch of nato type stuff and you got to get close into the soviet union and penetration back in the day of the cold war and how did that transition out did it ever transition out are also you know so, like it's it, when you trace the lineage of like Os osama bin laden he was taught by a cleric who was a nazi at the time of world war ii there were arab nazis that's another part of john loftus's work that he showed how mi6 groomed all these arab nazis and then sold that group off to the cia later and uh that might have shown up maybe in mujahideen and then 9-11 again but that that's just history not for this episode or and maybe later in this episode but the point is the these proxy forces that are groomed and these these areas that break out like there's a history that happens and there's a militarization and there's a stepping up of shipping weapons and uh, surveillance equipment and all these sort of things so who benefits and why did it happen now is like a small question and the bigger question is like what is the 50-year plan for this area and what stage of that plan are they in right now? Oh, they're in the, this 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 stage where they reappropriate some of that land and maybe there's a kickoff of World War III. I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm just saying from the recently published propaganda film the king's man they make you know this whole domino effect of treaties that kicked off world war one it's just like that might happen with nato and all these countries that are signed into treaties right and um what is a treaty or you know in these cases promises to people who aren't your family or friends 
It's the obligation to neglect your free will at that time for a piece of paper you signed in the past, right? So these countries might not want to go to war in World War One or right now, but they signed this piece of paper in the past and they got to keep their word to it, right? And there's all these other things that go on that drive the actions. Yeah. And if those pieces of paper were put into place a long time ago strategically to wait for an event like this to trigger it, that'd be pretty cunning on the side of an entity that wants world government, globalism, interparliamentary union of the world type thing. It's interesting. You mentioned that because I was researching some quotes from Quigley or sections from tragedy and hope, I should say to be specific. And in it, he mentions NATO and yeah. I'll have to bring this up later. Cause I was doing this last night and I should have wrote it down, but I did. Yeah. So but he mentions NATO and the structure of NATO out of the UN and all this sort of thing. And what was interesting is he related it to the feudal system in sort of medieval Europe, where there's a bunch of kings and duchies and all these provinces, essentially. But there are a couple of key kingships that actually had power to enforce the sort of uh, negotiations or contracts or pseudo treaties that existed between all these other lesser states, if you will. Um, that weren't able to defend themselves. So he, he likened it and drew an analogy to the fact of something more like medieval Europe, where the United States is really the hegemonic force that can enforce a lot of these sort of treaty situations um, uh, in regards to any sort of belligerent action that should happen, such as Russia going into the Ukraine, even though that's very much provoked and it's being portrayed in the Western media more so that Russia had no Casas belly, not that war isn't uh, human evil. So there, this is not right on either side, but there's a lot more context that of course our media is conveniently uh, omitting, uh, which is part of, it's another fallacy in order to draw or build a specific narrative. So, yeah, there's uh, I'll try to find that quote. I found, I found it very interesting because he, he likened it to like this, this whole treaty UN NATO system that they're devising is really creating this top-down feudal system. Of course, he mentioned the whole, you know, the Bank of International Settlements would be settlements would be the the bank of the, the of the the central banks of the world, and the, the you know the the famous quote about the the bankers wanting to create a world feudal system, blah blah blah. So it's just like he and keeps, how would they do I, that? I, when I, I like typed in feudal system, it well, pops that's up like seventy tragedy and hope. Right, that's just Montague, tragedy. The answer to the question is Montague Norman, Bank of England, and yeah. Uh, Horace Helmar, Helmar shocked. Helmar, Helmar shocked. That was right. Hold on, hold on. I gotta get it on the record. Helmar Horace Greeley shocked of mm -hmm. Brooklyn was Hitler's banker, one of Horace his biggest banker, and it was Helmar shocked and Montague Norman that helped to create the Bank for International Settlements in Spice, Switzerland. Switzerland here, right again. before World War Two, yo. Yeah. And the Dulles brothers were lawyers, Wall Street lawyers that helped companies uh, internationalize their paper right before World War II. They internationalized them in Bern, Switzerland. That's where Allen was was stationed back in the day. And uh, yeah, let's Rich, like you keep bringing up this country called Switzerland. 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 Soros got funding from the Swiss Rothschilds, Edmund de Rothschild Bank. And that's it's what Washington Post was censoring, by the way. That's interesting. Too. Switzerland's involved. A lot of banking, Templars, Freemason type secret society stuff that might go on there. Where's Dave? Where is uh, the World Economic Forum? Where do they post on? Oh. Bank International Settlements there. Oh. Uh, there's a whole bunch of headquarters there. They might even have like Gavi there, this thing that's running the oh. pandemic. Right? 
Shit, this seems like Switzerland. Weren't they traditionally They're neutral? neutral, Tony? Don't yeah, throw neutral. them under the bus. You're supposed to talk about Ukraine and Russia. You're not supposed Aren't they to quite like, isolated in the Alps. You're you not know? supposed to see the gorilla behind the people passing around the basketball. <laughs> you're supposed to count how many times they throw the basketball, Tony. Keep your eye on the basketball. Don't look at the background context. No. To my comment on that movie, The King's Man, King's Man, it's the predecessor to The King's Men. And it's got a lot of British history in there that's whitewashed. Oh, my goodness. I just wanted to show you one thing here in the history blueprint. There's a secret society portrayed in the movie that creates World War One and World War II, these sort of things. You're looking at the secret society on screen. This is the outer ring of that secret society. It was called Milner's Kindergarten. They, they were Cecil Rhodes' roundtable group. And the formal name is the roundtable, the Commonwealth Journal of International Affairs. It has gone from 1910 to present right so uh the affairs of world war one were kind of drawn up if you will by this coterie now the the official books on it you can find it in corbett's world war one conspiracy and the books are going to be something like lord milner's second war and uh other sources like that but i also just wanted to show you these these books right here that's the roundtable groups meeting minutes. Like those are their articles. Mm -hmm. That is the proof of the group. Like that's on, those are artifacts. So to that have they existed and they, they, that they inspired existed. with one another and to, they did it openly. It was an open conspiracy. Reasons. They published yes. it in the newspaper. They controlled the newspapers of the empire. That's how they did it. And this is what Quigley this points is actually, out. That's what Quigley points out. Oh, yeah. That's who William T. Steed, or Stead, who was Rhodes' partner in creating the Secret Society, he ran the, the Review of Reviews. Yeah. He ran like all, the Pall Mall Gazette or the Pell-Mell Gazette. He ran these different newspapers. He was like a worldwide, worldwide renowned writer and author. He's the coiner of the phrase interview. If you look it up, uh, yes, it, was, it, was general, it was a British General Gordon and they, they, it was like the, that's what he became known for, William T. Stead. There's a plaque to him in, in Central Park. So he's also revered by the Anglo Americans over here. He died also right, on the Titanic. Plaque, he also died in the Titanic, Tony, because he disagreed with the secret society at that point. So they had to deep six him. Oh, you know. Later. Another, what was that? What was that book, a fictional book um, about uh, the witness the tree? Oh, no, no, no. The, no, 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 the uh, that's Titanic. a John Loftus fictional book about real stuff yeah. the book on a titanic i have um, i think i have it's it called, in my library god it's been fucking 10 years called, since i, looked I got it futility or wreck of the titan is the it's wreck of the title. titan yeah it's like 1898 by morgan robertson and it tells it, she was the biggest ship ever to be afloat and he details what you would think today is the titanic but it's a fictional ship right sure. and then uh it happens to hit like an iceberg and and, and sink it, it, pretty much if i remember the story i was just so incredulous that this story was printed before 1912 that i went and got a first edition of the book back in the day and i was like wow it's not the internet if this thing really existed before the other thing happened as the history tells us in 1912 John That's, Jacob Astor was on there too. Yeah, I was right. going to say there's a couple key figures on that. And you pointed that out to me when I first set. met you. Yeah, it was <laughs> taking the world to war and then creating Nazis. There's some sort of Morgan connection, if I remember correctly, as to potential. JP Morgan got on the issues. Titanic. He got on the Titanic. Issues. He went to a couple stops. Everyone got on the Titanic because JP Morgan was like the biggest character on there. And then he got off before it came across the ocean. And just to reiterate. And then, and then but wait. 
There's more. J.P. Morgan steps off the Titanic in 1912, only to die later in 1912 on a spiritual journey in Rome while like meeting the Pope or something. That's strange. And I don't, that's not a metaphorical. Death. That is not related to Ukraine either. So that's true. That's true. Um, obviously. So just real quick, I'll just, we've put this here, a brief sketch of the Royal Institute of International Affairs is not by any means, this comes to the Anglo-American establishment, but the richest point. Rockefeller Foundation helped to fund the Royal Institute yes, of International yeah. Affairs. So we'll continue. Chatham please. House. And then it goes, uh, isn't it sister site in America, the CFR anyways? Yes. Um, does not by any means located in New York, does not by any means indicate the very considerable influence which the organization exerts on English speaking countries in the sphere to which it is devoted. The extent of that influence must be obvious. The purpose of this chapter has been something else to note, to show that the Milner group controls the Institute. Once that is established, the picture changes the influence of Chatham house and its perspectives, not as the influence of autonomous body, but as merely one of its instruments in the arsenal of power. When the influence, when the, in this, when the influence which the Institute wields is combined with that controlled by the Milner group and other fields to your point, rich education, administration, and in newspapers and periodicals, and that's very important. A really terrifying picture begins to emerge. This is, this is quickly, this picture is called, ter- this picture is called terrifying, not because of the power of the Milner group was used for evil ends. It was not according to quickly. So he's trying to whitewash. It didn't get here. terrifying until they handed it to Lionel Curtis. And he was like, yeah, horses forward. that's why, that's why quickly wouldn't mention him, even though I think Curtis was dead at that time. You know, it's interesting too. You brought up, well, we're one, you know, there's a, we're not allowed to say this, but like there's that sort of, Eustace Mullins, if you look into like the secrets of the Federal Reserve, World War One, they also need to, you know, instantiate the central bank in um in America as well. One of the first major loans uh to the federal government of the bank from the bank for this private central bank is for our involvement in World War One. Of course, we had they had to get us involved in World War One by setting up the false flag of the sinking of the Lusitania. You had the babies on bayonets, which by the way, we're gonna see a parallel with babies and bayonets with orphanages. Apparently, Russians are attacking orphanages and schools, mm. according to uh Western media. So I'll we'll bring that up later. But I just I just, you know, there's all these interesting elements that uh you know, well, the point would be moving back toward today, like this past week's mm-hmm. coverage by 1917, uh, according to Texas Congressman Oscar Calloway, he said that all the media, all the newspapers, everything was controlled by a couple robber barons, corporate types, Andrew Correct. Carnegie types. And that was 1917. It never really got better they have increased their ability to use psychological techniques coupled with mainstream mass marketing, kind of CNN, those type of networks, TV networks in general, uh, to sway the public opinion, to get people to react alike, not thinking independently, not doing their own research and meeting about what they're finding. They want people just emotionally driven. They don't want your thinking involved. And when you take your questioning of these events out, you very much are under control of the authority that's telling you the thing. You accept that as your narrative too. And then some point people are willing to die for those narratives that they've never really thought about. And that's the control that they have. You see it going on between Russia and Ukraine right now, but I want you to see the meta picture that there is a group that exists and is multi-generational and created a group like NATO after they created two wars 
and specifically in those wars to bring America into world empire building and imperialism, right? Correct. Ever since 1898 and the white Correct. man's burden by Cecil Rhodes's buddy, Rudyard Kipling, both Freemasons. And it says America has to take on this responsibility to spread freedom around the world. Cause the empire was kind of tired of subje- subjugating the world with the opium and they had a bad rap. So here's clean and shiny America to deliver these values around the world. But to the point of like Aaron and Melissa Dykes part two in the trust game series. Look at how many of those coins all over the world had the same symbolism on it. Tony, mm-hmm. did you see yeah. that? We'll yes. see it later, maybe in the we'll, intermission. Yeah. We got some clips coming up, but it's just yeah. amazing. And I don't know if that's natural grassroots Liberty saying these symbols are useful and ref- reflect us, or if that's top down, we're going to allow you to become free because we're going to print your own money kind of how they make countries in the first place right there's that that behind the scenes how's that work and is it freemason architecture in the form of energy transfer vis-a-vis money i don't know i don't know but that's what the templars knew and they hung out in switzerland after yeah they got right they were, were back to switzerland right on friday the 13th because of the sort of fractional reserve nonsense they were doing not only that because they all sensibly were set up to uh help pilgrims journeying or sojourning to the promised land or to the, uh, the Holy land, I should say, not the promised land law, the Holy land in Jerusalem. But ironically, does this look like a double Swiss flag to you? It's almost like a double cross. Is that a double cross? That's a double double cross. Double cross. Like the British double cross system of intelligence that brought the Nazis over to America in the first place. I don't know. There's just clues all over the place. We're going to see clues throughout tonight's episode. Yeah. And also with the Templars, you know, forcing people to make a signature and the credit system they set up, they got the church so in debt, they became insolvent. They couldn't pay back. the debt. Of course, that's the famous raid on Friday the 13th. And that's the Catholic church. So the bankers have been in, there's a book called Babylonian woes. I have it here. It's out here somewhere. Oh my God. Yeah. It's a history of banking book. That again, what's banking got to do with, Oh, they just cut off all the banks to Russia. That must be a thing. The banking, it must be like a, a power position having control of the finances just to be able to like shut stuff off like that. Right. Is there, yeah. is there a history of that and using here, like money to control people? It's called the Babylonian will studying the origin of central banking practices and their effects on the events of ancient history written in light of the present day. This is interesting because he shows how it's always related to a priest class that seems to stand behind any sort of kingship or then later on, of course, a nation state, Dude, very priest classes rule. Priest class rule. <laughs> they, rule. <laughs> they sure do real quick. That'd be uh, a good t-shirt, right? Priest. That class would rule. actually be a good t-shirt. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a, yeah, it's a good play on words. I like that. I like that. There's a little bit of fun there. Um, Senna said here, CERN is also in Switzerland. Let's not forget. And also the Swiss guard of the Vatican. So did they, with did their the ostentatious Michelangelo styled, uh, did the caste system have a priest class? Yes, it Brahmin? did. They stood at the top, the Brahmin like caste. The Boston Brahmins? Like the Boston Brahmins that we like reviewed the Eastern last establishment? week. Okay. All right. and, and then we had what? Woodrow Wilson and FDR reviewed last week saying, man, there's something bigger going on here. Well, Woodrow <laughs> Wilson said it's like there's a power so pernicious, blah, blah, blah. It's one of his memoirs. And then FDR last week we went over. So, you know, you keep pointing out there seems to even some major figures that people thought had major power in America noticed that they weren't anywhere near the, the actual or true power structure that actually existed. And Rich, forget, correct me if I'm wrong. You have Paris, 1919. We had the Sykes-Picot agreement in like 1916 or 17. And if you look at like Ukraine and Russia and the Crimea, those seem to all be sort of contrived areas in many respects. 
So it's not just like we cut up the Middle East. Um, you know, there's a lot of different issues also in Eastern Europe and the way uh, different ethnic groups supposedly or do or do not identify with the country of origin that we now call these areas, which we'll get into after a couple of clips because I have a deep dive into that. So, oh, and by the way, find Woodrow Wilson. I, I had I brought this up when I was hosting many many moons ago. Um, I remember the reference because I was like, "LD, is this where did this actually come from?" And we found it. But I'll I'll find that in a second. I just wanted to point out. I think James and someone else. Forgive me. Let me see. Answer in the Zoom chat for subscribers mentioned uh, Macron. I don't Macron and Draghi. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Also part of the young global leaders. I don't know if that's the class of 92 though. I think, cause it seemed like class seemed to insinuate that that was part of a later class. I don't know if that's true or yeah, not. Macron I think Putin would, was an earlier class. He would be a uh, recent Macron. Plus yes, he worked for the Rothschild bank of France. Correct. That's how he was qualified. I'm missing the new freedom by Woodrow Wilson. Normally I wouldn't care if Woodrow Wilson was missing or, never existed but i want the artifact because that's where he talks about it anyway so we go to a clip and let you find no no because i got something better i got this one from 1886 called triumphant democracy by andrew oh that's fantastic right dude you (laughs) want to talk about origins of the new world order and um three years after this they make the interparliamentary union right 1889 they make that so uh, in between imperial federalist movement and during the time of the opium war in the 1850s, it moves to this idea, like how can they survive? How can they morph? And in this one, uh, Andrew Carnegie makes designs on putting the crown upside down and uh, ending the monarchy in favor of like a world government. So this is a global. You're bull- saying man, that's late 19th century. My goodness. And this is a first hmm. edition from 1886. Who would have thunk it? Andy Carnegie. To the beloved public. You know, and people equal... might ask the question, let's do a little grammar real quick. What is the interparliamentary union, Rich? So here I have up this the simple Wikipedia. Let's see if we can flesh this out a little bit. An international organization of national parliaments. Uh, its primary purpose is to promote a democratic governance, accountability, and cooperation among its members. Hmm. Uh, other initiatives include advancing gender parity among the legislatures, empowering youth participation in politics, and uh, dun, 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 sustainable development. Where have we heard that one before? Now, Rich, it says here the organization was established in 1889. Yeah. As the Interparliamentary Congress, its founders were statesman Frederic Passy. I don't know how to pronounce French. Sorry for all those people that do in France. Speaking and French William Randall Kramer, Passy, and Kramer of the United Kingdom, who sought to create the first permanent forum for political and multilateral negotiations, supposedly. So that's just a little bit of the grammar on who, and this is back in 1889. So it's a French and uh, British sort of concoction of merging the parliaments, finding some sort of universal or essence between the parliaments, and they can go on mutual, mutual, multilateral negotiations, as they euphemize it as. So let's see. The initially, IP membership was reserved for individual parliamentarians, but has since transformed to include the legislatures of sovereign states. As of 2020. That's correct. It still exists. As of 2020, the national parliaments of 179 countries are members of the IPU, while 13 regional parliamentary assemblies are associate associate members. So, 
that includes, oh, this is interesting. IPU facilitates the development of international law and institutions, including the Permanent Court of Arbitration, the League of Nations, and the United Nations. It also sponsors and takes part in international conferences and forums and has permanent observer status at the United Nations General Assembly. Consequently, eight individuals associated with the organization are Nobel Peace Prize laureates. So just a little bit. Let's go to the members. The members here. The Andean Parliament, Central American Parliament, East African Legislative Assembly, European Parliament, Interparliamentary Assembly, and Orthodox. That's fascinating. Really? Inter, that is fascinating. Okay, well, that's, that's for my nerd and me. Uh, Interparliamentary Committee of the West African Economic, blah, 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 Latin American Parliament, Parliament, Parliamentary Assembly of the Black Sea Economic Corporation. Cooperation, excuse me, that's an interesting one because control of the Black Sea is a big topic right now with Sevastopol and the Crimea, which Russia annexed in 2014 after we overthrew a democratically elected uh, government in the Ukraine to install Zelensky. And, uh, and that was all done by Soros, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe. Sorry, go ahead, Rich. Yeah. I read from these two parts in Triumphant mm -hmm. Democracy from 1886 by Andrew Carnegie. This is from page 496, 496. During the period, this is at the end of the book. During the period covered by this sketch of my experience, Britons have begun to read and hear more about the Republic. And I am happy to say, uh, to run over and see it for themselves for what... The main division of the race is about the former visitor invariably made the mistake of taking the semi-English, semi-foreign New York City for the country, right? So they're saying they, they didn't, <laughs> seeing the city isn't seeing America. Then it's talking about Huxley and Spencer and Lord Roseberry. And these Arnold, other wow. Right? Yeah, right? Then, yeah. But over here, Seeley? I just wanted to get to this quote. Sorry. It's kind of where he is uh, lamenting not having America in the in the British empire and how they might get it back. So this is an early reference before Cecil Rhodes. This is 1886. He's quoting uh, Glad Mr. Gladstone, I think prime minister at that time quote to preserve the union of the Northern States of America. Uh, I'm sorry, to preserve the union of the Northern States of America poured out their blood. Hmm. I would like to see to preserve the union of the Northern States, America poured out their blood and treasure like water and fought and won the contest of our time. And if Englishmen still possess the courage and stubborn determination, which they were so lately, the ancient characteristics of the race and which were so conspicuous in the Amer great American contest, we shall allow no temptation and no threat to check our resolution to maintain unimpaired the effective union of of the three kingdoms that owe allegiance to the present sovereign. Hmm. The three so, kingdoms that owe allegiance to the present sovereign. Sorry. That's quite telling. And then they, there's a, you could take the third British empire speeches from Columbia in the 1930s and, and, and put them together. Cause this, that'll be 40 years after this starts and kicks off. But uh, yeah, it's got this Gladstone is, um, in the cover too. Waxing philosophic. Yeah. about wanting to bring it back in. And then by the thirties, well, these are well, ideas really for evolution. 20s. Look, they're back. They're big into uh, Malthus and Herbert Spencer. And uh, uh, who's the other dude? Uh, Huxley. Uh, yeah, the Darwin. 
yeah, Darwin, uh, preservation of the favored, preservation favored races because they're yeah. about the English. They have the scientific justification. Race, that, wrote, yeah, right. And so that's he, royal. That's royal institute. Or so royal he's like, society. how does the how does the empire evolve? And this this is right in line with what John Ruskin was teaching Cecil Rhodes at Oxford a couple years earlier. So that's where he got his ideology or that's yeah, well, Rhodes got his from Ruskin and Oxford. That's what I'm saying. Ruskin yeah. Ruskin's the one who taught it because that's where he got the idea that, you know, there is this bur- the, sort of a, to draw an illusion, white man's burden. Well, the, the, the destiny, destiny of a place like England was to rule over the whole world and to bring its high culture into the little huts of Africa and all the Malay archipelago, et cetera, as Cecil Rhodes specified in his last will and Testament. Right. And that last will supported Freemasonry, the British Empire, a couple other groups' agendas. And that's why it got so much support and carried the water, if you will, through the 20th century into this NATO situation that you're seeing here in the 21st century. What's really disturbing, you know, I mean, you're absolutely right. But what's really disturbing is because of the sort of uh, auspices of science, sort of the illusion that science has been able to offer in the form of technology and progress, they were able to use the pseudoscientific theory and piggyback on that and bring it into the 20th century. So instead of it being a theological or philosophical argument, it's now a scientific argument, which gives it so much more weight according to them and in their eyes. And of course, all these come, I think, from the Royal Society, which is founded in like the 16th century or 17th century, which is sort of for the preservation of the scientific method and the continuation of the scientific ideas. So you can see it's all sort of collating and coalescing, I should say, within like sort of the, the British the emergence of the British it serves empire. the empire and the empire is military enforcement on the, on the pr- money printing. Correct. Correct. And those two yep. groups are symbiotic and they need each yes. other, but they also need a group for which they can uh, work on and extract the labor and plunder the production of. Correct. Uh, I just want to put in here, Pam, Pamela asked, didn't they put Colonel Medor- Edward Mendel house as a controller to leash Woodrow Wilson? That's correct. He was really the power yeah. player. He had and, also just and Colonel House's handler was someone who lived, I believe, upstairs from him in the apartment building, and it was Samuel Untermeyer. Untermeyer, and, yeah, yeah. And the me. source yeah. for that yeah. is Benjamin Friedman's "Facts Are Facts" yeah. lecture at the Willard Hotel in Washington D.C., 1961. That's and he was the owner action. of a big soap company in New York city back at this time. And he rolled with the businessmen who were per- participating in those deals. And he tells you a whole story that you can check out on your own. And the facts are there and the facts are the facts. I was inconvenient there. to the narrative. I should know. I was there. I go, I, I must've listened to that at least 10 different times. Now Senna said here, the class of 92 that we just discussed earlier, Rich, that has been scrubbed. We can't. Oh, sorry. Putin was 92. We had Bill Gates, Merkel, Victor Orban. Bill uh, Gates. Hung, that was hungry. the other one. I knew yeah. it was one of those guys that had something to do with impersonating Mr. Rogers for the past two years. <laughs> I knew it was one of those guys. It's the Bill Gates. That's welcome who. to the neighborhood. Uh, Sadly, the virus acted like a vaccine mm. and put us out of business. Yeah, did you know the that problem. they were, did you know that DARPA was trying to create an aerosolized vaccine in 2017 and they got funding from NIH and NIAID and then I tweeted those documents of that getting funding a couple of weeks ago. No, I didn't know that. Sadly, they don't let Bill Gates on Twitter, I guess, because he's missing. He's missing. The I updates. just want to know why there's the, the genetic sequence from 2018 in there. Richard Branson. I want to know that is, too. Yeah. Hey, we're going to get into that. We're going to get into some of the news that they. How did mention. nature is, is Moderna going to sue nature? Cause nature, the wet market 
the COVID thing has Moderna's intellectual property in it. It's going to be like one of those Monsanto suits where they're mm-hmm. like going against the farmers of India. Right. For, yeah. You know, for the seeds the spreading goal. into their, that's what, that's uh, the goal. Aerosolized Pat, is like how they spread GMOs with the seeds, right? That's what Patrick Wood talked Aerosolized about when vaccine. he said, when he talked to uh, Bannon, Steve Bannon, cause he, he was saying like, he's the next big policy issues to emerge are going to be exactly what you're describing. Especially once they find out that there's a permanent sort of genetic marker associated with these MRNA technologies who, who owns you now? Look, I'm look, just look, saying. look, look, let's it's just cut crazy. to the chase. Anyone who is incredulous right now and skeptical, you're going to be our best friend in five minutes. Go to PubMed, type in mRNA plus aerosol Mm -hmm. and read for the last 10 years, thousands of documents where they're like, we can make an aerosolized vaccine with mRNA. And then ask yourself, does that have anything that's going with what's going on today? Yeah. Maybe just a little the rest of them here. So we have Bill Gates. This is 1992 uh, class, young global leaders. Bill mm. Gates, Merkel, Angela Merkel. We mentioned her, Victor Orban, Hungary, Richard Branson, Leif Johansson, CEO of AstraZeneca, David Roy Thompson, Reuters, are the class of 93. So this is this comes from Senna. Thank you for finding that, Senna, by the way. That's Back awesome. then, it is called Global Leaders of Tomorrow. And attendance age is 43 and under. It was later renamed Young Global Leaders in 2003. And Macron was young. And they global changed leaders. the age to 38 because by the time yeah. you're 43, you know too much about the world and you might not be suckered <laughs> into their plan. So keep it young. I mean, part of the Rhodes Initiative with the Rhodes uh, scholarships. Keep them young is, and naive. And they yeah, join into something young. and they promise away their freedom and future. Yes. And they get into positions of power, particularly within the media. I noticed a lot of them seem to get into the media. Did you see that secret oath? I mean, that wasn't secret that Justin Trudeau, I mean, he did it in public. People just don't know what he's doing right there. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The Macron. Fealty. Look that word up while you're there on PubMed. Privy Council, Fealty, Commonwealth. Lots of good stuff we reviewed last. So that's, uh, yeah. Well, we'll get into more of what's going on with, uh, Ukraine, Russia, but that just gives a little bit of history to get us up to what the hell is going on. So now that we've, uh, we've been like George Bush and scattered that thousand points of light, let's go Mm -hmm. to Ben, Ben Swan and let's get uh, a couple minutes on his perspective on Ukraine and uh, the Putin and NATO situation. And then we'll dip back into some more facts to provide context to this murky situation. And like any situation where the dust hasn't settled or the murkiness hasn't cleared, don't be making major life decisions on this Ukraine Russia thing based on what's going on in the mainstream media, please. We are putting the social back into social media. Welcome to Sovereign Circles. Sovereign You're probably hearing a lot of calls about how the United States should get involved in what's happening in Ukraine. But today I'm going to tell you about three times that the United States has been involved, and it's the reason Ukraine is where it is right now. So a couple of things that you might not have considered about Ukraine that you really need to consider in the conversation that's going on right now. Number one, Ukraine is not a bastion of freedom and democracy. In fact, in the last few weeks, opposition leaders have been arrested. Three different opposition TV stations have been shut down. There is a lot going on there that does not represent democracy. But there are a couple of factors that you need to know about when it comes to the United States and our involvement in Ukraine. And the first of those goes back to 2014. Consider the fact that the last time that Ukraine was actually a democracy was when the United States got involved after the democratic election of Ukraine's president. 
The United States helped to foment a color revolution in order to overthrow the democratically elected leadership of Ukraine. And instead, the United States, under the Obama administration, installed a puppet leader who would represent the West. By the way, there are recordings of Victoria Nuland, U.S. President Barack Obama's central agent overseeing that coup, at least during the month of February 2014 when it climaxed. And she was crucial not only in overthrowing the existing Ukrainian government, but in selecting and installing its rapidly anti-Russian replacement. Victoria Newland was caught on recordings talking about overthrowing the government and deciding which leader would take over instead of Yanukovych. This is all fact and it's all history. The second issue is the Minsk agreements. In 2014 and 2015, there were agreements between Russia and Ukraine about what to do about this Donbass region. That's the area of Ukraine that's been in the news a lot in the last couple of days. The Minsk II agreement signed in 2015 agreed that the Donbass region would be returned to Kiev's control while ensuring the safety and the rights of the area's citizens, as many as 800,000 people, by the way, of whom many have received Russian passports, about 20 to 40 percent of that population. But here's the problem here. Ukraine never bothered to actually implement the Minsk II agreements. And in fact, it was the United States once again that told the government of Kiev to just ignore those Minsk II agreements and not to worry about them. And then the third issue is the issue of NATO. According to some new cables from the CIA that have been released by WikiLeaks, we now know that the CIA knew that they were actually enticing the Russians to take some kind of military action by continually talking about Ukraine joining NATO. Ukraine and Georgia's NATO aspirations not only touch a raw nerve in Russia, they engender serious concerns about the consequences for stability in the region. Not only does Russia perceive encirclement and efforts to undermine Russia's influence in the region, but it also fears unpredictable and uncontrolled consequences which would seriously affect Russian security interests. In that eventuality, Russia would have to decide whether to intervene, a decision Russia does not want to have to face. And yet the CIA and the Pentagon and the United States government has continued to push the idea of Ukraine becoming a member of NATO. In fact, in the last few weeks, as the buildup to this uh, Russian military action has been taking place, Russia has continually asked the United States and NATO for a guarantee that Ukraine would not be given membership. The United States, President Biden himself, has refused to do so. And so the bottom line here is that when you call for the United States to get involved in Ukraine, well, maybe this is an unpopular opinion, but for the last 10 years, the United States has been involved in Ukraine, and it's the U.S. involvement that seems to have gotten us to this point. Okay. All right. That's a report from Ben Swan. It's a couple of parts I don't really agree with. I agree with his theme. I don't agree with the limitation of his theme to being, it's the United States doing this because it's George Soros doing it. It's NATO doing it. It's the UK who's like, there's a multinational group uh, that's puppeteering over there. And it didn't just start. He's right about all those things he just told me. He's right about that. But to assign it like the United States is over now, Yes, that's Biden over there cutting deals to his Burisma, point, right? Yeah, yeah. Burisma, uh, son of a bitch. I, he's fired on the Council on Foreign Relations stage when Biden says that whole thing yeah. about basically we're not going to give you the billion dollars. We've played that clip numerous times. Yeah. I understand all that. But like Biden's not the representative. He's not carrying out 
foreign policy on behalf of America. He's doing it on behalf of the handlers on the other end of that special relationship. And it's like a leash, that special relationship. And you might be into a little leather and zippers and S and M if you're into that special relationship that they got going on. Cause that's pretty much how it works, how it works. He's not, he's on the, you know, the end of the leash that's close to the ground is, is where, is where he's at. And, uh, you know, the to facts be, are, to be yeah, focused on, Yes, uh, people in Ukraine that are in the midst of this, I, my heart goes out to you, dude, because that's fucked up. But the countries that are playing on the outside, it's like, you know, Putin is friendly toward Klaus's kind of agenda because he plays in the banking network to an extent where he just got cut off and it's supposed to hurt him. So it's not like he was completely outside of that system. If not all the banks, off. though. Right. Okay. Right. So, and he might have seen this rise against him coming because Ukraine, like, to get NATO that close to Russia. <laughs> Why don't so, wait a minute. I thought, let me bring yeah, up the know, map. Yeah. yeah. So we have, for people that are unfamiliar. How has NATO grown since it was implemented and yeah, what has happened since the nineties. And if Oops. you're, if you're Putin watching here. it in slow motion, like he's been there a long time, he had to make a point where he's like, okay, this is far enough. And he drew a line in the sand. And that was earlier this week. Yes. Yes. In other words, there's been activity and it's sort of, yeah, it forced. They've been encroaching in for a long yeah. time. NATO for I mean, with, look at that. But yeah. I mean, up to like, so we have 1949. If you look at the, the dark regions, 1949, right. 1952, you incorporates, uh, what is this over here? Greece. Wasn't NATO there to protect us from communism, Tony? And now we're communists and now over there, they're kind of not like what the heck happened they with NATO? Or they got to use the, the, the United States as the bulldog. NATO after the Cold the War, like place. after the wall came down, they're like, we're just going to hang out for a decade or so until 9-11, that will be needed again. It's a 1955. Or maybe they were needed again because of 9-11. Is, maybe, maybe that's how that works. But you can sort of see, I mean, it's Iraq encroaching war. on Russian... Tra- yeah. A lot of those countries were part of the coalition of the whaling. Woo! <laughs> Bomb Saddam! He had everything to do with that. No, he didn't. He worked for the CIA, the same people that brought the Nazis yeah. to the country. No way. MI6, yeah. too. Geez, it's a different world outlook when you look at the actual factuals of it instead of what they tell you on TV. Yeah, that's how convenient, right? Because then it gives the uh, the ability to paint uh, an interesting picture, an interesting narrative, in order to justify what other bullshit, belligerent actions that the West proxy forces, do. Tony, allow you to get stuff done. Look, all the time. these are strategies. We talked about limited warfare. I talked about limited warfare. At least I was hosting Kissinger. But then there's also Brzezinski's model as well. It's really like these strategists going back to Rockefeller, which, you know, with Kissinger, Rockefeller, Nixon, and then Brzezinski under Carter. But, you know, then you look I mean, at if them, you look at it, I mean, if you just look at it from, from there, Brzezinski was groomed by David Rockefeller. You can Rockefeller Kissinger, Kissinger was groomed uh, Nelson, by Nelson Rockefeller. Nelson Rockefeller yep. The World Trade Centers were known as Nelson and David. They were like the go. Rockefeller brothers. Oh, I did not in, know in, that. In, in architecture, I did not know that. Right? Okay. They each each had a political candidate. Brzezinski worked for worked with Osama bin Laden, Operation Cyclone, nineteen seventy nine, yes. Mujahideen, the Mujahideen, and Kissinger worked with uh, the communist Soviet kind of Russian Cold War situation yeah. and Cambodia, Pol Pot, Mao Zedong, a whole bunch of places. Yes, you got it. And the, the marriage between their two ideas is that, yes, we need limited warfare in the age of nuclear 
weapons and and advanced military technology. But, but of course that's Kissinger, but then Brzezinski's like, well, that's easy. We'll just make sure we fund proxy groups. And we use these proxy groups in order to facilitate the limited warfare that keeps the sort of, um, uh, the military infrastructure, the, um, what did Eisenhower call it? The, uh, and he's a dubious fucking figure himself, but now I'm pretty uh, sure just to add it for the military record, industrial sure complex. David Rockefeller's economic tutor was a guy named Friedrich Hayek, Hayek, anybody. And then, uh, the Rockefeller foundation that brought von Mises to America. So they had the best libertarian economic education over there in the Rockefeller family. And it's not a bad thing about the subject it's just that if only america and americans also understood that philosophy they wouldn't be such pawns in the game so there's well, that. they're rigging in order to know a philosophy that could engender and instantiate freedom in the world you have to understand how to manipulate it so they have a full understanding of that's through the mont Perlin society one of the interesting figures that is not part of that is rothbard and Rothbard took the conclusion or took, he, he, he took it to its rational conclusion, starting out with the idea of individual sovereignty and the ability to participate in a free market and got to the idea, well, then there should not be any government at all. Can't have that. Can't have that. According to the Rockefellers and the, the you know, see, I'm looking it up because I thought. I didn't Rothbard. think so. At least I, look, I looked for it. Mont Perlin Society, 1947. That's around the time of the creation of NATO. Uh, I'm sure it's just coincidental. Uh, let's see. Hayek, George yeah, Schultz. Rothbard is not a part of that. Libertarian. You have Rothbard. Mises. You have uh, Milton Friedman. You have Friedman. Rothbard. I'm pretty sure Rothbard spoke there. He, he might have spoken there, but he's not. A, Otto Van Habsburg. If you look, if you look at the like people the that are War. associated with the actual that he's not part of either the founders or part of the society itself, but he may have spoken there. I'm not denying that, but like speaking there and being a part of it is a whole different situation. As far as I'm concerned. I also have this guy, Otto von Habsburg, the Habsburgs. I've heard of them before in history. Mm. Not sure if this guy is part of that family that got deposed in world war one by their cousins or not. They have Karl Popper in there. Popper was part of the founding. He had Mises, Stigler, uh, Friedman Hayek, obviously. And I, I'm a great lover of the theory. So, but yeah, in order to be able to make sure you can abuse the theory, you have to keep a, keep tight. Well, uh, you know, there's this guy, the hey, there's this guy who uses cybernetics in his, uh, his theories. He's a finance guy. Uh, he wrote uh, this book, the alchemy of finance. I got two copies of it over here. His name is Jorge Soros. I'm sorry. Uh, it's George Soros. Oops, oops, I misread that. I thought he was just that other guy. Um, and uh, we're going to cover this article that's been censored by the Washington Times news site. They censored their own work, which I found interesting. Uh, LD, are you able to bring that up? I got LD. Yeah, let's, yeah, let's see. Um, does, is this the Gnomes? <clears throat> the Gnomes article? Yeah. Yeah, you'd be surprised that a, a topic like Gnomes gets taken down it's, from the Washington <laughs> Times, but... Yeah, there might be more substance to it than the title conveys. So here, just real quick, here's the actual article, but LD is going to go through the specific clips that LD put out, but we could only get it. It's the Washington Times, and we could only get it from the Wayback Machine. So this is the last mention of this before it was scrubbed. It was May 27th, 2021. So go ahead, LD. Uh, yeah, so the Washington Times is from April 28th, 2011. Deborchgrave, Geneva Gnomes, Global Dread. Grotesque financial mismanagement could trigger unpredictable turmoil. 
Um, want to I'm looking specifically. Or? Yeah, we're, no, just grab the paragraph where it discloses where George Soros's quantum fund got funded in 1969 because that's the relevant information uh, from the front. That's the second, yeah, second, second paragraph down. Their Geneva counterparts in French-speaking Switzerland were more sophisticated, relaxed in the company of global wheeler dealers, and weren't afraid to speak their minds, albeit off the record. Such was George C. Carl Weiss, the brain behind Bank Privé, uh, or Privé, sorry, owned by the late Baron Edmund de Rothschild. His biggest claim to fame, George Soros and the launch of his quantum fund in 1969. Now, I don't know that that's the, his claim to fame these days, though, because Soros is big. But he might have a bigger claim to fame because I'm pretty sure it's that same Edmund de Rothschild who you heard about a month ago on Grand Theft World talking about the origins of the Agenda 21 agenda. Like he's like, hey, we should do this thing. And that was at that uh the unsaid United Nations Conference for Environmental Not Freedom, but on, on the development. Development, that's what it was. <laughs> so is that the same Edmund de Rothschild? I'm pretty sure it is, because it was the owner of the Swiss bank, Edmund de Rothschild, uh Bank Privé. And uh, so the continuity between wanting to reshape the world with this special green agenda of sustainability and depopulation and then funding a chaos magician like George Soros to go around and use Gene Sharp's uh, methodologies of how to create overthrows and coups and nations around the world. The color revolution that you might have seen in 2014 in Ukraine, for example, uh, and and just uh, the broad spectrum of the fact that Soros came from working with the Nazis as a 14-year-old or a 13-year-old, where he said it was the best time of his life, hunting down his fellow Jews, to today uh, working with Ukraine that's all neo-Nazi up. So when it's when there's a continuity and there's uh, someone like that in the midst of it. And then they take down the documents that disclose where this gentleman got his great wealth from, right? He's the modern day Cecil Rhodes for that same family. So only instead of colonizing South Africa, they're colonizing the entire planet. It's funny because I was trying to bring up that Duran article. And this is what I get. Yeah, it dis- it disappeared. I had to go to the Wayback Machine for that too. Yeah. Let's bring that one up, LD. You got it. It's almost as like there's a cleansing going on. But it's a cleansing of George Soros's reputation on the yeah, internet. I'll, I'll put it. Actually, I can just do this. Let me just tell my real quick. Leaked memo proves George Soros ruled Ukraine in 2014 minutes from breakfast with U.S. Ambassador Jeffrey Pyatt. So we'll get LD to bring up the either the Wayback Machine version. But and you guys, we have more. Actually, let's do this one too. George Soros touts China as leader of New World Order. And here at the ceremony, what year is it? And this is from the New American 2010, number 2010, November 17th, 2010. Uh, At the ceremony, quote, Soros announced that China's grip on the global economy is getting tighter than compared to the United States' recent economic woes to the decline of the United Kingdom following World War II, reports The Blaze. And down here below, Soros' sentiments are reminiscent of statements he made in 2009 to the Financial Times declaring that China would supplant the United States as the leader of the new world order, that America should simply accept it and not stand in the way of world progress. As a result, the American government, according to Soros, should not resist the decline of the dollar, nor the decrease in living standards and the introduction of global currency. 
Wow. That's funny. And LD, do you have that tweet where I, I published the, uh, the Soros new world order, 1993 NATO speech? Cause I think that's relevant too. Like the guy wrote 30 years ago, NATO and the new world order. <laughs> Here's a little pamphlet on, on his thoughts on the matter. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then he's throwing coups over there in 2014. That's right. like, yeah. I know. This one uh, that you've got on your wall. Do yeah. yeah. New world order, the future of NATO. Yeah. And if you click through the articles on his website, so it's not conspiracy theory. It's not anti-Semitism. It's, it's me reading George Soros's website right there from his page. But apparently you reading his own words is, is being anti-Semitic. That's hate crimes. Yeah, that's hate crimes. In the future yeah. or now. Let's not forget Yushchenko was poisoned and Yanukovych. He's the one who fled. Because LD, you were talking about that earlier. Because what's, uh, it was an Oliver Stone interviewed Yanukovych, I believe. Um, one of the one that fled from the Ukraine. I guess that was all around 2014. So, And were there any other... Uh, Document clips. I thought there was a couple new American articles in that thread as well that got posted. On your Twitter? Let's see. Yeah. Um, new America. Um, <laughs> uh, there's, there's, a lot. there's a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Holy uh, I'll tell you what, while you're on there, go ahead and scroll there, down or, and I'll tell this story. Okay. There was this thing that happened last week that we talked about, and it's the Canadian Deputy Prime Minister, Christia, Christia Freeland. Yeah. And uh, she's also Minister of Finance over there. And uh, she wrote a book called The Plutocrats. That's a heck of a heck of a book. I got a used library copy that's coming my way because I'm not going to give her like, you know, she's not going to get the profit on that. But I'll buy a used library version. But like, it's just she's writing this plutocrat book. She works for the World Economic Forum. She's on the steering committee. She's over there, deputy prime minister. And then there was the Ottawa citizen article on how her grand maternal grandfather was a nazi collaborator a, a good one too for them he did a lot of work for them apparently from the research that was in that and not just like a casual user of the nazi sympathies uh, over there the the you know the system of uh, subjugation now he was a heavy duty user so those things coming together plus the klaus schwab background with that plus all this neo-nazi stuff in ukraine and there's which, just which Jimmy Dore is going to get into heavily. You're going to see underlying theme. Yeah, you got it. Proxy groups plus limited war. Putin's convinced he's fighting Nazis. So either the guy's had a break and he's like, you know, thinking he's in 1944 or something, or he thinks he's fighting Nazis presently over there. And if you look into like, did all the Nazis come over to America? No. And what was Operation Gladio? Were they funding these groups uh, in case the Soviets got out of line? This uh, paramilitary groups and these sort of things. Yeah, and ha that's a function not of We're CIA still creation, funding them. but it's MI6 that taught CIA how to do that. So together, yeah. they've been doing it all over the world for like 70 years. There's a so there's that aspect in there, too. And that layer that I'm talking about is not reflected in any mainstream media and very few pieces of alternative media. And if you don't understand that some of these people are working together behind the scenes, like there's a secret society aspect to it that's legit, and they're doing it still, then you're not going to understand what's going on. Yeah, we'll they have into... one goal. It's a finite planet. There's only yeah. so many people on it. They've written about it. Not a whole lot has changed in the last week. That's my point. Yeah, the hundred percent, one thousand percent agree with you there. Actually, not just hundred percent. Look, there's multiple angles here, but like the World Economic Forum wins 
because these sanctions are just going to put more pressure on the U.S. dollar. It's alluding to what George Soros said back in November 17th or whatever it was of 2010, uh, just accept that China is going to be the new is going to supplant. Uh, the United States uh, deal with the declining dollar, accept it. We're going to bring in a, a new currency anyways, which will probably be part of the CBDC initiative. That'll be tied to a vaccine passport. How conveniently wink, wink. And then, so the world economic forum through their sustainable development initiatives that, Oh wait, there's going to be rising. Uh, there's going to be price increases with energy in the West. Oh, it's all that. in lockstep. It's all in lockstep. And it's and not because Soros said to do it. It's because he works for the people doing it. That's why he's like, China's going to supplant the United States. That's been the plan. That's a known plan for like the past 20 yeah. years. It's been going on, obviously, in front of all of us. All the CFR. I mean, you look at the Foreign Affairs magazine, what they were saying. All the right slave when labor hit. Yeah. that sucked the productivity out of this country because you can buy everything in China so much cheaper. So, you know, this whole... Well, that's how, they, that's how they hid the dollar's decline over the past decade or two as they were print quantitative easing, printing money, uh, putting downward pressure on the, the the value of the dollar. But the point is they were able to Good do thing so. Soros like, has never put pressure on a currency before. I rest easy now. Well, the point is like they were able to confuse people, not really real asset prices are going way up, but at the same time, widgets are still really cheap from China. So like, it seems like, Oh, you know, we're still competitive and our dollar is still competitive. It's like, no, there's something much larger here because we're using slave labor on China, mostly from multinational corporations, bringing their capital to China, using that slave labor to pump out artificially, uh, uh, very, widgets and goods and services and all these sorts of things, mostly goods, manufactured goods that are very cheap. So it sort of hides the, it get, provides an illusion or a smokescreen for the declining value of the dollar, which is now becoming too conspicuous to hide. And the World Economic Forum can hide the fact that like, oh yeah, there's this build back better and this green initiative and this the sustainable development, but don't worry. It's because Russia invaded the Ukraine. Now Russia is getting pressured from the NATO situation. And also, as I'll get into later on, uh, Senate provided me with a timeline that shows, and I'm getting into this in detail about Russia looks, the, the cultural center of that whole area is the Ukraine. And so like going back what many, many, many centuries, like Russia was more or less related to the Khanates. And even back then before when the Genghis Khan came and took that region over and was separated out from Europe. And so Ukraine was more associated with Europe and the, the Ottoman empire and the Orthodox church and so forth and so on. Whereas the Khanate was related um, to really sort of like um, an uncivilized or very low degree of civilization situation and where Moscow now currently exists. And so I'll get into that in a little bit, but it's just interesting because like they look at that area and a friend of mine from the Ukraine said like their big thing is the cultural identity of the of Russia in general relies on the Ukraine, uh, everything from religion to other major artifacts. Um, they called the Kiev Rus or Muscovia Muscovy. So it's, uh, it goes back to the idea of the indigenous population of the Cossacks and all these sorts of things. So Russia feels like it has uh, a right to reclaim what it sees as its identity. Uh, the world economic forum, this is great because with Biden now in, and there's no energy independence anymore, that creates a situation where we now have absolute dependency, uh, on the need to import more and more oil from Russia, which then while we put sanctions on them, drives the costs up, which is what economic forums like, Oh, great. Like now we just have a justification for, you know, pushing the, our agenda forward even quicker. So multiple players are winning in this at the cost of everybody yeah. and at the cost of every single incompetence person. and they just mean well, but they're getting it wrong. 
you're yeah. cheating yourself out of a good education, kid. Yeah. That's what I'd have to say. All right. So if Soros wanted to muck around in the second biggest country in Europe, the Ukraine, would he or would he not have open uh, open society foundation oh, yeah. activity yeah. going on in that country? Let's look at right? that. Because if he's not interested and doesn't have any hand to play over there, he's got no invested interest from the open society perspective. But if there's open society foundation activities that might be, you know, helping to spark these types of things into action, that's what he's done in other countries on record for the past 10 years. Uh, I'd be surprised if they don't have any activity. What's the activity look like over there? What's on their site? So I'm just going to go over some quick details here. The Open Society Foundations in the Ukraine, this comes from the OpenSocietyFoundations.org. Here's the first paragraph. This is from January 28th, 2020, by the way. Uh, International Renaissance Foundation, a part of the Open Society Foundations, was established in Kiev in April 1990. At the time, Ukraine was still part of the rapidly collapsing Soviet Union, placing the new foundation at the forefront of the effort by George Soros, the founder and chair of the Open Society Foundations, to use his fortune to assist the former communist states of Central and Eastern Europe. After Ukraine became fully independent in 1991, the foundation gradually expanded support for Ukraine's often painful transition to democracy and a market economy. The Open Society Foundation's immediate focus in Ukraine and other former communist states was modernization and reform of moribund national institutions, uh, moribund national institutions, excuse me, and support for emerging civil society groups. Now let's go down to point four, nine facts about the International Renaissance Foundation. Let's go to four. That's Soros's Open Society's Foundation, Open Society Foundation's front yes. in Ukraine. That's the front in the Ukraine. You got it. Exactly. The IRF, let's call it. <laughs> that's what it is. International. Yeah, yeah you're right. That's right. IRF. Yeah. That's that's a good yeah, little acronym for it. The foundation, it's partners. So this is point four. This sort of sums up, I think, a lot of what's what's going on. The foundation and its partners have actively supported the work of the International Criminal Court in the Ukraine, including the investigation of alleged war crimes and crimes against humanity in Ukraine, including in Crimea, the eastern Donbass region, and the shooting of unarmed protesters during the 2013-2014 Maidan protests in Kiev. I heard Maidan, Donbass, and Kiev in there. That's very specific. Mm-hmm. Seems to be like the place is going on right now. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That's, I don't think correct. I saw that on Jimmy Dore any place. No. What's going on? Why, how, why, how can we get to this? Well, actually, let me, maybe I should just, okay. So let me just bring up, this is compliments of Senna. She provided me the Russia Ukraine timeline. That is just phenomenal. And this also was with a friend of mine that actually is from the Ukraine. He was able to back up much of this, but he provided more of the cultural elements. I'm going to skip. A little bit of this um, history, I can make it back into the earlier foundations. But if we go back up here, let's fast forward to the 19th century. Actually, let's go to the 20th century. The Donbass was one of the most severely affected areas during the 1932-33 Holodomor atrocity. Oh, that's where I know that. The Holodomor. The deaths by starvation. That's what that means. It was about 20. Stalin starved out 20 to 30 million people. Starved them out. They they talk about supply chain problems today, right? And like food crisis. They have prototypes that they've done in the past where they've they've ordered people to do this. And this is carried out and it's part of history. And they don't like to talk about this part of history. A lot of people. So I should just preface this by saying I forgot to mention not only does Russia see 
the Ukraine is the, the sort of cultural identity of that entire area. But then it's also the breadbasket of Europe itself, if I remember mm. correctly, or at least it extends into large portions of the Ukraine, what's considered to be the breadbasket of Europe. So there's that issue too. Hence why when the Soviets went in and committed a genocide of 20 to 30 million, essentially just raping the peasants of their ability of their labor and production and the taking Soviets everything and destroying funded by the Western bankers who are kind of like still the Western bankers today. Now was Sutton's work. Yeah. I remember correctly. Anthony C. Sutton Anthony from Sutton. Stanford's Hoover Institute for Peace. <laughs> what it's called is the Herbert Hoover Institution for World Peace or something. You know, like that. this is a quick aside at Stanford University. Because we mentioned Darwinism. Uh, I was providing uh shout out to Adrian. He asked for some further education for his daughter, who's a teenager learning about the Ottoman Empire, and I gave him Anton Shaikin's work, and I also yeah. gave him um, the the Palmerston Zoo, and he was unaware of the seventh segment in that, which I think you have in one of your peace revolutions in the 80s. It's about uh, Freud and the Frankfurt School by Michael Minicino mm -hmm. or Minicino. Uh, and he's it was a perfect sort of con because like it's not just Darwinism. They also weaponized the pseudoscience of Freudian psychology. And that's that became the the well, plus the positivism. The, yeah. Oh yeah. Positive. Oh my God. Don't even, I'm not even going to start next. I won't shut up because positive <laughs> drives me nuts because it's, I see it everywhere all the time. Don't be so negative about scientists. positivism law. Uh, I have plenty to say about that. Okay. Let's go back to here between the famine forced migrations and imprisonments in the gulags and mass executions. The Dunbos regions was left a desolate land. The Stalin regime would later repeat the same atrocities in other parts of Russia from 1935 onward in the 1940s. USSR regime moved a large population of Muscovy or Muscovia Russians to the Donbass region. So what happens when you move in large masses of people to an area when they have no family ties or knowledge of how to work the land, there's poverty, blah, blah, blah. It's important to note that this region, especially the Crimea are not homogenous cultural zones. Sounds like a lot of the way they divvied up the uh, middle East. You know, if you look at the construct of pot, and this is exactly what my friend in the Ukraine said, they see themselves. There's many different distinct groups that don't identify with being Russian or necessarily even Ukrainian for that matter. If you look at the construct of populations here back then, and even now it's Kievskaya Russians, Moscovia Russians, that would be of the Ukrainian, uh, Kirim, Karais, Kipchaks, Tatars, Greeks, various Slavs, Turkmens, Chekmens, Armenians, you know, it's all these other individuals, plus the, the Cossacks, which are sort of earlier manifestation of the Moscovia Russians. So now we come to the 1950s when Ukraine is still part of the USSR, but has some autonomy and is called Ukrainian Soviet so the USSR. They can sort of play on their own. So this is important. 1954 is the 300th anniversary of the Treaty of Perezilov. Perezilov to commemorate this momentous event. Nikita Khrushchev, this is important, the secretary of the Communist Party of the USSR, gifted Crimea to the Ukraine. Gifted Crimea. So now, if I remember correctly, in 2014, the Russia annexed the Crimea again and took it back without a majority rule. So in other words, Khrushchev without a majority rule gifted the Crimea to the Ukraine. Now he did year? so... This was in, this was back in 1954. It's either 54 or right, 57. Khrushchev died on September 11th, 1971 of a heart attack at a time when the CIA had a heart attack gun. Talk amongst yourselves. Nothing to see there. And I think that came out during the Reese committee or the, no, that's the, uh, the church committee. In the oh, I'm sorry. The, the heart attack. Committee, yeah. Yeah. All right. Continue with the outline there. Always the notes. Give me the cliff notes. 
So what's the deal here with the Crimea? So this is very important. It's not just the peninsula and the inner sea. Well, Crimea is where Russia has been parked. The Crimea is where Russia has been parking their Black Sea fleet since 1783. Prince Pot Pot Potemkin sends his Potemkin. Potemkin. Uh, fast forward to 91, the dissolution of the USR and the formation of emergent republics around Russia. Naturally, Ukraine is one of these, and they have their first independent president and constitution. The issue is the Black Sea fleet. It is now within the boundaries of the newly minted Republic of Ukraine. Naturally, there is a lot of push and pull after multiple scuffles in Ukraine and Russia signed some agreements to determine the fate of the Black Sea fleet. So for people who don't understand the Black Sea, Sevastopol, which has been one of the main... Uh, yeah, the Russians need an outlet to, to the salt water. For the second largest naval base in the world. Right. But, but I think the largest. issue at hand right here from reading these paragraphs is after 1991, Ukraine was denuclearized and yeah. nato is looking to nuclearize ukraine through bring, bringing it into nato that's that's what putin's talking about in his speech yes that's yes. what putin's talking we're going to cut to a clip of his speech but that's what he's talking about and if you see the concerns from his side and then you compare it to what you're being told on the media it's like these are two different things and i don't think either one's really true because like he's a cagey dictator over there yeah. so i'm not you know kg kgb kgb yeah i was just gonna say you said kg kgb yeah exactly yeah he's kg and he's from the kgb so i don't i don't trust him as far as i could throw him in god we trust all others we verify and he's one of those people you got to verify so i'm just saying he said some words i'm not saying the words are true i'm just saying that might have been part of the words he was talking about and we'll uh we'll cover that uh well let's we should actually pay play a clip of it mm -hmm. because uh, I'm pretty sure it's not been played on American media the past week. Uh, it's been said, it's been commented on. Everyone wants to talk about it, yeah. but no one's going to show you like a larger clip. So Actually, let's go to a, that and we'll come back to this. Get a feel it, for it, yourself. It gets into the treaty organization. Yeah, let's play a couple. Uh, did you want to play it from Telesur English? Is that translated in, into English? Because Rich, you posted Wherever it earlier. I watched it. Yeah, yeah you yeah, watched it. It's it's in Russian with the subtitles. Yeah, I was watching the Russian with the subtitles. I watched which that I too. Which I felt yeah. was a more accurate representation. And so uh, there are some people who watch this podcast uh, video. I, I forget Telesur has understand it. Only Otherwise, for, you might have to read. That's what for I'm people saying. who can't. Yeah, that's fine. Either or, I don't. I don't really mind. Yeah, I think at this part, if you can't uh, take time at some point to read the subtitles, then I don't want to. I don't want to paraphrase another world leader. I'm my own world leader over here. Let him speak for himself, and uh, yeah. So there'll be reading involved with this part of the episode. All right. So the audio listeners are going to have to endure the uh, the Russian and uh, maybe check out this. this All right. Video. Okay. That, so that, that okay, it? that does sound cheesy. So, uh, LD, do you want to be the official reader for? Yeah, I can Putin do that. Clip? I'll turn down Pooty Putin. Pooty Poots. Uh, yeah. As George W. Bush used to call. Hey, Pooty Poots. He talks about freedom in this. It's pretty interesting. I haven't heard a U.S. president talking about freedom in a positive way, but uh, that's a little oversimplifying it, I guess. No, it is interesting. I noticed that early too. Yeah, I agree. He mentioned it also during his WF. Yeah, he's talking about self-determination, freedom, a bunch of ideas that we're not familiar with in America. They're very foreign ideas. So let's let him lay these things out. All right. Here. And uh, let me just explain the uh, the narrative arc that he kind of takes because it's a how long is the whole clip? How long is the whole talk? 
Uh, 27, 27 minutes. Yeah, so it's like a half hour. So for like for the first five minutes, he says that the United States, NATO, the, the West, basically, and West, defined by Kagan in this New World Order book of Paradise and Power, he says that the West is NATO. It's no longer any of these nation states, that the West is NATO, right? This what the guy from the Carnegie Endowment says. So that's not my opinion. That's what he says. So when you're hearing Putin talk about the West, I likely take it from NATO military power plus the banking power above NATO that gives it its power in the first fucking place. Yeah. So, all right, with that, uh, so that's like the first five, 10 minutes. So jump into it at about like eight minutes and let it play for a good solid 10 minutes so he can get out what he's fighting against and why he's fighting. And then uh, at the end, when he speaks to everybody, we, we don't have to play that part because we're not any of those audiences. All right. Roll to the president uh, of the Russian Federation. Yeah, let's give this a try. So, this array includes promises not to expand. Uh, to reiterate, they have deceived us, or to put it simply, they have played us. Sure, one often hears that politics is a dirty Go ahead and roll, roll back like two more minutes. So it's like a more in context. Because like he's laying out how they've played us, but he talks about things that have happened for the past 70 years. Go back to like 2014 in that speech. And for people who are interested, I'll provide more of the cultural history afterwards. But the first five minutes will spell out what I'm going to provide after this clip. So I encourage people to go back and check out because it shows the cultural angle as well. And then also then he gets into NATO and the sort of belligerent actions uh, by NATO countries in regards to pressuring uh, Russia. So there's there's so many, it is a complex situation, but uh it's too many commentators, many of which we frequent on this show, are analyzing it as though a chess or a checkers game is being played when a very complex game of chess from grandmasters is actually what's going on. So, all right. Yeah. So he talks a bit. He talks about the '90s and and sort of NATO bombing in Eastern Europe, right? And then he starts. Yeah, and then he leaves out the part where he gassed those people in the theater in the early 2000s and sent in like that crazy, that crazy team. Uh, that's a crazy team, with a swap, right? Team. Yeah. And that's in that movie Tenet. There's like mm -hmm. a Russian special ops team and they gas a the theater. Like there's a whole. Isn't like, there a documentary about that too? I remember watching a documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's no angel. He's no, no angel. We're not fans of Russia, no. but we're smart enough not just to listen to the propaganda being blown our way. So let's listen to what this guy has to say. Well said. Uh, okay. Um, let's start here. First, a bloody military operation was waged against Belgrade without the UN Security Council sanction. So that was Slobodan Milosevic that he's referring to. But with combat aircraft and missiles used in the heart of Europe. The bombing of peaceful cities and vital infrastructure went on for several weeks. I have to recall these facts because some Western colleagues prefer to forget them. And when we mention the event, they prefer to avoid speaking about international law, instead emphasizing the circumstances which they interpret as they think necessary. Then came the turn of Iraq, Libya, and Syria. The illegal use of military power against Libya and the distortion of all the UN Security Council decisions on Libya ruined the state, created a huge 
seat of international terrorism and push the country towards a humanitarian catastrophe into the vortex of a civil war which has continued there for years. The tragedy, which was created for hundreds of thousands and even millions of people, not only in Libya, but in the whole region, has led to a large-scale exodus from the Middle East and North Africa to Europe. A similar fate was also prepared for Syria. The combat operations conducted by the Western coalition in that country without the Syrian government's approval or UN Security Council's sanction can only be defined as aggression and intervention. But the example that stands apart from the above events is, of course, the invasion of Iraq without any legal grounds. They used the pretext of allegedly reliable information available in the United States about the presence of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. To prove that allegation, the U.S. Secretary of State held up a vial with white, pow <laughs> white powder, not powder. Jeez. White powder publicly for the whole world to see. Assuring the international community that it was a chemical warfare agent created in Iraq. It later turned out that all of that was a fake and a sham, and that Iraq did not have any chemical weapons. Incredible and shocking, but facts remain facts. We witnessed lies made at the highest state level and voiced from the high UN rostrum. As a result, we see a tremendous loss in human life, damage, destruction, and a colossal, uh, a colossal upsurge of terrorism. Overall, it appears that nearly everywhere in many regions of the world where the United States brought its law and order, this created bloody non-healing wounds and the curse of international terrorism and extremism. I've only mentioned the most glaring but far from only examples of disregard for international law. This array includes promises not to expand NATO eastwards even by an inch. To reiterate, they have deceived us, or to put it simply, they have played us. Sure, one often hears that politics is a dirty business. It could be, but it shouldn't be as dirty as it is now, not to such an extent. This type of con artist behavior is contrary not only to the principles of international relations, but also and above all to the generally accepted norms. But also and above all to the generally accepted norms of morality and ethics. Where is justice and truth here? Just lies and hypocrisy all around. Incidentally, U.S. politicians, political scientists, and journalists write and say that a veritable empire of lies has been created inside the United States in recent years. It is hard to disagree with this. It is really so. But one should not be modest about it. The United States is still a great country and a system-forming power. All its satellites not only humbly and obediently say yes to and parrot it at the slightest pretext, but also imitate its behavior and enthusiastically accept the rules it is offering them.
Therefore, one can say with good reason and confidence that the whole so-called Western bloc formed by the United States in its own image and likeness is, in its entirety, the very same empire of lies. As for our country, after the disintegration of the USSR, given the entire unprecedented openness of the new modern Russia, its readiness to work honestly with the United States and other Western partners and its practically unilateral disarmament, they immediately tried to put the final squeeze on us, finish us off, and utterly destroy us. This is how it was in the 1990s and the early 2000s when the so-called collective West was actively supporting separatism and gangs of mercenaries in southern Russia. What victims, what losses we had to sustain, and what trials we had to go through at that time before we broke the back of the international terrorism in the Caucasus. We remember this and we'll never forget. Properly speaking, the attempts to use us in their own interest never ceased until quite recently. They sought to destroy our traditional values and force us on their false values that would erode us, our people from within, the attitudes they had been aggressively imposing on their countries. Attitudes that are directly leading to degradation and degeneration because they are contrary to human nature. This is not going to happen. No one has ever succeeded in doing this, nor will they succeed now. Despite all that, in December 2021, we made yet another attempt to reach agreement with the United States and its allies on the principles of European security and NATO's non-expansion. Our efforts were in vain. The United States has not changed its position. It does not believe it necessary to agree with Russia on a matter that is critical for us. The United States is pursuing its own objectives while neglecting our interests. Of course, this situation begs a question, what next? What are we to expect? If history is any guide, we know that in 1940 and early 1941, the Soviet Union went to great lengths to prevent war, or at least delay its outbreak. To this end, the USSR sought not to provoke the potential aggressor until the very end by refraining or postponing the most urgent and obvious preparations it had to make to defend itself from an imminent attack. When it finally acted, it was too late. As a result, the country was not prepared to counter the invasion by Nazi Germany, which attacked our motherland on June 22, 1941, without declaring war. That's a little bit tongue-in-cheek there. That's uh, I'm just going to call it out a little bit because uh, um, Barbarossa, Operation Barbarossa, so there was obviously the non-aggression uh, pact between Stalin and Hitler at the time, um, but Hitler actually uh, deplored uh, communism more so than probably any other political system, world, really economic system uh, there was. And he went. He decided instead of turning his eyes to Great Britain, because at one point he had the ability just to completely demolish uh, the Great Britain, um, and he said, "No, they're so much like us." Uh, I don't want to continue this war with uh, the English or with Great, the, uh, with Great Britain. I'd rather turn my 
focus to the East, which is exactly what he did. So he obviously, he did go against his own pack that he's, he set up with Stalin, but, uh, that to act as though we weren't already starting to, to provide them armament, which we were with the Russians and to act as though the Russians weren't building up their forces. He's trying to sell it there. They're like, no, we're just trying to building up a defense from an imminent attack. Um, it's not really the whole goal because there is also intelligence the other way that said they were going, that Russia was planning on overtaking all of Europe. Um, and this goes back actually to what happened after the war ended as well. And so it's a, it's a little tongue in cheek there. So he tells a lot of truth, but he also spends a lot of the history, especially in the, the mid early and mid 20th century, quite a bit, very clever. It tells so much truth and they intersperse these like little tidbits of lies here and there. But anyways, continue yeah. forward. I just wanted to point people, point that out to people that that's half true. <laughs> yeah, what yeah. he's saying there. Uh, good, good insight. Yeah. All right. Continuing on. The country stopped the enemy and went on to defeat it, but this came at a tremendous cost. The attempt to appease the aggressor ahead of a great patriotic war proved to be a mistake, which came at a high cost for our people. In the first months after the hostilities broke out, we lost vast territories of strategic importance as well as millions of lives. We will not make this mistake the second time. We have no right to do so. Those who aspire to global dominance have publicly designated Russia as their enemy. They did so with impunity. Make no mistake, they had no reason to act this way. It is true that they have considerable financial, scientific, technological, and military capabilities. We are aware of this and have an objective view of the economic threats we have been hearing, just as our ability to counter this brash and never-ending blackmail. Let me reiterate that we have no illusions in this regard and are extremely realistic in our assessments. As for military affairs, even after the dissolution of the USSR and losing a considerable part of its capabilities, today's Russia remains one of the most powerful, powerful nuclear states. Moreover, it has a certain advantage in several cutting-edge weapons. In this context, there should be no doubt for anyone that any potential aggressor will face defeat and ominous consequences should it directly attack our country. At the same time, technology, including in the defense sector, is changing rapidly. One day there is one leader and tomorrow another, but a military presence in territories bordering on Russia, if we permit to go ahead, will stay for decades to come, or maybe forever, creating an ever-mounting and totally unaccept unacceptable threat for Russia. Even now, with NATO's eastward expansion, the situation for Russia has been becoming worse and more dangerous by the year. Moreover, these past days, NATO leadership has been blunt in its statements that they need to accelerate and step up, step up efforts to bring the alliance's infrastructure closer to Russia's borders. In other words, they have been toughening their position. We cannot stay idle and passively observe these developments. This would be an absolutely irresponsible thing to do for us. 
Any further expansion of the North Atlantic Alliance's infrastructure or the ongoing efforts to gain a military foothold of the Ukrainian territory are unacceptable for us. Of course, the question is not about NATO itself. It merely serves as a tool of U.S. foreign policy. The problem is that in territories adjacent to Russia, which I have to note is our historical land, a hostile anti-Russia is taking shape. Fully controlled from the outside, it is, doing, it is doing everything to attract NATO armed forces and obtain cutting edge weapons. For the United States and its allies, it is a policy of containing Russia with, with obvious geopolitical dividends. For our country, it is a matter of life and death, a matter of our historical future as a nation. This is not an exaggeration, this is a fact. It is not only a very real threat to our interests, but to the very existence of our state and to its sovereignty. It is the red line which we have spoken about on numerous occasions. They have crossed it. This brings me to the situation in Donbass. We can see that the forces that staged the coup in Ukraine in 2014 have seized power, are keeping it with the help of ornamental election procedures, and have abandoned the path of a peaceful conflict settlement. For eight years, for eight endless years, we have been doing everything possible to settle the situation by peaceful political means. Everything was in vain. As I said in my previous address, you cannot look without compassion at what is happening there. It became impossible to tolerate it. We had to stop that atrocity, that genocide of the millions of people who live there and who pinned their hopes on Russia, on all of us. It is their aspirations, the feelings and pain of these people that were the main motivating force, main motivating force behind our, our decision to recognize the independence of the Donbass People's Republics. I would like to additionally emphasize the following. Focused on their own goals, the leading NATO countries are supporting the far-right nationalists and neo-Nazis in Ukraine. Those who will never forget the people of Crimea and Sevastopol for freely making a choice to reunite with Russia. They will undoubtedly try to bring war to Crimea, just as they have done in Donbass, to kill innocent people just as the members of the punitive units of Ukrainian nationalists and Hitler's accomplices did during the Great Patriotic War. They have also openly laid claim to several other Russian regions. If we look at the sequence of events and the incoming reports, the showdown between Russia and these forces cannot be avoided. It is only a matter of time. They are getting ready and waiting for the right moment. Moreover, they went as far as, as, as to aspire to acquire nuclear weapons. We will not let this happen. I've already said that Russia accepted the new geopolitical reality after the dissolution of the USSR. We have been treating all new post-Soviet Soviet states with respect and will continue to act this way. 
We respect and will respect their sovereignty as proven by the assistance we provided to Kazakhstan. When it faced tragic events and a challenge in terms of its statehood and integrity. However, Russia cannot feel safe, develop, and exist while facing a permanent threat from the territory of today's Ukraine. Let me remind you that in 2000 to 2005, we used our military to push back against terrorists in the Caucasus and stood up for the integrity. Stood up the, the integrity and stood up for the integrity of our state. We preserved Russia. In 2014, we supported the people of Crimea and Sevastopol. In 2015, we used our armed forces to create a reliable shield that prevented terrorists from Syria from penetrating Russia. This was a matter of defending ourselves. We had no other choice. The same is happening today. They did not leave us, as, uh, leave us any other option for defending Russia and our people other than the one we are forced to use today. In these circumstances, we have to take bold and immediate action. The People's Republics of Donbass have asked Russia for help. In this context, in accordance with Article 51, Chapter 7 of the UN Charter, with the permission of Russia's Federation Council, and in execution of the treaties of friendship and mutual assistance with Donetsk, the Donetsk People's Republic and the Lugansk People's Republic, Ratified by the Federal Assembly on February 22nd, I made a decision to carry out a special military operation. The purpose of this operation is to protect people who, for eight years now, have been facing humiliation and genocide perpetrated by the Kiev, Kiev regime. To this end, we will seek to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine, as well as bring the trial to those who perpetrated numerous, uh, numerous bloody crimes against civilians including against citizens of the Russian Federation. It is not our plan to occupy the Ukrainian territory. We do not intend to impose anything on anyone by force. At the same time, we have been hearing an increasing number of statements coming from the West that there is no need anymore to abide by the documents setting forth the outcomes of World War II as signed by the totalitarian Soviet regime. How can we respond to that? The outcomes of World War II and the sacrifices our people had to make to defeat Nazism are sacred. This, right, this does not contradict the high values of human rights and freedoms and the reality that emerged over the post-war decades. This does not mean that nations cannot enjoy the right to self-determination which is enshrined in Article 1 of the UN Charter. Let me remind you that the people living in territories which are part of today's Ukraine were not asked how they would want to build their lives when the USSR was created or after World War II. Freedom guides our policy, the freedom to choose independently our future and the future of our children. We believe that all the peoples living in today's Ukraine, anyone who wants to do this, must be able to enjoy this right to make a free choice. 
In this context, I would like to address the citizens of Ukraine. In 2014, Russia was obliged to protect the people of Crimea and Sevastopol from those who you yourself call Nats. The people of Crimea and Sevastopol made their choice in favor of being with their historical homeland, Russia, and we supported this. As I said, we could not act otherwise. The current events have nothing to do with the desire to infringe on the interests of Ukraine and the Ukrainian people. They are connected with the defending Russia. Uh, excuse me. Pause real quick, actually, if you can. One of the confusing things here that he keeps mentioning is though Crimea identifies with Russia, but the Crimea was controlled by the Ottoman Empire for centuries. And I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and look at the timeline to see that connection. But that's another one of those sort of half-truths he's talking about as well, I think, uh, in regards to this power play um, with, and before that, going back to medieval and ancient times, I think it was Byzantium, which then later obviously was controlled by the Ottoman Empire that had control over the, the Crimea. And obviously it's, again, the Black Sea and specifically the naval base at Sevastopol, which if you look in history, if you go back and look at just the great battles around Sevastopol, you're going to find a plethora of them for this reason. So I don't know if they really, necessary. we're just talking about the time since Queen, Queen Victoria's grandchild was in charge of it. Tsar Nicholas. Yes. Yeah. Which would be uh, the early, early 20th century, pretty much. He keeps talking about the West. <clears throat> I want to provide a definition for the audience of the West. Let's look at uh, this is coming from of Paradise and Power, America and Europe in the New World Order by Robert Kagan, who is uh, a partner of William Crystal over there with the neocons. This is coming from page uh, 84. And it reads as follows. <clears throat> the declining significance of, quote, the West as an organizing principle of foreign policy was not just an American phenomenon. However, post-Cold War Europe agreed that the same issue was no longer the West for Europeans. The issue became Europe, proving that there was a united Europe uh, took precedence over proving that there was a united West. A European nationalism mirrored the American nationalism, and although this was not Europe's intent, the present gap between the United States and Europe today may be traced in part to Europe's decision to establish itself as a single entity apart from the United States. This effort impressed upon American minds that the transatlantic goal was no longer a unified West, right? So then they get into talking about this national identity of Europe. Europe would establish its own separate foreign policy and defense identity outside of NATO. Again, this is a 2003 book. This is right after 9-11. The institutions Europeans were revered were the European Union and the United Nations. But for Americans, as for Central and Europe, uh, Eastern Europeans, the UN was not the West, and the European Union was not the West. Only NATO was the West. And it goes on to say that uh, America did not change on September 11th, but only became more of itself. And uh, that's more neocon perspective from this chap right here, Robert Kagan. Can we play Jeopardy oh. real quick? Can we? Let's do it. Yeah, I'll say a name and then you ask the question. Uh, Victoria Newland. Uh, who is the person who got caught on the, that wiretap? Uh, yes, Obama. Yes, yeah. but Robert Kagan's. Robert Kagan's wife. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't mm. know that. Mm. That makes a lot more sense. It and does. I'm going to have to, let me check the history blueprint. Let me just go over here real quick. Cause I do have, uh, I got Bobby Kagan in here. Let's see. Kagan, 
K-A-G-A-N. Let's go to uh, Robert. There we go. Oh, Victoria Newland. Look at that. I do have that over here, but I don't have uh, any... I don't have that reference, I don't think. So I did know that they're together, but I didn't know. I've never updated that thing about the uh, what she said about the EU. Fuck the EU is what she said. Yeah, fuck and, the EU. Yeah. <laughs> and she said fuck Russia too. Like mm-hmm. so, but I did have that she worked under NATO and she's with Robert Kagan. And uh, I'll pop this properties box open. You won't be able to see it, but I could tell you, I put it in there October seventeenth, two thousand ten. At 4.06 p.m. That's when I added that thought. So I'm going to have to, if you send me the link to the thing she said, LD, I'll put it in the history blueprint. Here's NATO. That's the thing. Like Ben Swan actually told everything, all the facts he presented was true. He just, the context in which he presented it was incorrect insofar. Yeah, he just has that limited, he doesn't understand the Anglo-American establishment and Cecil Rose last will and how the British needed us to get into their world empire position. And uh, as long as the Americans don't know any better, they have continued to serve the British crown unwittingly with their tax dollars and militarization of the world. That's correct. And so Putin kept referring to these like neo-Nazi groups. Here's one of them. This is one that later on, if you get the Jimmy Dore or not, and this is something he comments on all the time. This Azov Special Operations Attachment Ukrainian um, you can literally just look at the flag if that doesn't tell you enough about what this is. Where Azov, or Azov Battalion uh, is a right-wing extremist neo-Nazi unit, the National Guard of Ukraine, based in uh, Mariupol, uh, the in the Azov Sea coastal region. I saw its first combat experience recapturing Mariupol from the pro-Russian separatist forces in June 2014. Again, we're back to 2014. And so just to finish this very, I'll just read the last couple of paragraphs, three paragraphs here, or four points rather from Senna's timeline. And thank you for providing the Senna. So fast forward to 2013, Western leading Yushchenko has lost the last election after several years of presidency. A newly elected Russian leading president, Yukonovich, tears up a draft agreement that would allow Ukraine to be considered for the European Union. Naturally, all hell breaks loose, open society to the rescue, enter another color revolution, Euromaidan. There is, again, civil you unrest. You say you want a color revolution. <laughs> well, Soros is your man on the scene. Thank you. I was thinking that when he wrote that song. Bring a hit for copyright. <laughs> the Beatles. The Beatles. Oh, yeah. owners are not is that like John them. Lennon? Hopefully or, I wasn't too in tune to be confused with the Beatles. It'll be good. U- Ukrainian snipers kill about a hundred Russian supporters, which is actually what my Ukrainian friends sent me a video of that. That's now removed from YouTube, by the way, I tried to actually find that a couple of weeks ago, but I couldn't show that um, where you could see snipers in the, the like on the Hills. Uh, and you could see all these people down below with like these like shields and gear that they were using. It's very strange. More mayhem and President Yanukovych flees the country. That is why it's so important for President Zelensky's TikTok videos and photos to be serviced <laughs> to the press to prove like he is saying that he is not a coward. Law, which is a uh, funny thing. In February yeah. 2014, following all this chaos, Putin enters the scene and annexes the Crimea. Uh, perfect time for it. And Ukraine invites OSCE, Organization for Security and Cooperation Europe, to Crimea and Donbass as observers. But then in the last point here, Within a couple of weeks, in March 2014, the Republic of Crimea is established and the port city of Sevastopol is declared a federal city of Sevastopol, which there's only three federal cities in all of Russia. 
and they declare that specific city to be one of those federal cities just to outline and uh, bring attention to how important it's considered for Russia to have control of Sevastopol, meaning is now one of the three federal cities. She goes on to say that and now is one of three federal cities after Moscow and St. Petersburg. In other words, they view this as it's obviously a key strategic city in order to have control of the black sea. So there's multiple angles. There's a cultural angle. There's the NATO angle. And then there's the, the black sea angle. Then there's the neocon new world order angle. So which is sort of the NATO angle. Yeah. The significant other of this author who wrote of paradise and power, Europe and America and the New World Order. I've added it to the brain, the history blueprint. Now we've got that call. And we've heard the call referenced, but since we got it now in the history blueprint, LD, do you want to play the leaked phone conversation uh, complete with subtitles? Because uh, I think Putin referred to it in his talk, right? Like he didn't, he refer to that in in what he was talking about, or am I just watching too many clips in one day? I think, well, vaguely, he, he kind of refers to those those people over there, kind mm. of. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, and I was going to add, if if you cry me a river, it better be Dnieper. <laughs> oh, see, that's another good quiz question. We're working on the uh, the Anglo-American establishment uh, trivial pursuit game, and uh, submit your questions at uh, Lawrence's email address. <laughs> we're not going to make public <laughs> now we'll have to come up with a web page for people oh, I need to to, their questions and uh, answers here's a this is a great point from the outline I just want to get this on the record we need Crimea. more board games to sit around when we don't have electricity because of cyber polygon we're looking to get one out ahead of the market which they're still pushing that pretty intensely by the way i have a, I have a clip on the show card actually about klaus still droning on about oh there will be an interruption to the power grid Real quick, Crimea goes through many rules, as I mentioned, the Byzantium, the Republic of Genoa, which is sort of related to the Venetians. Hmm. So that was to run their slave trade back Around in the black oh, nobility days of the Venice. Yes. Yeah, you're yes, you're crew. right. Who uh, moved to London, the city of so you're, that would be like in the Renaissance area, 14th, 16th century, somewhere in there. Tartars, the Kipchaks, and the Ottomans. So the Crimea is a hodgepodge of different ethnic groups that don't really identify. In fact, I remember my Ukrainian friend talking about this and I went to various YouTube channels and the, the all you got to do is look at the comments to those sections. If, if they can translate them to English, and you'll find there's a whole wide array of opinions associated with how, who they identify with, because it's sort of a, again, it's one of these artificially created situations where it's there people identify and relate to their ethnic group associated with those territories, not the Crimea itself. LD, how long's the Victoria Newland clip? It's just five minutes. It's probably less. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna take that in. Uh, she's a U.S. ambassador to NATO at that time, I believe. And uh, there's a Ukraine section on her page. <laughs> Here, I'll take you over to what I'm seeing. I was just I was just cruising through and uh, seeing what I could see. The Albright, like Madeline Albright group. That's where I'm getting that Albright earlier t- earlier in the show. <laughs> it was coming from me reading this article right now. Uh, Center for a New American Security. It's not ominous at all. No. Um, let's see. Let's see. Blinken. Secretary of State of Political Ukraine. Affairs. Ukrainian Jewish origin. What? New Okay, interesting. Bill Clinton Rhodes Scholar. Yep, working at NATO. NATO. Okay. Yeah. 2013 Ukraine. Okay. So something about George Bush's second term. So she's 
This is during Long. Obama when she does this. I know, I know Obama, right but there's... On February that, but, uh, 4th, 2014, a recording of a phone call between Newland and U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Jeffrey Pyatt. Oh, that's the same guy Soros was meeting with. Oh, we putting it together or what? We're only an hour and a half into this episode, two and a half hours, I guess. On January 28, 2014, was published on YouTube. The State Department and the White House suggested that an assistant... <laughs> <laughs> to the deputy prime minister of Russia uh, was the source of the leak, which he denied. Lots of footnotes. All right. So that's the context of the call we're about to hear. And in 2014, during that coup was a big deal. And it might be a big deal during what's going on today or the future. So let's check it out and enter it most importantly into the record of this show. For those who want to know. What do you think? I think we're in play. Um, the the uh, Klitschko piece is obviously the complicated electron here, um, especially the announcement of him as deputy prime minister. And, and you've seen some of my notes on the troubles in the marriage right now. So we're trying to get a read really fast on where he is on this stuff. But I think your argument to him, which you'll need to make, I think that's the next phone call we want to set up is exactly the one you made to, to Yachts. And I, I'm glad you sort of put him on the spot on where he fits in this scenario. And I'm very glad he said what he said in response. Good. So uh, I don't think Cleet should go into the government. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's a good idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess you think <laughs> – what, in terms of him not going into the government, just let him sort of stay out and do his political homework and stuff. I'm just thinking in terms of sort of the process moving ahead, we want to keep the moderate Democrats together. The problem is going to be Tony Book and his guys. And, you know, I'm sure that's part of what Yanukovych is calculating on all of this. Um, I'm I, kinda... I, I, just, I think Yats is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's, he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Cleach and Tani Book on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week, you know. I, I, I just think Cleach going in, he's going to be at that level working for Yatsenyuk. It's just not going to work. Yeah, no, I think, that's, you know? I think that's right. Okay. Good. Well, do you want us to try to set up a call with him as the next step? My understanding from that call, but you tell me, was that the big three were going into their own meeting and that Yats was going to offer in that context a, a three-way, you know, three-plus-one conversation or three-plus-two with you. Is that not how you understood it? No, I think, I mean, that's what he proposed, but I think just knowing the dynamic that's been with them where um, Klitschko has been the top dog, he's going to take a while to show up for whatever meeting they've got, and he's probably talking to his guys at this point, so... I think you reaching out directly to him helps with the personality management among the three, and it, and it gives you also a chance to move fast on all this stuff and put us behind it, behind it before they all sit down and he, um, he explains why he doesn't like it. Okay, good. I'm happy. Why don't you reach out to him and see if he wants to talk before or after? Okay, will do. Thanks. Okay, I've now written, oh, one more wrinkle for you, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, Pause it for a second. I can't remember if... She's about to say, fuck the EU. <laughs> and it doesn't sound from anything she said so far that she's the least bit like upset or whatever. They're like trying to find a person for puppet government over there and the 
what did he, what did he say? The ornamental elections, <laughs> what Putin said, right? <laughs> so this is the behind the scenes. This is how they make the sausage over there. But she's about to say something, and I I don't I would just I've never really heard the whole tape before. So her cadence and demeanor and all these sort of things, thus far, has told me she's not really upset. She's not perturbed. She's not frustrated. But something happens in the next minute of this call that I guess is going to be more surprising. Now we hear it in context. Let's hear it. If I told you this or if I only told Washington this, that when I talked to Jeff Feltman this morning, he had a new name for the U.N. guy, Robert Seri. Did I write yeah. you that this morning? Yeah, okay. I saw that. He, he's now gotten both Seri and Ban Ki-moon to agree that Seri could come in Monday or Tuesday. Okay. So that would be great, I think, to help glue this thing and have the U.N. help glue it and, you know, fuck the E.U., no, exactly. And I think we've got to do something to make it stick together because you can be pretty sure that if it does, if it does start to gain altitude, the Russians will be working behind the scenes to try to torpedo it. And again, the fact that this is out there right now, I'm still trying to figure out in my mind why Yanukovych did that. But in the meantime, there's a party of regions faction meeting going on right now, and I'm sure there's a lively argument going on in that group at this point. But uh, anyway, we could uh, we could land jelly side up on this one if we move fast. So let me work on let me work on Klitschko, and if you can just keep, I, I think we want to try to get somebody with an international personality to um, come out here and help to midwife this thing. And then the other the other issue is some kind of outreach to Yanukovych, but we can probably regroup on that tomorrow as we see how things start to fall into place. So on that piece, Jeff, uh, when I wrote the note, uh, Sullivan's come back to me, uh, VFR, saying you need Biden, and I said probably tomorrow for an attaboy and to get the deets to stick. So okay. Biden's willing. Okay, great. All right. Thanks. Hmm. Biden yes. was willing back then. Mm-hmm. He was serving the Sith Lords. We should just real quick, let me just get, like, I was just reading Biden, here. I'm glad he doesn't have any history in Ukraine in the midst of all this. You know what I'm saying? Like if his son Hunter was taking money from Ukraine and he was, that'd be a big mess. So I'm glad that's not even going on. Um, but go ahead with your point and I'll hold my point for a second. Yeah. That's how it's going to just provide the career of this, this woman, Newland from 1993 to 96 during Bill Clinton's presidency. Newland was chief of staff, the deputy secretary of state, Strobe Talbot before moving on to service deputy director. Was Strobe Talbot a Rhodes scholar? Let me just look it up while you're doing that. For Somer Soviet union affairs. That one, I don't know, Rich from 2003, 2005. Actually, I can just quickly let's look. Rhodes. Yes. He was a road, he became friends with future president Bill Clinton when both were Rhodes scholars at the University of Oxford. During his studies there, he translated Nikita Khrushchev's memoirs into English. Oh, we just so. mentioned Khrushchev because he died mm-hmm. on September 11th, 1971. And he's the one who first, well, at least Same in the 20th century, annexed. Yeah. So I'm going to put, I'm going to draw us. Look, I'm, I'm mapping the history blueprint line for you, Vicky. Oh, okay. Because she worked under him. Actually, I'm going to put her under because he tutored her, mentored her, worked, you know. Yeah. He also, uh, he also, look at that. He mentored Bill Clinton, too. Yeah. According to, let me go back here. According to, let's do Looking at Strobe here. CFR. He says he became friends with future President Bill Clinton. Oh, that's a secret, secret society. It's not so much that they, at least according to the 
the uh, wiki here, it says he became friends with future president Bill Clinton when both were Rhodes scholars. So I don't know if he mentored him as much as they were like concomitant or contemporaneous scholars at the, this is interesting. Strobe Talbot was uh, a member of St. Anthony hall at Oxford. Pretty sure that's Oxford. Um, where he was. So he's the only, like there's only a couple people that I had under St. Anthony hall secret society. Trinity College. Oh, this is interesting. So Talbot, in 1972, Talbot, along with his friend and fellow Rhodes scholar, Robert Reich, and friend David E. Kendall, rallied their friends Bill and Hillary Clinton to help them in their Texas campaign to elect George McGovern. Did you say President. Robert Reich? Yes. Robert yeah, because he's a Rhodes scholar, too. Look at this. Yeah, that's he just happens Rhodes to scholars. be on screen. There's an interesting thing going on with Rhodes scholars, Tony. I don't know what it is, but they're like all over this stuff. Behind the scenes, no one notices them, though. So you start looking at what's going on. Oh, this is a, yeah. Then Bill Clinton, when he became elected, Talbot was invited into government where he served from 93 to 94, managing the consequences of the Soviet breakup as ambassador at large and special advisor to the secretary of state, Warren Christopher on the new independent States. So, I mean, this just goes deeper. So let me go back to, um, what's her name, Victoria Newland real quick and just go to her career. So that's Strobe Talbot. I'm moving on to service deputy director for the former Soviet Union affairs. From 2003 to 2005, Newland served as the principal deputy foreign policy advisor to Vice President Dick Cheney, exercising an influential role during the years the U.S. invaded and occupied Iraq. From 2005 to 2008, during President George Bush's second term, Newland served as U.S. ambassador to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization in Brussels where she concentrated on mobilizing European support for the U.S. occupation of, of Afghanistan. In the summer of 2011, Newland became special con- envoy for conventional armed forces in Europe and then became the State Department spokesperson. In May 2013, when Newland was... State Department spokesperson married to Robert Kagan, ambassador to NATO. You're a tool in the shed. Yes. A useful tool in the shed. And this is the last. So yeah, in May 2013, Newland was nominated to act as Assistant Secretary of State for European Eurasian Affairs. This is what uh, Ben Swan alluded to earlier, and was sworn in on September 18, 2013. In her role as Assistant Secretary, she managed diplomatic relations with 50 countries in Europe and Eurasia, as well as with NATO, the European Union, and the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. So, well, you're right about one thing: the negotiations were short. Another thing Putin outlined that I won't get into, I had a ton of detail on it, but I know kind of been really hitting this hard is uh, with all these different details, we're more or less focusing on the past 20 years. Is he mentioned this idea of it's like uh, the native land of Russia. Again, this idea that much of the identity of Russia is tied up in the Ukraine. Um, And also that he then goes on to talk about the issue of containment. He sees NATO as sort of containing Russia which is also, you know, part of what we've been talking about with the NATO initiatives. Yeah. I mean, I don't, is he talking about Russia, like Ivan, the terrible Russia or like how far back is he going? Is he going back to all the czars? I I don't know. But so I think that's a side, like his mythology on his country and these sort of things like, okay. So I get, I don't want the machinations driving him into that position where he had to take that move. And if you want to say chess is above uh, checkers, then maybe they're playing go. Like he's, he might be playing, you know, if you're playing well, chess against and people go playing is sort chess, of like equal in that regard, well, go is like accumulation of territory in an expeditious yeah. manner. 
I mean, I'm not saying the culture element takes precedent. It doesn't. What I'm saying though, is the culture element is what's being sold to the people there. So like my Ukrainian friend tells me the way in which he's taught in their school system over there about their national identity. And then the relate the way Putin then sells that need to reestablish that identity. That's what's being sold to the people on top of then the NATO stuff. The NATO stuff is more ammunition behind it, metaphorically speaking, if you will, literally and metaphorically speaking, or literally and figuratively speaking. So I get that you're right about that. I'm just saying like the way in which it's sold to people outside of the political machinations is the cultural element, which is why the cultural element is a very important element. And it goes back beyond the czar. It actually goes back to the 18th century. It goes back farther than that, but the 18th century is like one of the key linchpins. I won't go into the detail. I have all of it. I, I think one of the we'll only, go into that in the, t- in the town hall or something like that. One of the I'll only thing, that. positive things that have come in the past week of this whole Russia, Ukraine thing is that all of a sudden it's hip for Ukrainians to all be armed. So, as a country over there, for everyone to have the right to arm, bear arms, congratulations. Now it's what you guys are going to do with it. I'm not too sure. That seems like a losing situation. But just the fact that they're like, everybody in the country, grab a gun, defend this place. That used to be a mentality of human beings, self-defense, right? Of self-determination, self-defense, these sort of things. And I don't know that people in that part of the world have ever had that experience. So... And, you know, it's not like a 1776 moment necessarily for them, but it is a situation where now, you know, why people in Switzerland are all part of the military and are trained on how to use machine guns because you want to defend the place. You need to have people there that are capable of defending it, not just some specialized group that gets brought in in situations. So much remains to be determined on that situation. It's going to continue to unfold and probably get bigger before it get, you know, dies down. What other clips out of this section, Tony, do you think were uh, best representations of, uh, I mean, there's a Tucker clip here. There's the, uh, Tim the two best were Kim Iverson do a good job, but they're not worth playing in my opinion, because it's a very cursory overview. They're not like detailed. The You're best is like going to be, it's going back to almost a, you know, a chess. It's an analyzing chess. Instead of, yeah, we have, we right. actually out talked every single one yeah. here, including what Jimmy Dore talks about. The two best were from Jimmy Dore and Tucker. Tucker tells the truth in a very dishonest way. But they are, we already alluded to the energy prices, to the sanctions. He doesn't tell you about the World Economic Forum, but he tells you about the impact of how what this will be for the American consumer which I think is really important because that is actually true, but he's not telling you, well, there's a bigger agenda there associated with the world economic forum, which, you know, is a continuation of the green agenda through the club of Rome, so forth and so on. We kind LD. of exhausted everything in this section, but yeah. hit up that rumble clip of Biden at CFR talks about strong arming Ukraine. Mm, it's only yeah. a minute. I know we played it recently, but we should play it in the we context play it again. of That's what's what going on right now. Yeah. And what we just informed you as to the machinations and who's in control of those things. NATO. Anglo-American establishment. Well, let's see what uh, Joe Biden has to say at the Council on Foreign Relations, the, the, the Soviet uh, implant of the Royal Institute of International Affairs. A concrete example. I, I, I was, not I, I, but it just happened to be, that was the assignment I got. I, 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 I got all the good ones. Uh, the guy to Biden's left looks like Richard Haas, who's in charge of the Council on Foreign Relations. Not surprising to see him on stage. I just wanted to note he's a Rhodes Scholar. 
That's why he's sitting next to the former vice president. And uh, so I got Ukraine. And uh, um, I remember going over convincing our team, our others, to convincing us that we should be providing for loan guarantees. And I went over, I guess, the 12th, 13th time to Kiev. And, uh, and I was going, supposed to announce that there was another billion-dollar loan guarantee. And I had gotten a commitment from Poroshenko and from uh, Yatsenyuk that they would take action against the state prosecutor, and they didn't. So they said they had. They were walking out to press conference. Said, "No, nah. I said I'm not going to. We're not going to give you the billion dollars." They said, "You have no authority. You're not the president." The president said, "I said call him." <laughs> I said, "I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars." I said, you're not getting the billion. I'm going to be leaving here. And I think it was, what, six hours? I looked, I said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. Oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> Got fired. And they put in place someone who was solid. Did he? Hmm. It just seems funny. All those trips to Kiev. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is, he, is he out. going over there by himself? Is Hunter going with him and doing deals the whole time? You know, Vicky so Newland. Here's an interesting Daily Mail. Former head of Britain's MI6 intelligence agency says Hunter Biden should have run a mile from Burisma job. So, anyways, yeah. I mean, he was he sat on the board of that uh, energy company, and so that all broke. It was a Ukrainian. Yeah, the Ukrainian. Right. Yeah. The Chinese. Ukrainians. And then the head prosecutor was looking into it and Biden said, well, you're not going to get the billion dollars unless you get rid of that prosecutor. Yeah. Those are and the guys that Vicki Newland was just talking about. You got it. Yachts. Yeah. Yeah. Yachts. Let's put yeah, yachts on it. Yeah. Yacht. You know, yeah. Right. You Come on. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, this, this is turning out to be more interesting as we kind of like dig into it and scratch the surface on these types of things. It's funny because oh. all the old like connections, the daily mail articles and the New York post were his first, the Hunter Biden laptop, yeah. Yeah. You know, information broke. It has been so scrubbed. There's a whole Wikipedia now. Like if you type in, type in Hunter Biden Burisma, this is what we get. Biden, Ukraine conspiracy theory. There's that funny word conspiracy theory. Is that Carl Bernstein? Ukrainian on the right? gas company Burisma uh, on the right. Sorry. What Carl was now. <laughs> well, <laughs> Oh, it's a, yeah, it's a conspiracy Shokin. theory. That's what yeah. I was thinking. I was choking. The legislature. Oh, the Biden Ukraine conspiracy theory. Oh, yeah. thank you, Wikipedia. Yeah. So they've thank already you. have it, you know, figured out. Don't worry. They've named it conspiracy Just theory. Just take the word theory off there. They might be getting someplace, but you got too many words in your title there, Wikipedia. The conspiracy theory alleges that then Vice President Biden withheld loan guarantees to pressure Ukraine into filing, firing, excuse me, Victor Shokin. Dude, we just heard point. the guy say the fucking words. I know. What do you That's mean, what... Wikipedia? I this know. is this is this a is defiant L on their part. In oh. one in one way, you gotta laugh at this because they actually sum up the truth of the matter. They do, you know? but they tell like, you it's not real, which I is know. gaslighting, Tony. It's gaslighting, but that goes back to the uh GFK assassination, which we talked about ad nauseum in regards to the Warren Committee talking about creating that new term which is now this term is called a conspiracy theory. I'm sure when Jimmy was making uh, Wikipedia back in the day, you know, Jimmy from Walden that uh, made the Wikipedia, I'm sure he wanted to do gaslighting. That's probably what his goal was. That's what it is today, man. 
Gaslight Central. Here's this thing that exists, and we're going to tell you it doesn't exist with a whole bunch of footnotes to our own references that tell you it doesn't exist. All right, good job, Wiki. Now, uh, for those of you playing at home and could actually believe your eyes and ears hearing former Vice President Biden say that right next to Rhodes Scholar Richard Haas at the Council on Foreign Relations, the mothership, as Hillary Clinton calls it, of the State Department. The State Department, the same State Department that brought the Nazis over, the State Department that infiltrated the CIA and did all this coup work over the past hundred years with MI6, right? There's a problem. And that what's going on over there is just symptoms of a problem that hasn't been resolved on the, on the West side, right? Uh, the fact that uh, numerous countries had relocated Nazis put in them and that the people that funded the Nazis in the first place rose to power after World War II, they weren't defeated. And now that comes together with what you have here today, a group of financial oligarchical elites who rule, rule in a supranational format. They're making right. decisions at Davos and Bilderberg and these places that determine your life and your future. And it's a big club and you're not in it. So they're not asking for your input. And then we're left to discover day by day as our world's turned into turmoil. What are these people going to do next? Well, I don't know. They're writing about it. Let's figure it out. Like they're not going to stop. Maybe we should figure it out. Do we have something something better to do? You know, maybe we should figure it out. One of the things Putin did allude to that was interesting was Libya and Syria, um, and obviously what happened with Gaddafi in Libya, and then uh, the machinations in Syria. It's right to self defense against the refugee crisis, which is, goes along with UN World Economic Forum continually destabilizing nation states. And George Soros? pressure Who's on their George national Soros? sovereignty. Yeah. Right. And it's his front foundations. And so you see this, these, well, the same players all over the place and perpetuating the same sort of nonsense. Um, so anyways, I won't belabor that point. I just thought, you know, he told a lot of half truths. Then he told a lot of literal truths. Then he told a lot of lies. And it was a very complex sort of speech he gave for that reason, but very interesting because he had a lot of very valid points that needs to need where we should bring attention to. And we have, so anyways, I think that sort of exhausts that's unless there's anything that catches your eye the rest of it. We, we've definitely um, talked about in detail. Well, there's a, a Russell brand clip. This changes everything. And then there's the Jimmy door clip and another Kim Iverson clip. I'm pretty sure that what we've had discuss what we've discussed thus far probably need some foundational elements of the elementary variety. So it might be useful, even though it's not in sequential order mm -hmm. and advanced yeah. people, you know, Let's catch it, it and then read the source material and basic yeah. people take it and watch so it. A I couple think times I kind of have idea. it as best as I can in chronological order, meaning like this, you know, February 21st, 22nd, 23rd. So as you look on the show card, they should be as, as best I could do it because there's so many clips in chronological order. Actually, so. I'm going to tell you about a clip and it's not in the show card. So maybe LD, if you can find this. Right before this kicked off, I was watching the United Nations. It was the Ukrainian ambassador. He had prepared a speech. He was I going there idea. to present it. And he, he's sitting there and he's like, I wrote this speech. I had this thing to tell you, but now it's all out the window. And we got a call from the, you know, and president Putin is at war with our country and, you know, and then he's, he's 
having a contest like he's he's talking at the Russian ambassador and like making accusations and it's a tense exchanges between Ukraine and Russia. I, I don't know, there's I think that's the name of it. So the name it's is tense, called- but it's also it's bold and courageous in one aspect because one of the sides has nuclear weapons and will like it has a huge army. <laughs> And the other side just had some like really strong words and good points. So if, if that clip is available, there's probably a super cut. It was like probably eight or 10 minutes, but someone has probably cut it down and uh, given us some sort of distillation of that uh, piece of uh, media that reflected the evidence as it unfolded that evening. So I guess it was like five o'clock, you know, uh, in, in uh, Ukraine and it's like 11 o'clock in New York or something like that. And this guy was like about to present at the United nations and like all the wind out of his sails. What do you what think? Are we talking about Jimmy. Yeah. We Jimmy, can, Jimmy door. We can play this real yeah. quick. It's just a yeah, let's couple see. minutes long. Yeah. It's too late, my dear colleagues to speak about the escalation too late. The Russian president declared a war on the record. Should I play the video of your president? Ambassador, shall I do that right now? Or you can confirm it. Do not interrupt me, please. Thank you. Then don't ask me questions when you are speaking. Proceed with your proceed with your state. Anyway, you declared the war. It is the responsibility of this body to stop the war. So I call on every one of you to do everything possible to stop the war. This isn't called a war. This is called a special military operation in the Donbass. Relinquish your duties as a chair. Call Putin, call Lavrov to stop aggression. And I welcome the decision of some members of this council to meet as soon as possible to consider the necessary decision that would condemn the aggression that you launch on my people. There is no purgatory for war criminals. They go straight to hell, Ambassador. <laughs> Mic drop. I wanted to say in conclusion that we... I love that they have a female translator aggressive for against the Ukrainian people, but against the junta that is in power in Kiev. There are no more... Speakers on the list, this meeting is adjourned. All right. So the dude from Ukraine was like, hey, I'm in the United Nations to be protected. This is what the United Nations is about. And the guy, the bully that's attacking me is sitting there on the United Nations Security Council. He won't even admit that his country declared war on me. And we want him to leave. Like, if this is going to go on, he's got to get off the Security Council. So that was like the gist of the whole exchange. And they did an okay job of cutting that down. But it's a hard thing to do because it's a longer... Uh, you know, exchange of personalities and and words and these sort of things. So with that in place, that kind of kicked off the invasion. That's the first the world really knew about it, unless you got some earlier information that was before news even picked it up because that was the, that was the ambassador of Ukraine figuring it out uh, for like real time in that. So from there it escalated. Then you had a lot of news coverage this week that wanted to tell you 
what to think before the any evidence is even like examined about what's going on. And we're not here to tell you what to think. We're telling you uh, that there are things that could be thought about and we're showing you how to think about those things. And if you wanted to think about those things, you could think about them however you want. You know, they're for your consideration. They're for your examination. They're for your study. And to know that these things exist because they're conveniently left out of these mainstream me media narratives. And the only reason they censor is to take away your ability to, to, to have power and knowledge. And that's why they don't want you to have those pieces because those are the powerful pieces. That's why they're censored. They'll let you have the rest of the noise that might lead to the signal. They can't have that. Um, as far as the other clips here that summarize that situation, what yeah, were some, yeah, what like there's a bunch. I mean, there's Kim or there's Russell and Tim pool. Like they, if you want a general summary of like the Western perspective on what's happening, Let's, let's check either the Kim Iverson or the Jimmy door for that. Okay. Cause I've seen that. Well, Jimmy door has two. So one I'd play the one above a truth about Ukraine, Russia, not what you think, but it's long. So maybe we just play 20 minutes of it. Um, there's two here. I'll let you, um, and then there's another one. Jimmy door media lies about Ukraine, Russia debunked. So one's the one, the earlier one he did was truth about Ukraine, Russia, not what you think. And then the one he did later on is called Media Lies About Ukraine and Russia. Debunked. Let's check out the one from later on because he might reference things he had just done in the other video. Plus, okay. it's called Debunked, so that gets my curiosity. What's he debunking? Is this really debunked? What's going on? Gets my brain he going, gets, I guess. Yeah, he gets into the whole funding of neo-nationalist movements. And, oh, and, might, uh, might bump and into the CIA. Soros guy over there. Yeah. Or, he, and he, definitely the CIA. MFC he also there. pokes a little fun of Crystal and Sager, which is why they're... Which is reasonable. Like, As like opposed I said, to Crystal and Kagan, who's the neocon dudes. <laughs> oh, play. William Crystal, Robert Kagan, my pinata. <laughs> All right, it. so let's go ahead. And, it's a 40 uh, minute clip, so just let, it, let us know when you want it to stop. So, uh, well, let's roll a couple minutes into Jimmy Dore. Our next guest to help us break down the Ukraine situation, he is a contributor to the Gray Zone and winner of the IF Stone Izzy Award for Independent Journalism and the host of Pushback. Pushback. Now you can read his work at his Substack, mate.substack.com. Please welcome award-winning journalist Aaron Mate. Hello, Aaron. Hi, JD. Great to have you on. So uh, we're going to do this... Uh, so it's happened. Uh, Russia has officially invaded the uh, the Donbass, the eastern uh, Ukraine. And uh, so Joe Biden is on it, though. Listen to this. I'll lead an effective strategy to mobilize true international effort to pressure. <laughs> I'll lead an effective strategy to mobilize true international effort to pressure. <laughs> I don't know what he's saying. Here, let's hear it one more time. I'll lead an effective strategy to mobilize true international effort to pressure. I'll lead an effective strategy to mobilize true international effort to pressure. Okay. Okay. So what I want to do here, there's a lot of moving parts in the Ukraine thing. There's a lot of things. There's a gas pipeline. Of course, energy comes into play. We're going to talk about that. Of course, what happened with NATO, uh, uh, the, the NATO's expansion onto Russia's border, that also plays into this in a big thing. Also, the 2014 coup that the United States pushed and then installed uh, a government that is infiltrated with neo-Nazis and uh, out outwardly, that's not a secret. 
Uh, and then the Minsk agreement that then the U- U- Ukrainian government ignored. So all those things led us to to Russia doing this, right? Uh, going in and putting troops into Ukraine. So that so people keep forgetting that all this history. And so there's been a lot of bad takes. Usually we debunk the establishment news. Well, even YouTubers are now uh, doing the same thing, repeating uh uh, what the corporate news has been saying. And I want to just uh, show you uh, two examples and then we'll uh, uh, debunk it and show you what how you should actually be thinking about this. So the first one comes from friend of the show, uh, Kyle Kalinske. He said Biden didn't go extreme with the sanctions because he's now sanctioning uh, Russia over this, uh, President Biden. He went proportional. Okay. No doubt, though, that if Russia takes or tries to take Kiev or Kiev, the harshest sanctions are in play. Overall, a relatively reasonable response policy wise, in my opinion, despite Western culpability in getting to this point. And what you said was that you're presuming that the United States has a moral or legal authority that in reality doesn't exist. What right does Biden have to sanction anyone? He doesn't. Uh, a single, I mean, the United States just set the Mideast on fire. We're still bombing Yemen, Somalia, as we speak. And Israel is still bombing Syria with our blessings. A single sanction on anyone but him or other U.S. leaders is out of proportion. He can start by sanctioning his team for the 2014 Maidan coup, and that's the coup where we overthrew, helped overthrow the Ukrainian elect, democratically elected government in 2014. That's the United States did that, and we showed you how they did that in our last video about this with Max Blumenthal. So here's one more take I wanted to show you because a lot of people turn to them and they forget that... uh, uh, Sagar is actually a right winger. <laughs> so people forget this. And they also forget that uh, Crystal Ball also is a Russia gator. Right. Uh, so then here's what you get. Here's the kind of analysis you get from that. I never expected a full scale invasion like this to happen. I was deeply distrustful of U.S. military intelligence. And, and I frankly, I think I got it wrong um, in terms of what happened here. I never expected Putin and uh, Russia in order to do something so frankly, colossally foolish. He has fulfilled the dreams of the neocons now in Washington for all time. He is basically insured now, Crystal, as we'll be discussing throughout the entire show, a full-scale NATO deployment to the eastern flank. This is the greatest thing that could have ever happened to the U.S. defense budget. I mean, there will now be renewed, justified calls. Already I'm seeing this morning the German uh, former defense minister and others saying they're going to be re-upping their armaments. So we are looking at a whole whole new era of geopolitics yes, here. And indeed. it is entirely Putin's fault. It and is. and yeah. China uh, sort of tacitly aligning with Russia. Yep, that's right. Um, basically calling for, you know, lessening of hostilities all the, mm. all around. So this very, you know, wishy-washy, both sides right. kind of a statement when clearly 100% the aggressor here is Putin and is Russia Okay, so that just, you know, ignores the history of what's happening and it reveals that they don't know it. But uh, so why did the U.S. back a violent coup in Ukraine against an elected government? Why did the U.S. and EU support neo-Nazi militias? Why were they silent about the attacks on Russia speaking civilians in Donbass? Why haven't any of these questions been asked by the cheerleading Western media? And so I'll just show you one more video. This is from Adam Schiff. United States aid Ukraine and her people so that we can fight Russia over there and we don't have to fight Russia here. So we've been uh, 
of arming and funding uh, the people fighting Russia and uh, breaking the Minsk Accords in Donbass uh, since 2014, at least. And here's what you say. Again, people don't ever focus on this either. Biden rejected Russian offers to keep Ukraine neutral and help sabotage the Minsk Accords, which could have prevented this war. Since he's now hanging Ukraine out to dry, perhaps Kiev can hire Hunter Biden for $80,000 a month for his expertise on how to navigate his dad's crisis. So um, let me bring in Aaron. Before I do, I just want to just show you this. So again, this is the thing nobody ever talks about. Uh, I was there, NATO and the origins of the Ukraine crisis. After the fall of the Soviet Union, I told the Senate that expansion will lead us to where we are today. And who said that? Jack F. Matlock Jr. That's a guy who was there when it happened. And he says his Putin's demand is that the process of adding new members to NATO cease and that Russia has assurance that Ukraine and Georgia will never be members. President Biden has refused to give such assurance, but made clear his willingness to continue discussing questions of strategic stability in Europe. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian government has made it clear it has no intention of implementing the agreement reached in 2015 for reuniting the Donbass province into Ukraine with a large degree of local autonomy. An agreement with Russia, Germany, and France that was endorsed by the United States. So that's what's led us to here. And you didn't hear any of that in any of those two critiques I just showed you. And I'll show you one more video and I'll bring in Aaron Mate. Uh, here's Chomsky talking about this. The question that we ought to be asking ourselves is why did NATO even exist after 1990? Throughout the whole history of the Cold War, we were told NATO is necessary to defend Western Europe from the Russian hordes, okay? No more Russian hordes. What happens to NATO? It expands, okay? It expands to the east. Its mission changed. Its official mission now is not to defend Europe from the Russian hordes. It's to control the global energy system, sea lanes and pipelines, and to serve as a U.S.-run intervention force. Well, you know, we're all educated intellectuals, but we can now ask a question. What was the nature of the propaganda we were fed all those years? I mean, if Russia, if NATO was there to defend the West from the Russians, why is it now expanding right to the borders of Russia, becoming a global inter U.S. intervention force, uh, protecting sea lanes and pipelines and so on? What that tells us is all the talk about the Cold War was just a pure lie. And there's plenty more evidence for that, which we can go into. Uh, educated intellectuals don't pursue this line of thought, but it's a pretty obvious one. Well, going on to Ukraine, Mersheimer's point is that you, for any Russian leader, whoever it might be, you know, Mahatma Gandhi, uh, Ukraine is right at the core of their geostrategic concerns. Uh, for Ukraine to be taken into NATO, which is what is repeatedly threatened, would be a very serious threat to uh, Russian security, uh, uh, quite apart from historical interests, which go way back to the origins of the Russian Empire, in fact. So yeah, the, you can give arguments against uh, Russian uh, interference in eastern Ukraine uh, after the coup that took place there, but it's a complicated story, and the West is not without its uh, significant uh, initiatives there. 
So let me bring in uh, Aaron Mate, who you can read at mate.substack.com, and we just react to the to the bad news reports and what's actually going on and anything I got wrong. Well, you got nothing wrong. Look, in terms of this Russian invasion, which is going on in all over Ukraine, Russia is attacking military sites across Ukraine. It looks like tonight they're attacking the capital, Kiev. And I think the first thing to say about that and that we have to acknowledge that is that no matter the background, it is illegal. There is a UN charter which allows force only under a few conditions, either if you're under attack um, in self-defense or in the face of an imminent invasion. And that wasn't the case here when it comes to Ukraine and Russia. And Russia has claimed to care about the UN charter. And I think in this case, they completely violated it. And although I understand their reasons and they were they didn't start this crisis, they didn't actually start this war, I think they had other options. Putin uh, has control over a large part of the European energy system. And Russia had leverage to achieve its goals that way. He could have pursued that. He could have pursued other things. You, so mean, he could have, you mean he could have cut off energy uh, shipments to Eastern Europe and that would have been his leverage? That's one thing he could have tried. You know, okay. I'm not sure if I'm not sure if it would have worked, but he could have tried that. So this, you know, he, he likes to argue or, you know, the Kremlin likes to argue that they had no other choice. But I just don't buy that. Now, that doesn't mean, though, that they started this war. This war did not begin this week. That's a point that my colleague Anya Parampil made this week. The war did not begin with the Russian attack on Ukraine. This war really began in 2014 when the U.S. backed a coup in Russia's neighbor. And that's a documented fact. I mean, you played the clip before where you have Victoria Nuland, a top Obama and now Biden official, who's choosing the next leadership of Ukraine. And lo and behold, a few weeks later, that's exactly who came in in power after the president Yanukovych was violently overthrown. That's a coup. And I'm sure in many years from now, once we get the declassified documents, we'll find out even more about how involved the U.S. was. So after shortly after that, you had a war breakout because... Even after a coup uh, that ousted the uh, government uh, of Yanukovych, then the new coup government started cracking down on Russian-speaking people, banned Russia as a language. And there was incidents like in Odessa in uh, 2014, where dozens of people were burned alive. Russian speakers were burned alive. By Nazis. Event, uh, by Nazis. And after that, that's what prompted the separatist regions or I'm sorry, these rebel re, uh, regions, Russian-speaking, Russian-aligned regions, to launch a rebellion because they didn't want to live under the reign of Nazis who threatened to burn them alive. And there's been a brutal war for the last eight years in which the vast majority of the casualties have occurred on the rebel-held side. And it's those people, the victims of that war, that were not allowed to acknowledge. It goes back to a term that Chomsky used with Edward Herman in Manufacturing Consent. There are worthy and unworthy victims. Worthy victims are the victims of U.S. enemies. Unworthy victims, people who we can't acknowledge, are the ones who were responsible for killing. And throughout this eight-year war, the U.S. has been pumping Ukraine with billions of dollars worth of weapons. Just imagine if Russia had done in Mexico what the U.S. did in Ukraine. Launch a coup and then flood the country with billions of dollars worth of weapons. The only difference is that the U.S. would have done what Russia just did a long time ago. A long time ago. They would not have waited. So that's the background. I, I mean, look uh, what we did with the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that was, what, 60 years ago. I mean, we weren't going to allow Russia to put missiles in Cuba, and so we were, you know, almost had World War Three over it. And 
So you're exactly right. We would have did what Putin did, but much quicker. Yeah. When uh, Blinken and Biden talk about the rules based international order, right? That's their mantra. Yes. Russia is following, according to U.S. terms, the rules based international order where you use force to protect your own interests. That's what the U.S. does. The U.S. claiming, uh, accusing someone else of violating their sovereignty is a joke. U.S. right now is occupying of Syria. Syria does not want U.S. troops there. But we don't even talk about that because it just presumed, like some people presume that we have the right to sanction other, other countries, that we can do whatever we want. So Russia is simply following the terms that the U.S. has already laid down as, quote, the rules-based international order, except the difference between Russia and the U.S. is that Russia is doing it on their borders. Syria is not on the U.S. border. That's right. Yet U.S. is occupying it. Ukraine is not on the U.S. border, yet the U.S. launched a coup there and has sent billions of dollars worth of weapons there. There's a broader background that's been happening over the last 30 years. As you mentioned, the expansion of NATO up to Russia's borders. Also, and this is this never gets talked about, but it's very important. There's been a continuous dismantling by the U.S. of the arms control agreements reached during the Cold War that essentially prevented the world from destruction. The Bush administration kicked it off while they were expanding NATO to Russia's borders in 2002, 2003, they killed the anti-ballistic missile treaty. And they said at the time that they needed to do this to protect Europe from Iranian missiles, which is a complete joke. The obvious aim was to build facilities in places like Poland that the US can use to encircle Russia. That's the aim. And that's been continued. And in 2007, Vladimir Putin gave a speech at the Munich Security Conference where he warned that along with NATO expansion, the destruction of these arms control accords is threatening a lot of danger and that Russia is eventually going to have to respond. Uh, the U.S. ignored all that. Uh, the following year, Ukraine was promised NATO membership along with Georgia. And fast forward to 2014, you had that coup and you had the coup government talking about joining NATO. You also had in the years since the coup happened, Trump pulling out of the INF Treaty, another vital Cold War arms control treaty, and also killing the, the, the Open Skies Treaty. So you have a coup in Ukraine, you have nonstop expansion of NATO, and you have killing of arms control treaties that keep the peace and that allow for the U.S. to build up even more offensive weapon systems surrounding Russia. And it's in that context that Russia started building up its forces late last year and started making demands and laid down a very clear red line. And Putin was serious about this. He threatened military technical measures. He didn't say what they were, but it's obvious now what he meant. Now, I didn't think he would invade. I was wrong about that. He was serious when he said that NATO expansion has to stop, that we can't allow for a uh, Ukraine, which has a lot of traditional ties to Russia, to be a NATO member and to host U.S. offensive weapons. And what was the U.S. response? Even though they supposedly had all this intelligence pointing to a Russian invasion, they were willing to, to hang Ukraine out to dry and say, no, it's more important for us to assert this stupid right to expand a hostile, useless military alliance than it is to uh, save Ukraine from a catastrophe. Because by the way, we're not going to help Ukraine at all if they get invaded, which is exactly what's happened. That's exactly. So there's another part to this, too, that people leave out. Uh, first of all, this is your tweet, which I thought was great. Uh, it's You say, for the U.S. project of turning Ukraine into a vassal state, 
While pretending to care about its sovereignty, you couldn't have picked a worse face than the guy who helped organize the coup of 2014 and then got his son a lucrative gas company board seat in the immediate aftermath. And here's one more, since we're talking about the bad coverage. Uh, Caitlin Johnstone says, The fact that Western media cover Ukraine in a wildly different way from U.S.-led wars is actually immensely important and points to a problem that urgently needs attention. Anyone who has a problem with that should shut the F up and stop interrupting, er, interrupting adult conversations. So I want to show you this. So this is another part. Of course, there's a pipeline involved. Of course, there's got to be some energy involved, some oil, some gas, something. And so this is from the American Prospect, and it says Nord Stream Pipeline snarled in the U.S.-Russia fossil energy war. But this is from last December, right? So this discarded sanctions over Nord Stream were attempted protectionism for U.S. gas producers. So they're trying to – so what is happening is – Russia sells, I think, 30 percent, maybe even 40 percent of the uh, of yep. energy supply to Europe. And that's not good for the United States. Right. And so they want to protect our gas interests. It's selling to Europe. This is real. So watch this. So there's a pipeline. It's called Nord Stream 2. And the pipeline was built to send gas directly from Russia to Germany, bypassing Ukraine and removing a source of income, as well as a strategic choke point for the former Soviet state. In May, President Biden lifted sanctions that Congress and former President Donald Trump placed two years ago. Remember, Trump was supposed to be in bed with Putin. Here he was sanctioning their frickin pipeline. And uh, which was 95 percent complete when Biden took office. It was finished in September and now it awaits certification from German regulators. Echoing those crystal so echoing criticisms are Ted Cruz. He warned that Russian President Vladimir Putin has built the pipeline so then the Russian tanks can ride into Ukraine. Now, why would Ted Cruz want to say that? Well, the senator from the Permian Basin, who has emerged as the pipeline's toughest critic, has another reason to oppose the infrastructure for Russian gas, preserving the European export market for U.S. liquefied natural gas. So, oh, my God. So there you go. So they wanted to stop that pipeline from Europe to Germany, a direct pipeline that goes around that cuts out Ukraine and they wanted to stop that. Why? Because there's a big li uh, of liquefied natural gas market for the United States there. And beyond Texas, senators from other oil producing states, such as North Dakota. Isn't that interesting that big oil producing states are slamming, have slammed the pipeline, also citing national security. The strategic priority makes sense, given that the U.S. outflanks Russia as the top exporter of natural gas. Despite the pandemic, U.S. producers in 2020 saw the highest natural gas exports on record. So this is about gas money, baby, fossil fuels, freedom gas. Remember, as Energy Secretary Rick Perry dubbed the fuel, has been explicitly pitched to European producers in recent years as an alternative to Russian energy. Perry, who is also the former governor of Texas, told reporters in 2019 that after freeing Europe from Nazis, the United States is again delivering a form of freedom to the European continent. This time, he said, rather than in the form of young American soldiers, it's in the form of liquefied natural gas, freedom gas, baby. 
Now, even as it looks to decarbonize its power sector long term, Germany plans to ramp up its reliance on gas over the next decade. The country's new governing coalition, which includes the Green Party and the pro-business FDP, they have agreed to build gas-fired power plants as it aims to retire coal by 2030. Expectations of Nord Stream's impact on global demand for liquefied uh, gas could influence the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the regulator that approves gas drilling facilities. So what they're saying is that they're afraid that the federal regulatory agency that approves gas drilling facilities might not approve them if there isn't the market for it in Europe, right? So that's what they're afraid of. Okay. Those expectations were jolted on Tuesday after a call between Biden and Putin. The United States would be willing to use the pipeline as leverage against Putin's military buildup on the border of Ukraine. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told reporters at a press conference. Sullivan added, if Vladimir Putin wants to see gas flow through the pipeline, he may not want to take the risk of invading Ukraine. So you know we don't give a shit about the people of Ukraine. So what is our strategic Interest. Well, there's one of them. In Europe, the debate over U.S. sanctions ahead, is viewed it. as a play. All right. I'm happy we picked that Jimmy Dore clip because there were several from this past week that were remarkable, but that was the one with Aaron Mate. And he's known for his incredible reporting on the Syria situation. And, and I'd charge that three and a half hours into this show, you've got a different perspective than anybody else who's been getting the, uh, the slow drip of the mainstream media's opiates out there and a clearer picture of why, like when Trump's going against Putin in that situation, that's because the people who fund Trump's campaign sell LNG liquid natural gas to Europe. And that's what Jimmy was just pointing out. Like there's a comedian in his garage and he's giving you better information than the top five networks on TV. That's while they where sell it to the, the new world order, while they sell it to the American people as though we're energy independent, or that we're backing Ukrainians because they're fighting for their independence, like it's like a George Washington type thing. And when um, their their current guy in charge that Newland put in there, Yachts, uh, wasn't he the stand up comedian? Wasn't he on a show just like uh, Trump was on a show before he Zelensky, became president? You're thinking the Ukrainian Zelensky, president. I'm sorry, Zelensky. not yet. Yeah, I not was yet. thinking yeah. Yeah, Zelensky. Zelensky's the, the comedian. Yes, he's the comedian. Yeah. Do we have any video of like how that works? Because we know how it works here in America. You chair the apprentice and then you become president. How did it work over there? Oh, here I'll just show, like I have this uh, LD. See if you can find Seneca bring up these TikTok videos that like I couldn't find, and just, I don't know if she couldn't I, find them. But I've gone this far funny... in my life without seeing TikTok. I, I could keep going. Well, apparently there's some like very I don't know. Or you can just find video. Try to find video. I guess there's like, Forbes. Forbes Ukrainian is you. it's humor a comedian is elected president since U.S. selected Donald Trump as president. Nothing in the world of politics has seemed impossible. So the results of Ukraine's presidential elections. Hold Sunday, on, hold on, wait, 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 wait. Wasn't there a Robin Williams movie where the comedian became president? <laughs> I, it was an awful movie, and I don't remember the title. Yeah, of it, I can barely. Sure I, that, I think you're correct about that. Actually, that was. I don't thing. remember the title of it either we'll have to look up the imdb on yeah williams but sunday may have reached a higher level unconventional the nation elected a comedian who played the president of ukraine in a tv series as its real president there you go thank you everyone for coming that's the show yeah, all right it doesn't get any weirder than that
Oh, wait, it will. It will. We're not even to the intermission yet. The new leader of person with no visible political aspiration until a few months ago. So he had no political aspirations. Uh, was elected by more than 70% of the vote in the country of 44 million currently in its six-year war with Russia, struggling to maintain its territorial integrity and national independence. This article is more than two years old. It's from April 21st, 2019. Now, what I'm interested so in... if you ever see... Um... Uh, Sasha Baron Cohen becoming prime minister of Israel, you'll know it's a similar situation as what they had there in Ukraine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think All he right. was selected president. He's a funny guy. He's a funny guy. Soon All right. It's 2019. We're about to go weirder. So I have highlighted here in the show card, Alex Jones's prediction that mm. Russia would invade Ukraine six months ahead of when it happened. And Tim Pool did a big story on it. I mean, other people, mm -hmm. everyone talked about it. Mm -hmm. uh, let's just play the clip, and that's all that needs to be said because we just want to enter into the record such uh, synchronicities from someone who probably is reading the documents of the people doing it. Just the like we're clip. trying to do for you. Yeah, I believe that's the clip. All right. A video of Alex Jones is going viral. In this video, he accurately predicts there would be a massive war in February. So this is from October of last year. He recorded this video. And he says that this is the buildup, just like pre-World War I, pre-World War II. Right now, we are being inundated with psychotic propaganda. It's everywhere. For me, it's really, really frustrating I'm quite annoyed by it. You know, I don't mind feel-good stories, you know, trying to get people's hopes up and inspire them and boost morale, especially in times of great conflict. But what I can't stand is low-tier garbage manipulation and propaganda. And that's a lot of what we're getting. They tell us that Alex Jones is a madman. I think it's fair to say a lot of people point out when you throw a, 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 a whole bucket of spaghetti at the wall, some of the things will stick. But I think it's kind of uh, worrying that Alex Jones said this in October of last year. I wonder what else the man knows, and I wonder who told him this. I want to play for you this clip, and then I want to talk to you about information manipulation, how it pertains to the banning and censorship of Alex Jones, and how it pertains to how they are trying to manipulate you right now into supporting war. Check out this clip. This is, this is amazing stuff. But we're looking at a giant war in February right now. Currently, that's the projections with the top people on the earth who claim they're not with uh, the New World Order Combine. Is war in February? And th this is the type of time, like right before World War One, right before World War Two, when everything kicks off. I have questions. Who told Alex Jones that there would be a war, a big war in February? The war was initiated by Vladimir Putin. Is there someone who knows what Putin's plans are that told Alex Jones and Alex Jones told the military or didn't say anything? I don't know. I don't know. I will say we were, we were getting inundated with news stories that Russia was going to invade, that it was imminent. And Russia did invade. Even Russia says Russia invaded. But let me tell you, let me tell you about propaganda. Right now, the most annoying thing to me is if you go to Reddit and just, just go to Reddit. I wake up, you know, I read Reddit and I understand Reddit is basically mostly propaganda. 
But you have a whole bunch of posts. Let me show you one that I think is really interesting. A message as simple as two bricks, it reads, from r slash Lego. And it is Legos pushed together in the uh, colors of the Ukrainian flag. There are endless stories about Ukraine. Tr- look, look at this. Trump, who was impeached for withholding nearly $400 in military aid from Ukraine, said this deadly Ukraine situation would have never happened if he were in office. It is anti-Trump propaganda. It is anti-Russia propaganda. Now, look, I don't like Vladimir Putin. I think the dude's off his rocker for the most part. I think he's 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 got some valid points, but I think invading Ukraine is insane. I understand he has criticisms about what's been going on in Ukraine. And you can you can argue the U.S. and NATO are not playing fair when it comes to negotiating. The way I see it, Russia is powerful. Russia wants to negotiate and they want things they want to expand. Vladimir Putin wants to bring back the power of Russia. It ain't going to happen. The U.S. and NATO are more powerful. And so Russia keeps getting pushed down and pushed down. So what does he do? He buddies up with China. China wants Taiwan. Much the same. The U.S. does not have the power it once had. So propaganda is pouring out. Vladimir Putin knows this and sees an opportunity. China sees an opportunity. I think war is wrong. But Vladimir Putin's not going to sit back and let the U.S. and NATO bully him. And, and, and you know, what's funny is, you know, Cenk Uger had this tweet. We, we covered it yesterday <clears throat> where he's like, you know, the right likes Vladimir Putin because he's a white guy. And it's ridiculous because Biden's a white guy, too. And then he posts this story about Tucker Carlson. And he says, Cenk was right because Tucker accurately points out the perspective of Russia. Let me tell you, in a viral video. Joe Biden is bragging that he manipulated the Ukrainian political administration, the the presidency, the firing of a prosecutor by threatening to withhold aid. He's on video saying it. So I can't stand the propaganda. Now, there's probably some context there. You can argue that Joe Biden's position is right or Joe Joe Biden's position was wrong. The argument from the establishment is that the prosecutor was not doing his job. But when you take a look at independent reporting and investigation, Victor Shokin, the prosecutor who got fired by Joe Biden, was doing his job. And that that involved investigating Burisma where his son worked. Now, I'll tell you what was really happening. The U.S. is using subversive and underhanded tactics to gain favor in Ukraine and gain control. So that Ukraine sides with EU, with the EU and NATO. I don't blame the U.S. for wanting to to expand its. You got the gist of the Alex Jones clip, plus the irony of the Hunter Biden juxtaposition to what you just heard his dad say at the Council on Foreign Relations. And it was popular enough that he bragged about it on stage at the Council on Foreign Relations. So you know it's something that the CFR was applauding him for, not something he was embarrassed about. He was advancing their agenda on the on behalf of the Anglo-American establishment. He's advancing their agenda, and he goes there to get his, you know, people clap and laugh at his jokes. That's part of why those people do it. So uh, I don't need to uh, confess continue to beat the the dead horse of uh, NATO uh, and Russia. We've talked about that for the past uh, three, three hours almost right now. So um, any other clips out of this section, Tony, that we have to hit before we change topics? There are no other clips. I think that covers the gamut of information associated uh, 
with uh, the Ukraine-Russian situation. So there is one last clip. Putin targeting gonna... bioweapons labs, question mark. Yeah, that's a funny, that's an intro. Not funny, but it's oh strange. So then, yeah, it's worth just checking it out real quick before we go there. I just want to, um, what was the name of the journalist that Jimmy Dore was uh, interviewing? Oh, Aaron um, Mate. Yeah, Aaron Mate. That's right. So he talked about a strategy. He talked about a, a, another strategy that the Kremlin or Russia could have possibly implemented, which is using the leverage that they have with their oil and gas reserves. And what's the causality with- of that, Tony? If he's like, hey, uh, instead of going to war and invading Ukraine, I'm going to take all this energy I'm giving to Eastern Europe and I'm going to take it over here and I'm not going to give it to you guys. And what does the market say? And what do Trump's investors do then, Tony? Flood the market with their product. He's just given his enemy, like, so that's not a viable strategy. That's maybe why Putin didn't do it. That's exactly right. He didn't have that leverage. That's something that Mate was incorrect about. And I just don't think he had an opportunity to think it through fully because he was talking to Jimmy and it was just like a spur of the moment, maybe thing. Yeah. And that's fine. And like Jimmy might have shown him. Oh, no. He's, yeah. yeah, I mean, this is reporting on Syria going back. Yeah. I mean, that's. I have nothing against Mott. And like, I think Jimmy might've pointed out some information. He might not have been, I don't know. I'm sure he was maybe aware of, but maybe had not have fully logically analyzed in his own mind and made sense of it and showed them and was able to make those pertinent connections that you just brought up um, because he didn't have the leverage that he claimed he did. Plus that strategy had actually been used before in the past. And so this comes from, again, send his timeline. This is 2000, 2000, 2004, 2005. Sources, Open Society, and OTPOR have done their job well. And Ukraine has the orange revolution on their hands after they elect a Western-leading president, Yashenko, instead of electing the Russian-leading candidate, Yanukovych. Russia presses sanctions in the form of shutting down the natural gas pipelines into Ukraine from November of 2004. Wait, is that Viktor Yashenko? Yeah, I think, I'm thinking it is that she's referring to. Yeah. And isn't he the guy that got face poisoned with uranium or something like yeah, that. Um, let me bring that up real quick. Maybe I'm yeah, misremembering because this, this is not so Yushchenko is forte. the one that's poisoned. Yushchenko, Victor Yushchenko is the one that's poisoned. Yanukovych is the one who fled to Russia. And that's the one that Russia backed in 2004. Correct. But on screen for the 2000, 2000, 2004, 2005, 2005 open society, mm-hmm. that's Yushchenko who yes. didn't play ball with them. And they're like, we'll show yeah. you uranium in your face. Yeah. Yashenko, instead of electing the Russian leading candidate. Yeah. So, right. And then Russia presses sanctions in the form of shutting down the national natural gas pipeline into Ukraine during November to January. So it's a little cold there. The ultimatum is you want heat, reelect our candidate. Once the election goes Russia's way, the pipelines are turned up at a hundred percent markup. And that's a cruel thing, freezing people out in the winter. Yeah. Yeah. Is it more or less cruel than invading their city and blowing shit up? I mean, they're both cruel. Starving people out is cruel too. I don't think any of those are viable uh, evidences of freedom. It's this is really fucked up because what the West has done has made Russia act belligerently outside. Almost like what they did to Hitler after they propped him up. Yeah, because the guy who made the World Bank, like George Kennan, and these guys are sitting at the Hitler's box at the Olympics. Like they were all like, and the King of England was on Hitler's side and they had this secret pact. It was so good of a, like a convincer of Hitler that when things went sideways, he sent Herman Goering. He's like, Hey, go, go over there and talk to Ian Fleming. And why are they going back on their deal? Correct. And then like the whole thing turns. Right. So 
were there Rhodes scholars and Hitler's intelligence agencies and inside? Yes, there were. So there's, there's other machinations going on and who were his financiers? The same people that propped up the country because like the reason we had the great depression is because a bunch of investors money went over there where they could buy pennies on a dollar, everything while their economy was crashed in Germany. And that led to the industrialization during the the Weimar Republic. Yeah. Right. That led into the industrialization that empowered Hitler to do all those things. But he was mm-hmm. fully a creature of their creation. Mm-hmm. And that seems kind of like what Putin is. Putin's falling into the Hitler trap. He's falling into the Hitler trap and to some degree Stalin. There's but he's elements. fighting Nazis. That's the irony. Like the, I know. the writers of I the know. narrative are like, this is going to be juicy next week. <laughs> I mean, they, they forced his hand, which makes him look bad because he didn't have a Casas belly necessarily in order to invade Ukraine. For war. A, cause a case for war. for war. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the Latin, it's the same. That's the, I guess. Yeah. I should have stated what that meant, but the point is he didn't have a reason to go into, I mean, he, he didn't have an initial provocation as outlined by the UN charter. So like, I get, I understand that. And Mate brings up that point, but he's been propped up and pressured in such a way that you could say there's so much a preponderance of so much pressure around it, that it was inevitable to happen one way or another because almost he lost his leverage with story, the natural gas. Yeah. Almost as if leaking a story saying he's going to invade on February 15th was it. enough pressure that it actually made him invade within a week of that date. You got it. Exactly. Yeah. It's exactly right. And let's not forget the world economic forum that Del big tree highlighted earlier as well in regards to like he's been propped up by international organizations, even being part of the 92 young global leaders, which wasn't called that at the time. It was called something else, but whatever, it doesn't matter. It was his young global leaders program. Just in 92, he was propped up to be that to play the dialectic that was needed to build out this chess game. That do you think Putin calls Bill Gates or Bill Gates calls Putin? Do you think they talk yeah, at all at that Bill level? <laughs> I mean, they're both graduates of Klaus Schwab's World Economic School, which is a sub-function of the Club of Rome, which is a sub-function of all these Malthusian eugenicists. And that's why I bring up, like, this whole gas thing is interesting because what is the club of, like, if the World Economic Forum is sort of ideologically an extension of and is legitimately extension of the Club of Rome. It's the collection of the corporations they need to control in order to carry out the Club of Rome's agenda set forth in a 1970 document called the predicament of mankind Mm -hmm. in in there on page 23 or 25 he talks about they talk about creating a world economic forum a world forum to carry forth these uh agenda proposals for the project and that's another thing like i bring up the culture a lot and i agree that the machinations the political machinations make or take precedent but there's this also this other issue that putin mentioned during his speech about why they're going into the Ukraine about the destruction of the family, the destruction of, you know, standard values and traditional values and all these other things that are curious, because that's also what the world economic forum has been promoting as well. In fact, I'd read something earlier on about that specific issue. So it's just, when we, when we tie it all together, like there's this inversion of humanity going on that being, it's being perpetuated by the round table groups and organizations associated with them. And, uh, so Putin plays into this perfect dialectic that can build up and tear down as a straw man to, to bring in their new perfect globalist utopia. Now, how do you think he figures in with the club of Rome and the predicament of mankind, the quest for structured responses to growing worldwide complexities and uncertainties, 1970, how do you think he fits into that? 
Is he on the green agenda over there? Is he trying to go carbon neutral? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. To be honest, no. I don't know if he fits I'm into asking. that as well as possible. Like, I think it comes more from the UNESCO side, which UNESCO literally was says Julian Huxley propagandize, use propaganda as a tool to further the agenda. Yeah. I mean, he literally did this in like the 1950s. And I was talking to Senna about that because we were it's going page over that. 25, by the way. Oh, never mind. The project done by Club of Rome, undertaken by the World Forum. And in the Davos Manifesto of the World Economic Forum, they reach back to the Club of Rome for their inspiration in Aurelio Pache. Yes. The creator right. of such things as this. So predicament of mankind all the way to today. And it brings in their ability to, they at least believe it rationalizes a justification for a world communism, which is exactly what Quigley said. It'd be a, a well, he called it a feudal system, but I mean, potato, potato now, at this point. Is Carol Quigley and Alex Jones, are they soothsayers? Are they Nostradamuses of their day? Or are they just reading the documents of the central the group that has declared war on all freedom on the whole planet 120 years ago? I ask you. And when was the origination of the institution of the Royal Institute of International Affairs and the CFR? Well, there's, uh, I'll I mean, show I've, you. I'll, I'm just remember. I'm just trying to remember the date. The specific. They're talking no. like 1919. 19, there's the Hotel yeah, Majestic like, Conference, and then it goes into the Royal Institute of International Affairs. So if we think but about a very, I got early, it right here. Let me yeah, just bring it up. For a very early 20th century, my point is, and then we were talking, we went and showcased um, discussions about this going back to the 19th century, obviously of Rhodes Will. What was at the very, very, very end of the 19th century? Let me see. All right, 1919 here. So uh, let me uh, see if I can adjust this so I can read it because my picture is blocking it out on my screen. Look at those connections, everyone. You think just, there's some uh, just a few synaptic receptor sites to this brain? So now the Royal Institute. Sorry, good. The Royal Institute of International Affairs finds its origins in a meeting convened by Lionel Curtis of the American and British delegates to the Paris Peace Conference on 30 May 1919. Curtis had been a, an advocate for the scientific study of international affairs and following the beneficial exchange of information after the peace conference, argued that the method of expert analysis and debate should be continued when the delegates returned home to in the forum of the International Institute. So these are all followers of Cecil Rhodes and acolytes to his last will and testament. And basically they redrew the, the, the map of the world these yeah. guys just sat around in the Literally meeting taking other people's it. stuff for a couple of years. And uh, let me show you how they were redrawing it before the end of World War One. It's like Spico, yeah. you have the Balfour Declaration oh, sure. of Israel and Palestine. Yes, this was the after the formalization. They said we should keep meeting on these things. We've yeah. been very, very productive. <laughs> well, and by the way, it's not what happens in Vegas society. stays in Vegas. It's what happens at Chatham House stays at Chatham House. That's that's the original. So just so you know, Chatham House is dirtier than Vegas. Right. So there's the a Royal picture of society. Which now, is of course, uh, the Council front. on Foreign Relations is a is a child of the Royal Institute for International Affairs, even though Correct. the Rockefeller Foundation helped Correct. to fund both of them because they're a good Anglo-American nonprofit organization like that. Uh, prior to the RIAA, we've already mentioned the Interparliamentary Union that mm -hmm. pre-existed it, uh, but you also had the Royal Society of London, uh, the Roundtable Group. Yeah, that's the one I was talking about. The Royal Society is really important because they're they're like the scientific 
arm that sort of perpetuates the pseudoscientific theory of uh, Darwinian evolution or the progress of the favored races specifically the subtitle to his famous essay. Sorry. And the round table group, I just wanted to, to name a couple of the characters uh, cause they were actually, they were actual people. They're named, they're named, they're known. <laughs> Holy shit. Just, the Jeffrey Dawson. Establishment. Yeah. Right. So let's just click. Let me just click into like the, the men of the round table. He's part of the Cliveden set. That's uh, the Astor family's Nazi supporting English part of this uh, trained by El Milner and uh, had experience. He's in Milner's kindergarten. So that's a group around Cecil Rhodes of the young scholars that are going to help to bring about this uh, British world order. And then if you go back you had Lionel Curtis, Alfred Zimmern, Lord Milner, uh, Lord Nathan Natty Rothschild, um, and who else was part? Robert Brand. Let's go into Lord yeah, Brand. Kerr, at least part of the Milner group. You had yeah, um, Lord Lothian is Philip Brand, Kerr. Curtis. Yeah, sorry, good. And basically, these are all people who went to Oxford. And are participating in, in spreading the English-speaking idea. So Jeffrey Dawson, Leo Amory, Lionel Curtis, Milner, Nancy Astor, Philip Kerr, and uh, a couple other people in that coterie made up that small group of people that brought about World War One and helped to shape and get America into those World War One and World War Two. This uh, continuity of influence continues to this day. So it's not just the Royal Institute of International Affairs. It's the round table and the think tank, the intelligentsia above it that drove it to uh, let's look at the, the Rhodes scholars here for a second. And while you do that, I'm just going to get, so this comes from the Anglo-American establishment, but just for, for context or people aren't familiar with all these various groups that make up the Anglo-American establishment, but brought, uh, sort of born out of uh, Rhodes's will here on page, like it's the introductory section. He states that this society has been known at various times as Milner's kindergarten, as the round table group, as the Rhodes crowd, as the times crowd, as the all souls group, and as the Cliveden set. All of these terms are unsatisfactory for one reason or another, and I have chosen to call it the Milner Group. Those persons who have used the other terms or heard them used have not generally been aware that all of these various terms referred to the same group. Correct. So, this and is so, so outwardly, with all the different type of groups, I'll, I'll show you the roundtable wiki page in a second. But the Rhodes Scholarships was the uh, the scholarship set up by Rhodes, so he created the secret society. And that's reflected through the outer ring of the round table, but he also created the Rhodes scholarships, which are used to infiltrate various cultures and uh, be stepping stones to power and inside people like a fifth column for the British empire. Mm -hmm. So uh, let me just it also sets there. the ideological precedent as that old saying that sometimes is attributed to the Jesuits, sometimes attributed to other individuals. The narrative, like, they set the me, narrative. Like, give me a child till he's seven. I'll show you the man. And not that quite that young, but they get them young to set, that get them ideologically possessed with the goals and aspirations of the group. Oftentimes euphemized or with certain context omitted information omitted to help perpetuate that belief and instantiate it in those individuals. So they actually go about it as though they're a religious zealot proselytizing to the ignorant masses. And then on top of that, it acts as a networking group. So they, you know, and they, so they network with one another and get into positions of power as rich. And I always continually point out, especially rich, they're oftentimes in positions of power within media, which is very curious media or governments, but they're never necessarily actual unless you're Bill Clinton for the most part, 
and some other uh, prime ministers across the world, for that matter, presidents and prime ministers, they're never usually the prime minister or president. Typically, they're usually oh, the the king advisors, and the advisors, the cabinet. Yes. Just like Klaus used the World Economic Forum yes. to infiltrate. There's been yes. other groups that model that he modeled that. And so, right. Rich, I, yeah, go ahead. go ahead. I just wanted to get on the table on the table on the record. The round table is a journal and it's run by some people who had an agenda and a vision of the narrative. And it's through that journal and the journalism that they participated in through the round table movement, that they shaped the idea of not just a British empire, but a British Commonwealth. And mm-hmm. they started doing this. So I'm going to read from the top, the round table, the Commonwealth journal of international affairs is an international relations journal established in 1910 relating to the Commonwealth of nations, the British empire. This is the predecessor to foreign affairs for CFR. So that's my commentary history. The journal was established in 1910 as an offshoot of the round table movement established the previous year to promote closer union between the United Kingdom and its self-governing colonies. It was initially subtitled a quarterly review of the politics of the British empire, though some of those associated with the Roundtable movement promoted Imperial Federation, a proposal to create a federated union in place of the existing British Empire. It was early on agreed that the journal should not come out flat-footed in favor of constitutional change, and disagreements within the Roundtable movement meant that it never did. It was founded by Lord Milner, former High Commissioner of South Africa, Lord Selborne, his successor of South Africa, and members of Milner's kindergarten. So it's basically the gangsters who worked for Cecil Rhodes created this and then had a, had a plan and took over. They rose to power because they were able to assume a narrative and put it out there. And that was powerful. That was useful to the people in power. It included Lionel Curtis, Philip Kerr, Jeffrey Dawson, Robert Brand, soon uh, Leo Amory, who was a partner of Cecil Rhodes, and Alfred Zimmern. Zimmern's in the Anglo-American establishment. He's the whistleblower who went to Carol Quigley yeah. and said, there's this group of people, they're running the world at that point. They had already staged two wars by the time Quigley found out in 48, and they created NATO. And that's when Alfred Zimmern, this guy right here, he went to Quigley and said, I got a story for you. And then Quigley spent 20 years researching and going in the Council on Foreign Relations archives to write Tragedy and Hope to publish it in 1966. So to know this. Yeah, story, I mean, he look, literally says here, let me just like, this is Quigley now from the Anglo-American establishment, but agreeing with the group on goals. So let me quote this again. Quigley Tony's says. Tony's going to have a book, Kim, in a couple of weeks. But yeah, I'm going to have. Very yeah, exciting. I'm excited about that. But and I'm going to need it for my course, which is coming up on. Uh, March 17th. And we have a sign up for that, but I'll get into that later. But agreeing with the group on goals, I cannot agree with them on methods. So again, quickly agrees on goals, but not on the methods. To be sure, I realize that some of their methods are based on nothing but good intentions, blah, blah, blah. In this group were persons like Escher, Gray, Milner, Hanke, and Zimmern, who must command the admiration and affection of all who know them. The reason why this is important, a lot of these groups, uh, these individuals have control of either uh, press and publications or are connected with banking. And that's one of the reasons why they were able to exert so much unbelievable influence. Obviously, um, what was in the fifth will and Testament Rothschild was willing to finance it. So now it reads here on this page, this is the page for <laughs> the round table movement, right? We just read about these guys, right? But if you go to the bottom of this page and it reads uh, conspiracy theory, <clears throat> Irish American academic. Oh, they make a big deal that 
Carol Quigley is an Irish Catholic type guy. That's mm. interesting. It's almost like a English Protestant wrote this part. Irish American academic <laughs> Carol Quigley believed that the Roundtable Group was the front for a secret society for a global conspiracy to set up uh, set up by Cecil Rhodes, named the Society of the Elect, to implement Rhodes's plan to unite all English speaking nations and further believed that the elite of the British Empire had an undue influence on the American elite. Sir Iveson McAdam thought that Quigley was crazy. As one other noted, uh, the tragedy of Quigley is his conviction that he was outside of an inner circle that did not exist. Oh, my goodness. Wow, that's bold. That's a bold statement. That's a good way to stop thinking is to believe stuff like that right there. All right, well... That's the roundtable movement. And I think it's important that people understand. So what, what's the distinction then between like the CFR, or the UN and something like the world economic forum. And so what economic forum is sort of like a manifestation of, uh, how would I, the CFR is specifically like a, a group to get America back into the British empire. Yeah, Whereas the world economic forum is like a commonwealth the, sort of initia. Yeah. The WEF is the, uh, the, it's an outward Shaping branch. the fourth industrial revolution, right. technocracy, cybernetics, transhumanism, all these things that they need to separate their Elysium elite from the rest of the people. And that's what Christine Freeland's book says. That's what her book says. Yeah. Plutocrats. It says it on the cover, how they're going to separate and decouple from all the poor people in the world. Now, if you understand these things in context, her Nazi background, the fact that she wrote Plutocrats, and then she's right there with Justin Trudeau saying, take their bank accounts, take their bank accounts. Like, no, 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 as Leslie Stahl would say to Trump, which she was wrong about. So no, (laughs) to you, Leslie. Yeah, it's the actionable manifestation of the ways in which they want to implement this sort of caste system, if you will. Whereas the CFR and the UN are really about getting the United States. Who'd have thunk Boston Brahmins were in on the caste system recreation for the Western world? They they named themselves Brahmins. Of course, that was a time in which a lot of the translations of the Vedic texts were getting uh, becoming available to uh, Western scholars in the 19th century. I also wanted to give honorable mention in this section before we move on, as this was all breaking out the other night. I thought, like, uh, who did I want to hear? Like, like whose perspective did I want to hear at that time on this Ukraine kind of Russia situation? And I wanted to hear Scott Horton from the Libertarian Institute and Pete Quinones said, Scott, let's get on a live stream and talk about this. So uh, that's a long form conversation. Scott is uh, very knowledgeable in all the minutia and details of that type of history. And uh, it's a fantastic conversation. Sadly, we don't have time to play more clips in this section on this topic. We got to move on yeah. to uh, the Fauci crew and the Wuhan flu. SARS-CoV-2. It's just wanna, for you. Did you want to touch on the biolabs thing? And by yeah, the way, that's a good way to tie it together. Bio yeah, labs. it's a sort of a segue into it. Yeah, that's how I played it. Scott spoke at uh, in Utah at an event yesterday, and uh, I'll share that link with you, Rich. You might want to check that out as well. He's supposed to be heading out here to Connecticut. I'd like to do an interview with him while he's here in the state speaking someplace. If I could catch some footage of him speaking, that'd be cool. What do you got? Uh, I'll share that link with you. Uh, All right, cool. And then we'll check this out here. Hey, did you hear that Putin was actually attacking U.S. bioweapons labs that are in Ukraine? That can't be. It's too good to be true. Or is it? 
I know, I'll do a trusty fact check. So I look up this little fact check right here, and it actually says, yes, there are bioweapons labs there, but they're not funded by the US. But now they're saying Russian invasion of Ukraine risks release of dangerous pathogens? I didn't think there was dangerous pathogens there. Well, if you read on further, it tells you. Oh yeah, but don't worry because it's all part of a threat reduction program designed to help rehabilitate these bioweapons labs into healthy and safe things for the lovely planet. And is that why they're burning these giant piles of documents in a government building in Kiev? Inquiring minds want to know. Here's the deal now, without all the green screen insanity, I haven't quite figured out how to do that yet. So yes, what happened was is a couple of my uh, Instagram friends hit me up and they're like, hey, did you see this information about the map? And there's like, there's the bombing and then here's the bioweapons labs. And I'm like, I mean, those could be chocolate factories for all I know. I mean, where did you get this map? And I kept trying to see if anybody had the map and I wanted to find out if there was more about it. I was trying to talk to people that live in the country, kind of hitting some dead ends. But then, uh, so I started looking a little bit more and then boom, up pops a fact check. And I'm just like, oh, okay, let's hear this because a lot of times in the coronavirus fact checks, they'll actually tell you the, the thing you want to know in the fact check. I don't know why they do this. Is it some kind of like message that they're trying to send us for the smart people that can actually listen? Because they're like, Actually, those bioweapons labs aren't really an Amer American-owned. They're actually owned by Ukraine. So within the fact check, they admitted that the map was real, that they are really bioweapons labs, and they, they line up with the explosions. But fact check, false, red line meter, saying, <clears throat> no, this is totally false because they're actually owned by the Ukraine. But then you go on further and it's like, there's actually an agreement where there's some funding that might be coming from the US, but there's threat, they're all part of a threat reduction campaign where they're trying to rehabilitate these Russian uh, bioweapons labs that were going on during the Cold War that now they're like helping these poor little bioweapons labs. And we know all these great people that work in the NIH and the, and the WHO and the World Bank and these people that run Ukraine and doing all kinds of crazy stuff over there, Biden and his son, are, it's just such a, a shit show. I mean, you look at what's going on with this, and then the more you look at it, then it goes, you see another article comes up like I put in the, in the green screen. It's like, oh, now we're worried that these bioweapons might, might be released. The day before, they're like, there are no bioweapons labs in Ukraine. And then they're like, well, the bioweapons labs aren't actually owned by America. And they go, well, they're actually part of an American-funded thing that through the Ukraine. And then they're like, wait, some bioweapons might be getting out. Ah, like, I mean, like, they're literally admitting it in the fact check. So I actually wanted to go with this story yesterday and be way ahead of the curve. But out of an abundance of caution, I didn't do it because I didn't want to come out and say something stupid. And to be honest, it seems too good to be true because, I mean, somebody's got to do something. I put a post out a little while back 
and it was basically saying that anybody involved in these gain of function things needs to be like rounded up right away because they can have dead man switches that they can put it's like oh you want to do this to me well we've got this little vial that's sitting over a thing in a train station that we're just going to hit a button if i don't log in at a certain time and you're going to get your release of the deadliest strain of pathogen i mean it sounds crazy but i mean okay, we live in crazy times these things that's like what that's like what Colin Powell did. He's like, in this, I got some anthrax, right? Uh, to the point of the fact checks telling you the truth inside there sometimes, look up USA Today debunking. They did a fact check on no, Fauci didn't fund the Wuhan lab with $3.4 million. In there, they tell you it was only 700000 that went through EcoHealth to that. Oh, yeah. and, and then they say that they pulled the contract from them, but that didn't really happen because they gave the contract back a couple of weeks later. There's all this stuff you can learn from reading a good propaganda rag fact check. Like USA Today is like the CIA Today. So they're, they're really telling you the truth in there that they want you to believe. And uh, yeah, you can learn a lot from that. So that's interesting. I'm not sure if the, like about the map and the labs, I know that the U S is probably doing that sort of stuff over there. Cause they had to do it someplace else after gain of function was banned in 2014. And they had a coup over there in 2014, friendly government. They could probably just take those labs and do what they want. So I'd be interested to dig more into that and see what other evidence uh, rises to the surface. But interesting interesting you know this is a side i know we're going in a different section but i was thinking about those neo-nazi groups in those regions of you know burning the russian uh speaking individuals that's exactly what happened with hitler in poland with the germ the german population in poland before he moved into poland that's the parallel is really uncanny right now it's kind of blowing my mind they're ominous like, parallels holy you would say? shit it's not even like rhyme this is this is uh Repeating. I mean, <clears throat> this is not history rhyming. This is like history, literally kind of repeating like that. Just, I just made that connection now. I don't know why, I guess I was, I don't know, but I just thought about 2014 and I'm thinking about what Monte said in regards to, um, the sort of inquisition against Russian speaking peoples. And then the sort of like separatist movements that exist. And right now Putin wants to go in and alleviate them. Just what Hitler said about the German Dude. pogrom that happened, like 50,000 Germans pogrom from the, the are Poland. you talking about the ominous parallels? Oh my God. Leonard P. <laughs> we'll be parallels? featuring a lot of Leonard, Leonard Peikoff during my logic see course. Good old screen here. Good old Peikoff. It's an okay book. I mean, he, he no, he misses out on the whole. He misses a lot of angle, yeah. But, I know, I know. Yeah, but, you know, it's 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 Peacock. smart man. Otherwise, but I had to go diving to get that book off. Leonard <laughs> Peacock, ominous. Yeah, ominous parallels. You got it. That's absolutely true. Yeah. So, All right. Anyways. So we're breaking into this uh, Fauci flu Wuhan crew, and um, we're going to go into the Chris Martinson take on what was released in the past week. And what we have is <clears throat> in the past couple of weeks, we went over the DARPA diffused drastic document dump with Dazak, that whole D stew with that. And we showed that they were looking to make an aerosolized vaccine, MRNA based to spray on these bats. Well, gene therapy for the bats in order to prevent terrorism in the future. And it happened to like release as Dazak says. Uh, and, um, so now there's new evidence in this situation. So without all those smoking guns from the DARPA documents, set that aside for a second, there's a history of ARPA seeking to create 
immune deficiency types of things going back to 1970. So between ARPA and DARPA, you got a lot to look at right there. But this is going to look at something else. This is going to look at some mRNA technology uh, by Moderna a couple years ago, like 2016. Now, Moderna was funded in 2013 by DARPA, but you're not supposed to think about that in this equation. What you're going to see is DARPA funded Moderna. Moderna patented a little piece of technology. That piece of technology ended up in SARS-CoV-2, everybody. That's the plague. So now we're going to go to Chris Martinson, who's a uh, forensic pathologist trained at Duke University. He's going to explain it to you in more competent terms than what we do here on Grand Theft Auto on the fly, doing it live. Let's check out Chris Martinson. Dr. Chris Martinson. The NIH continues to cover up its role in funding the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and maybe more we don't know. That comes to us from a new FOIA request from The Intercept. As well, all of this means that it didn't have to be this way. I'm convinced SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, came from a lab, and I'm gonna show you why. Let's go take a look. Dr. Chris Martin here with another episode. This one's going to be very explosive again. Look, it's really important that we get this right before we begin fighting over do we need mandates? Should we have backs passports? How many people need to be locked down? What sort of rules? Should bank accounts be frozen? We have to understand where the shocks are coming from. We've got to widen out our frame of view. We have to understand what is going on. Now, this is what I do in the world. So I'm going to show you some more data around the lab leak hypothesis, which is something that's no longer a hypothesis for me. We're up to theory now, which means that it's got lots of mountains of evidence. It would be up to the other side to prove that that's not the case. Now the ball's in their court. Uh, this is clearly coming from a lab, and as well, all fingers point to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. If you like being early, you're going to love my work. If you know me, if you've been following me, you know that I'm always way ahead of the pack. The pack being the major institutions out there, that would be the NIH, the CDC, as well as mainstream media. Now, how do I do that? I do that because I have a secret sauce. I got two things going in my favor. One, I don't have any conflicts of interest. I don't hold board seats at Pfizer. I don't have um, any, uh, you know, people above me that I have to worry about pleasing politically within a power chain of command that who knows, you know, gets murky. It's all about the money. So I don't have the monetary conflicts of interest. And two, I have a Comcast connection. I'm pretty sure that sets me apart because I don't know what's going on with these people who can't like read and figure stuff out, even though it's their job. They're in multi-billion dollar companies and institutions and organizations, and they don't somehow manage to like just read stuff and do their job. That's you, journalists, talking to you. And as well, that's all the major institutions which are busy crumbling. And I've lost so much respect. I really have none left for the CDC, the FDA, the NIH. These people are complicit in really bad outcomes that are very hard to explain through just simple negligence and incompetence. Always willing to be shown that's the case. I think it goes further than that. Let's talk about that now and let's go here. So today's episode, I want to talk about how I think COVID-19, the disease, was completely avoidable. Why? Because SARS-CoV-2 came out of a lab and by the way, didn't have to. We could, we humans could have not done that and that would have been awesome, which means it didn't have to be this way. Now, why do I care? Because if we can't get this right, we're going to get a lot of other things wrong. And there's some really big predicaments coming around the world. This is what I'm going to be talking about in part two of this 
for my subscribers back at Peak Prosperity, which is what does this mean around the Ukraine invasion, energy prices, mounting food, mounting food prices, inflation, uh, all these things. What do those have to do with this topic? Everything. Because bad decision making and bad narratives at one end of the spectrum usually means you got bad narratives, bad decision making at the other end of the spectrum. So let's go there. And my overriding concern for you is, come on, let's not be rats in a cage here. Rats in a cage, if you're not familiar with this framework, posits that uh, builds on all this research, I should say, that says that uh, if you put two rats in a cage and you shock them through their feet and they can't escape because they can't figure out where the shocks are coming from, they end up identifying the other rat as the source of their pain. And so they fight. Now, how do you avoid being a rat in a cage? Well, this is where everything I do comes in and where you come in as well is it's this simple. What do we do? We educate ourselves on the true source of the shocks. And then you got to take action about that, right? Because there are ways to minimize what those shocks are. By the way, key word for this year is going to be resilience. The key ways we're going to get to resilience individually and as communities is first by educating ourselves, second by taking action. And the key steps in that are going to be forming communities of people who are like-minded and we have to come together the people who can't get this, who won't get this, who don't want to get this, that's fine. They're going to have whatever outcomes they have. But for you, you really need to start thinking about how you're going to become more resilient. I need to think about that more, too. I'm pretty resilient, but always could be more because things are coming that are, are pretty, pretty dark here. So instead of fighting like rats in a cage like we see here, by the way, uh, probably can't see with that gas mask on, but that Canadian not even sure what to call that. Is that a policeman? I don't even know what that is. No name badge, no identifying stuff, fully kitted out and thousands of dollars of unisuit with batons. But that mask probably is preventing him from seeing that he's stepping, walking on the Canadian flag right there. Sure, it's an oversight. But you can see the, the these uh, protesters down here. They just want to be heard. They're kneeling to, or taking a knee and we're still treated pretty roughly um, by the Ottawa police who, well, they're going to have to live with that on their own. So, Maybe we should really be asking ourselves at this stage of COVID across all these different countries, why two years of our lives were lost and why so many people died? We really should be asking that. I think before we say, oh, you know, we can't lift the mask mandate and we're going to have to take a knee and the police are going to be beating and gassing us and riding over us with horses because the power structures, the Canadian government through that horrifyingly bad Justin Trudeau. What a terrible leader. Oh, my God. I'm not going to give an inch. You guys, we're going to beat you, stomp you, and do everything else besides just notice that there's no scientific rationale whatsoever for mask mandates. If Justin Trudeau put even one-tenth of the effort into being curious about why we have this virus in the first place, maybe we'd get somewhere, and maybe we could prevent that from happening again in the future, and maybe even hold the people responsible accountable. Because that's the only way anything ever changes in the society. If people are not held to account, nothing changes. The old saying is, power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. What does that mean, absolute power? Well, absolute power is power without consequence. That's the king. The king can just stab a servant or do whatever they want and nothing happens. So guess what? Their behavior gets worse and worse and worse because that's a human trait. I would behave very terribly under absolute power. You would behave badly under absolute power. It's just how we're built. Let's not pretend we're any better. But let's also not pretend that leaders who do terrible things and people in positions of power who do awful things and don't have any consequences for that, let's not pretend that somehow 
they just, you know, magically will get better because they won't. Consequences. So this is a really cool article. Uh, Sharon Lerner writing here for The Intercept says uh, the NIH sent The Intercept uh, 292 fully redacted pages relating to virus research in Wuhan. Uh, This just comes to us February of 2022. Let me get my drawing tool out here. Yep. So um, didn't get it yet. Now I got it. All right. Uh, Yeah, this just comes to us very recently here, February 20th. And the NIH continues to withhold critical documents that could shed light on the origin of the coronavirus pandemic. So let's go here. Um, Opening paragraph from this. No, I think I pulled this a few paragraphs down. With the global death toll from COVID-19 approaching 6 million, the need to understand the origins of the pandemic is both pressing and grave. But... The National Institutes of Health continues to withhold critical documents that could shed light on this question. This week, in response to ongoing litigation over public records related to coronavirus research funded by the federal agency, the NIH sent The Intercept 292 fully redacted pages rather than substantive material that could help us understand how the virus first came to infect humans. Well... I'm going to help us understand that a little bit better, and we'll go there. Continuing on here in this article, quote, Some of these releases have proven newsworthy. The grant proposals received in an initial batch of documents in September revealed that scientists working under the grant in Wuhan were engaged in what most knowledgeable experts we consulted described as gain-of-function experiments in which scientists created mutant bat coronaviruses and used them to infect humanized mice. The mutant viruses proved more pathogenic and transmissible in the mice than the original viruses. That's called gain-of-function. It's exactly what gain-of-function is. We're going to make this virus have better functions. It's going to gain the ability to better infect human cells. Um, That's exactly what it is. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, denied that the U.S. had funded gain-of-function work in Wuhan. (sighs) He's pulling one of those, um, what what is the meaning of the word is? You know, it's a Bill Clinton moment. He's just, he's lying through his teeth. It's obvious. We all know that. He knows that. Everybody knows this. Um, So, of course, this is rather frustrating. Carrying on here in this article, I think the NIH is now hiding something. But, of course, I do think that when people won't show something to you, that's the actual definition of hiding. No, you can't see my whole cards here in Texas Hold'em. I'm hiding them from you. That's how it is. All right, quote, but the most recent batch of documents which the NIH sent, the Intercept on Tuesday, underscores an ongoing lack of transparency at the agency, even as members of Congress and scientists, as members of Congress, And scientists call for additional information that could shed light on the origins of the pandemic. 292 of 314 pages. 292 of 314. More than 90% of the current release were completely redacted. Besides a big gray rectangle that obscures any meaningful text, the pages only show a date, a page number, and the NIAID logo. The remaining pages also contain significant redactions so 
this is what a page might look like. This is one that's not completely redacted. And so we'll see here, you can see who it's from. You can see the date of this. So this is April 15th, 2020, very early in the pandemic. They're already busy scrambling around this whole thing. This is a request for a call, FYI, urgent. Now we're going to notice some things here. First, these are called B6 FOIA exemptions. I'll tell you what those mean in a second. This whole big gray area down here, that's a B5, okay? Um, all that's redacted, and then at the bottom, all we get to read is this, whatever this in that rest of it up there, this is for convenience. And I have some ideas waiting to hear back from Emily, and we'll set up time to talk to Jody tomorrow. So you'll we'll see a lot of these names uh, as you dig through the emails if you do that. Um, there's a lot of very familiar names in here. Emily, uh, very uh, responsible for gain-of-function kind of stuff inside the NIH and has yet to really account for what she was up to in this whole process. So let's first talk about exemptions B4 and B6. We'll see these today. B4 is an exemption pulled out when they feel like trade secrets and commercial or financial information obtained from a person and privileged or confidential inter- or intra-agency memorandums or letters would not be available by law to a party other than an agency in litigation with the agency. So it's trade secrets. You know, if they say, hey, you know, uh, we'd really like you to know about our proprietary, da 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 and they're trying to, you know, companies communicating with um, the NIH around that, they would get a B4 around that. A B6 permits the government to withhold all information about individuals, personnel, medical files, similar files. So it would constitute an unwarranted invasion of personal privacy. So they felt pretty strongly that people's emails inside the government would represent too strong of an invasion of their privacy. Not sure I agree with that. Also, they didn't bother to redact the emails of people who weren't government employees. So you can clearly see the, the bias there, like, oh, we're important. Um, maybe not these other people. So that's pretty clear. Now, let's get to the famous B5 exemption. B5 is where all the action is. And Muckrock does a great job talking about this. This is an article all the way back from 2014. Um, this is awesome. Uh, the Federal Election Commission B5'd it argues that it can't tell you why it can't tell you what it can't tell you. The FEC cited B5 exemption to withhold a B5 exemption guidelines. They're like, we're going to B5 what our guidelines are for when we use a B5. Cool, right? The only problem was uh, they had already posted those guidelines on their website. So they were denied the ability to B5, the B5 explanations that had already been released publicly. Uh, but that's just how absurd this stuff goes goes down. Um so here's another example of, of a B5. This is a gem. So this got b 5 This whole area down here, something was blocked out of this memorandum. And this was, uh, this was about, um, uh, what was this? This was, yeah, this is a expressing the sense of the House of Representatives that Pakistan should be designated as a state sponsor of terrorism. So somebody wrote something down there or something happened. And so... Uh, somebody fought to get this released, and it got released eventually. And what did they write there? They wrote, what a bunch of crap. That, that's, that's what got B5'd. So the B5 uh, translates in government speak to like uh, anything that's slightly embarrassing. right? Writing, what a bunch of crap. Somebody said, well, that's embarrassing. We wouldn't want Pakistan to know that we think this, or we wouldn't want somebody to know that we write language like that, because that's very undecorous. I don't know what. So that's what the B5 is. So here's how the B5... Um, 
Uh, again, uh, from Muckrock, uh, this is from 2018, they have a Sunshine Act kind of uh, activities there. And so they said, with Sunshine Week just around the corner, we want to count down the days to our favorite time of the year and take a closer look at what's going on behind the black bars. The nine federal FOIA exemptions, B1 through B9, exemption name B5. B5, here's the technical language on it. It exempts from disclosure inter- and intra-agency memoranda or letters that would not be available by law to a party other than an agency in litigation with the agency. So you could look at it as like, oh, B5 means that this is information, that there's already some sort of legal action around it. Nah, it's otherwise known as uh, the withhold it because you want to exemption. Now, anytime you just can't really think of a good reason you b5 it so why is that important because all those pages that were redacted looked like this here's some pages that were released through foia uh, from a public agency which by the way the nih is not supposed to or shouldn't have any activities that are related to defense secrets um you know national security they're a health agency, so for them to be five, this much material tells us they're just really embarrassed about something. Um, so 292 pages, pretty much just all B5. So that tells me they're hiding something. The NIH is hiding something, and they're hiding something that's related to, of course, whatever their involvement was with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Now, this is really important, germane information. You deserve an answer to it. The whole world deserves an answer to it. We all, the whole world, needs to know what exactly was going on in Wuhan at the Institute of Virology. And I think we do have a pretty good idea now. We do know. All right. So, um, by the way, in that uh, Intercept article, they did mention the main grant, which I'd looked up before. By the way, I'd pulled this up last year, and it was no problem. But today, when I went there for that um, grant number, which is this one here, ROIA110964 in Google, I, it came up, it was like no results. But now just like bad results. We're like, we, never, we got nothing. No results. But they did helpfully say, oh, maybe there was a space there. Your search didn't do this. D did you mean one with a space in there? You know, how about that one? So sure. So I gave put the space in there and ah, that didn't help either. <laughs> Thanks, Google. But uh, all that tells me when, when Google won't give me a search result, I know what to do. You know what to do by now, hopefully. We all know what to do. And uh, what is that? Uh, you go over to DuckDuckGo. Um, and, of course, found something right away over on DuckDuckGo. So once we went into that grant, though, and we find this grant here, this um, 110964, when we look into that grant a little bit more, I, I reread it again today, and I found some stuff I didn't see before. So the list of all sub-awardees on this grant, right? So once you find the grant, you find out this is the grant that the NIH administered. They gave it to Peter Dazak, the EcoHealth Alliance. They funneled money to a variety of parties. Who are those parties? Those Some of them are called sub-awardees. One of them, of course, was the Wuhan Institute of Virology in yellow. So, yeah. Uh, we know that the NIH was busy shoveling money to EcoHealth Alliance, which was busy doing work with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. That's already an established fact. I know it's embarrassing, but hey, maybe we should put a little sunlight as disinfectant on that and take a quick peek at what's going on there, because whatever went there really didn't work out well. Um, and so, as they said here in this main grant here, the Wuhan Institute of Virology said, quote, this site is the main virology lab for the project. Not a lab, the main virology lab for the project. 
So it wasn't like this is a sub-awardee and we're just, you know, we're going to do a little work here and there and they've got some specialty expertise over here. This grant was going to be mainly conducted through the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, they say here, quote, they received field samples from sites in China and used sequencing to identify the presence of animal coronaviruses. They also characterized any isolated viruses to determine the host receptor binding and other in vitro and in vivo characterization. That's loaded sentence, that last part. We're going to do some other stuff. I'll show you what some of that was in just a second. But the thing I hadn't caught before was this. The Institute of Pathology and Bi Pathogen Biology in China, quote, this site manages the human subject work to understand and study human exposure to animal coronaviruses, including the sampling, serology, and questionnaires administered after acute illness. So... I didn't realize they were a sub-awardee, too. Good question. Why is the NIH awarding money to the Institute of Pathogen Biology in China? Good question, right? Kind of cool to get the answer to that. And as well, in sort of a pinkish, brickish color down there, maybe matches my jacket today, uh, Duke NUS in Singapore, the collaborator at Duke NUS will act as a consultant on the project and provide her expertise on serological testing, virus characterization, PCR detection viruses. Her. Duke. This reminds me of what this work I did um, in 2021. Yeah, um, this is from September 2021 when I was looking at the key moments in the lab leak cover-up and noted that the Lancet here put on a COVID-19 commission to determine the origins, right? And it was a little awkward because they made Peter Dazak um, one of the task force members. In fact, he was the leading the whole effort for the Lancet. Way to go, Lancet. He's shredding all of your credibility. Hey, you did publish those fraudulent studies from Surgisphere, and you put together a task member to look into where these coronaviruses might come from, and you put on the committee not one, but two of the direct rewardees from and subawardees from that main grant, including this woman down here, Danielle Anderson, who is scientific director of uh, ABSL3 Laboratory. That's the Duke NUS Medical School in Singapore. And Australia, um, she, I remember her name because there was this MSN article that came out and they wrote, uh, Dr. Danielle Anderson, Australian researcher who was reportedly the only foreign scientist to have conducted research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology's BSL-4 lab in the weeks leading up to the first known cases of COVID-19 were detected in China has said what people are saying is just not how it is. She was very instrumental in throwing shade on the lab leak thing and pushing hard to make sure that people understood it might have had a nat probably had a natural origin, when, all of that. So um, here's a tip. You can't put people on an investigatory, investigatory task force who are most likely in the culprit list or could even seem to be in the culprit list. You can't you can't do that. But the Lancet did. And of course, so did the WHO. Just, just some of the awkwardness that, that's happened of late. Of course, this is why I think all this is really actually was avoidable. Don't take the same people who created the disaster and then ask them to investigate themselves and come up with a conclusion as to whether they might have caused the disaster. You're never going to get an answer you want out of that. All right. So, again, uh, as I mentioned, DuckDuckGo DuckDuckGo found this um, particular grant. No problemo. Came right up with it. There it is. Right there. 
R01AI110964. Remember, um, yeah, Google couldn't find it. It's just like, nah, we can't, there's, don't, don't know where that came from. So anyway, but DuckDuckGo found it. And when we look into this a little bit more, um, I guess I got to tell you this part of it. Um, so this is a bit of the, the side story. Here, here's where it gets interesting. This is I'm doing my little investigatory, prosecutorial look into this thing. When I go here and I look into this um, book that came out a while ago, I believe this is 2015 book, go to chapter five. Kind of a boring title as they usually are in science speak. Efficient reverse genetic systems for rapid genetic manipulation of emergent and pre-emergent infectious coronaviruses. We see Cockrell, Beale, Yount, and Barrick, Ralph Barrick on there. Now, again, these are all people who've been monkeying around with coronaviruses good and hard. And what really caught my attention from this book was this figure that they put in here. Oop, let me move this down again. Um, so what I'll, you'll note here is they're saying each of these along this timeline here that stretches out left to right. Back here in 2000, they say they created the first infectious clones uh, with coronaviruses. And there's the papers. You see Yount's name on there as a pri as a primary author. This is in the year 2000. These are the first years they started to monkey around and create more infectious clones using this chimeric and genetic engineering technologies, right, where you take pieces from different coronaviruses and you put them together. A really, you know, strong, stable backbone and a receptor binding domain that tends to go into human cells. That was in 2000. Then in 2001, uh, Teal et al. Uh, were, you know, found a HCOV 229E infectious clone. So they're working out the cloning thing. And then MHV, the 859 infectious clone by Yount et al. in 2002. And then, oops, later in 2002 was SARS-CoV, the first time that thing just popped out. Um, and then some more monkeying around with SARS-CoV infectious clones and doing some stuff with HKU1 and NL63 and they're finding the SARS-like back coronaviruses, and then, oops, 2012, MERS-CoV comes out. And then MERS-CoV, and then there's um, these other two that pop out, and then coming along until finally, if 2016, we'd have to go out to 2019, where SARS-CoV-2 pops out. The thing I noticed about this right away was that there were no pandemic. There were no pandemic coronaviruses prior to lab work beginning in the year 2000. So before these characters here began monkeying around in the lab and doing stuff and creating their fancy little chimeras, I'm sure it was very interesting, engaging work and all of that. And they built great careers off of it, got a lot of money and did things like that and, and um, uh, got all the things scientists want and need. <laughs> the nutrients for a scientist are giving talks and getting grants and, you know, having your having your ego stroked and all of that. But um, isn't that odd that we didn't have any... The, pandemics with these things before this crew started monkeying around with these things. Um, and by the way, same crew that was very instrumental in telling us convincingly, of course, all through 2000, that uh, this thing must have, SARS-CoV-2 must have come from a natural origin. And as well, a little help from Facebook and other friends who uh, banned any talk about lab leak or lab origin for this thing for all of 2020 and a good chunk of 2021. All right. This is from Drastic, the organization, um, and a collection of people. They had a whistleblower release of a DARPA grant that EcoHealth Alliance and Peter Dazak had submitted in 2018. And this is the defusal, defuse proposal from 2018. And what's really interesting in here, 
is that what they did is um, went really so much further. That earlier uh, grant that we're seeing is actually from 2014. 2018, they'd learned so much more. And so what did they plan to do here? Well, you can see their little uh, graphical flow here. So they want to predict SARS-CoV um, jump potential. And so they're going to find these sars like things and coronaviruses and then they're going to select some of them that have this human infection potential they're going to look at the spike similarity there then they're going to create the spike trimer structures by adding some together they're going to then screen for ace2 interaction human ace2 interaction then they construct construct chimera viruses best pieces you know it's like the best of like you know greatest hits right and they put all that together and then they evaluate expression in vitro and in vivo remember i said that term before i can tell you about that it's a very catchy little term when they evaluate expression in vitro and in vivo what they're really saying is we're going to be looking at um how these things infect humanized mice what's a humanized mouse well they take the mouse and they take its gene structure and they take out a gene for ace2 so it doesn't have a gene for ace2 anymore and then they take a human ace2 gene and park it in that mouse now the mouse can live again because it has an ace2 but it's a human ace2 receptor it doesn't have mouse anymore so that's what they meant there so that's what they were proposing to do and from this proposal which by the way darpa refused to fund because they said this thing is nuts i'm translating a little bit but they're like no thanks we don't like the look of this thing and they were right to turn it down just set off their alarm bells they said let's not do this i'm pretty sure this is the work that got done anyway somehow so reading all the way down through this uh uh proposal of theirs look at this part here in green after receptor binding, a variety of self-surface or endosomal proteases cleave the SARS-CoV-S glycoprotein, causing massive changes in S structure and activating fusion-mediated entry. Mouthful, what does it mean? Viruses are on the outside of your cell. They have to get inside. Here's the problem. Things can't just go into a cell. Those membranes are really tough and durable, and they've got a voltage potential on them, and they just keep things away like a two magnets they are like nope you're not coming in here so those membrane hot the for the virus has to defeat the membrane that's what it has to get in it has to figure out a way to get into or through that membrane so one of the things is that furin cleavage site that protease cleavage site it needs that and it needs that because that triggers a change in the s protein a mechanical change that forces these two things together so Let's take a look at that. This is what it looks like. So we have a little GIF here. And this would be the, down here would be the cell surface. And up here would be the virus particle, okay? And let's watch what happens as this, these two things, these are little, um, these would be the place that would get cleaved, in essence, these green structures right here by the protease. And so as it starts, starts like this, the protease would cleave it. This folding happens, it pulls these two things together, and now the membranes have fused. So that clip happens, and then it pulls them together. And so the membrane, all those little white balls down there, those are phospholipids. This is like seen at like super, super duper magnification. Obviously, it's a computer mock-up, but um, that's what it would look like. So that's the whole process there. That's why you need, without that, without those proteins going through that conformational change to pull those membranes together, They'll just be stuck there. It'll be bound to the receptor, but it's not getting in um, through this process. So they knew very early on that having these proteases, the furins, the cathepsins, the trypsins, those are proteases. They proteases cut things. So the proteases would cut the proteins 
on the S protein, create that change, and then that would help drive this fusogenic process, as they say. All right. Let's carry on. Uh, continuing in yellow, we will analyze, they proposed here, uh, all SARS-CoV gene sequences for appropriately conserved proteolytic cleavage sites in S2 and for the presence of potential furin cleavage sites. Oh, remember in 2020 when I and other people were going, what's with that polybasic furin cleavage site? Let's look at the furin cleavage site. And and all these virologists, including Dayzak, were out there saying, oh, you're nuts. Nobody, nobody would even suspect that. Nobody knew about those things. They did. Oh, yeah, they did. They knew all about them. They knew all about them here, and they were proposing to do them. And then they, they went on and said, oh, but nobody would have used that weird sequence that was found in there. But... I'm going to show you that somebody had already thought of that sequence before, too. So it's all starting to stack up here. By the way, I'm going to give you Martinson's maxim. It goes like this. If somebody says they're going to do something and then it happens, they probably did it. I know it's crazy, but that's how I live. <laughs> that's that's my maxim. So uh, at any rate, the science is beginning to stack up. Here's a paper that just came out um, on 21st of February, 2022. So very recently, it's actually yesterday as, in terms of this recording. And uh, again, one of these funny big titles up here. Um, but really what they're looking at is they're looking at where did this furin cleavage site come from? A really nice piece of work here by these folks down here. Um, so we have Ambadi, uh, Barshne, Lundstrom, Paulu, Hall. Versky and Brufsky. So um, you can see here's the link. And at any rate, what they found was that the sequence that gives us that PRRA, the, the PRRA is the four amino acids, comes from a longer stretch of RNA that's in the virus. So the question is, where did that RNA come from? So they went into the larger, the system where all the genes of all the different organisms are kept. And they said, does anybody else have this? Because normally the way it goes is organisms don't make up brand new sequences on their own. They beg, borrow and steal them from somewhere else. It's just how it is. It's much easier. It's very hard to come up with a new sequence that works. So uh, they often have to come from somewhere. So they said, well, is there another virus that has this exact sequence? And the answer is no. Nowhere do we find a virus with that sequence. Is there any other cell out there, squids even, something? Nope, we can't find anybody with that exact sequence. So they asked the question, where to come from? And here's the punchline from the end of this paper. It's a very complicated paper. I'll, I'll let you read it if you want. This is the string of letters here in the RNA that uh, code for that furin cleavage site. So they wrote here the absence of that string from any eukaryotic uh, eukaryotes are, are bacteria are not eukaryotes eukaryotes are everything from amoeba to sperm whales it's everything on, on our side of the branch not the bacterial side so the absence of that string from any eukaryotic or viral genome in the blast database that's the huge database of all the genetic um, things that have ever been sequenced in the world makes recombination in an intermediate host an unlikely explanation for its presence in SARS-CoV-2. <laughs> Makes unlikely. They're, they're downplaying that quite heavily. Uh, it's good science speak. You, you, you make sure you're, you make fully defensible statements. It's not just unlikely. It's closing in on impossibly unlikely. So the question, though, is, is there, does that string of letters actually appear anywhere? I just told you it doesn't appear in the eukaryotic cells, but 
The answer is, yeah, you can find that string of letters. You can find it in one place. Um, you can find it in a string of patents by Moderna Therapeutics. Um, you've probably heard of that company. Of course, they make the mRNA vaccine, and they were able to produce that very, very quickly. Uh, so it's kind of interesting, and this is a synthetic construct. So this right here would be the kind of thing where if we lived in an attack functioning culture, there would be powerful people like senators and congressmen and, and, and prosecutors and whatever saying, we need to have an answer to this. We need to understand how it is that your patented string of letters, Moderna, managed to make it into this pandemic virus over here. That would be a really cool thing for us to understand. We need to understand that. Was it random chance? Because if it was, we need to understand how that random chance came about. If it wasn't random chance, we need some answers. Um, so that's uh, where that study goes. Now, this was from a May 4, 2020 update. I was directing journalists back then. Always be looking at the PRRA. This is that polybasic furin cleavage site. It's this little string, excuse me, right here. It, it's missing in all the other closest relatives. It's just missing. It's an insert. It's not like some letters got scrambled and changed. It's an insert. Inserts, that was the smoking gun for me that when I went and looked at this back in May 4th, I was like, these people here, this main paper written by Christian Anderson here was full of junk because it was in nature and they tried very hard to argue really early on in this whole thing back in early 2020. I know it says 17th of March, but they wrote this paper within a few days after that famous meeting with... Um, NIH, Collins, and, and Fauci and all of that. And they said, oh, this thing had to have come from nature. I'm like, no, it didn't. No, it didn't. You didn't account for this furin cleaver site. And they said, oh, well, you know, there's there's some other viruses that have that, not with that string of letters. And they knew it. And they knew it. And they knew it. And they knew it. Because um, that's their job. If I knew it, and that wasn't my job, they could have known it. But maybe they didn't have a Comcast connection. You know what I mean? At any rate, um, May 1st as well, I was just like, please, 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 everybody just watch out for that PRA thing because um, it's really important. Now, this thing is lab-made. I'm 99.99% positive about that at this point in time. By May 12th, I'd already figured out you know, a possible method for this, which I actually, now that I reviewed it a couple years later almost, I'm going to say, yeah, this seems about right. Um, they had a backbone of some kind from some virus. Their thing, maybe it's the RATG13. Maybe it's different. I'm, I'm not so sure about the provenance of rat G13, but we'll see. But they had some, they had a starting point. They had something that they used as the backbone. And then they, I think they put the pangolin receptor binding domain because it has perfect alignment with the actual one that we're facing right now. And then they added this polybasic furin cleavage site. They cycled it over and over and over again in cell culture. It's always possible that this polybasic furin site came from um, its exposure to this cell culture here. And possibility and this of course amplifies the gain to function and then i think they put it into animal models it could have been ferrets could have been mice could have been both i don't know but um here it is now and and this is this is the world we live in i still think this is pretty close to what happened again how is it possible that i figured this out in may of 2020 and even now the world is you know still struggling to get anything from the nih like do you guys know anything they're like b5 <laughs> It's just they're guilty as all get out. But isn't it kind of weird? I got to ask this. Isn't it kind of kind of weird that the very same outfit that's blocking inquiry into the source of COVID is the same organization that blocked all use of an inquiry into early treatments? I mean, as of even this morning, if you go to the NIH website for treatment guidelines on COVID, it still says there's really nothing we can do on an early basis. They've got some monoclonal antibodies. Maybe they'll use remdesivir early now on an outpatient basis. 
and they're looking at putting in maybe some other stuff from from Merck and, and from Pfizer. But but it's but we had so many other things. They still don't have a point of view on vitamin D. How is that even possible? How how is how is it possible that the NIH has given us B five on the one side about where this came from and can't come up with an opinion about vitamin D on the other side with mountains of evidence? Isn't this their job? But if this isn't their job, what is their job? What are they doing? Uh, so at any rate, um, if you wanted to defund something and really make an impact, don't defund the police. Defund the NIH uh, because that's the only way you ever get somebody's attention. There has to be a consequence. There has to be a consequence. There has to be a consequence for being this evasive and this bad at your job if you think that's your job. So that's where I am on that. Um, by the way, we are uh, going to go over to part two two now and this is over going to be found over at my website i'm going to be talking about how this whole thing where it's now time to put your resilience preparations in overdrive because there's all kinds of stuff going on now and it is uh things are getting pretty pretty interesting out there we got ukraine going on we've got of course inflation raging wait till you see what's going on in the energy space all of this combines including with the idea that maybe there's going to be a generalized trucker strike um, and or, you know, the people who are being sort of not sort of, but the people who are being oppressed who actually do all the work in the society uh, might uh, decide to, to go on some sort of a, a walk away uh, from their jobs and all of that. So you put all of these things together. It's a huge period of change. And it's very clear that there's an agenda running out there right now. It's very, very clear that all of us have to be prepared for the idea that things are about to change really strongly disruptively so this is what i'm going to be talking about over here um later as uh if you follow over at peak prosperity why and what what are these preparations we talk about um and so that's really all i have for you today but just to remind you hey this is what i do in the world i find stuff early i find it before other people find it again it's very easy. I don't have conflicts of interest and I care a lot about figuring these things out. And so that's what I do for all of my subscribers who support all of my effort and my team over at Peak Prosperity. We figure out stuff and get it to you early because we think that information and education that's actionable is actually the most important stuff today. So if you come to Peak Prosperity, become a subscriber. I'm your personal information scout. I'm out there every day trying to figure out what's going on in the world. This is what I dedicate all of my time to because you don't have time for that. I do. So that's what I do and um, love to have you come on by, become part of the tribe because, well, banding together is going to be one of the most important attributes for this year and next. So that's where we are in all of this and um, it's been great talking with you again today. It didn't have to be this way. He's correct. It really didn't have to be this way. I want to get, <clears throat> obviously I've mentioned this many times and it should be back in a minute, but until he gets back, this is from Whitney Webb. And this is her, I think two or three part series, Moderna, a company in need of a Hail Mary. I think this is part two of COVID-19 Moderna gets its miracle. So before COVID, let me just read some of the subtitles here before COVID-19, Moderna was in danger, or subtext, I should say. Moderna was in danger of hemorrhaging investors as persistent safety concerns and other doubts about its mRNA delivery system threatened its entire product pipeline. Fear caused by the pandemic crisis made those concerns largely evaporate, even though there is no proof that they were ever resolved. 
And so she goes on to say, I'm just going to quote like two or three paragraphs here just to give people context. And I've mentioned this before we got on the show card many times, but it's important in light of this new evidence that's emerged about the fact that Moderna in 2015 had a patent for that fern cleavage site. Well, that's fascinating. Not to mention the patents going back to the early 2000s, you know, sort of, and I, I find David Martin to be a dubious individual, but you know, that's stuff that he's been saying for quite some time as well, that they've already genetically sequenced this stuff. There's patents around it, patents around the techniques of doing gain of function. This has been going on for the past two decades. Uh, I think he actually dates it going back to the late 1990s. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's strange because now emerging this week in the mainstream narrative is like, uh, and I will show this in a second, uh, talking about Stefan Bonsell being questioned about why there is this genetic sequence inside Moderna's mRNA technology and why it's, you know, been patented. Now we know there's a conflict of interest. When he asked the question, the NIH blocks emails B4, B5, B6, and B5 for the redaction codes, you have, uh, it, poo-poo's all forms of treatment, including all, including vitamin D, even up to now, which is just absurd. Um, it won't talk about anything like ivermectin. It sort of is, it's, uh, what's the word? I'm mean, sort of equivocatory, uh, around the issue of, uh, monoclonal antibodies. They work, they don't work, they work, they don't work. You know, it depends on the strain. It depends on the type of monoclonal antibody it gets all very confusing and it has rights to the patent, which not only the, or I should say the NIH has some ownership of that patent as well. They gain, they, uh, have royalties associated with the MRNA, uh, Moderna patent. So the NIH is getting a kickback for this, obviously, as well as pretty much any other treatment like remdesivir, which has no efficacy yet. They've been promoting that the NIA idea, I think specifically has, uh, gets royalties for that one, which is under as in the, uh, underneath the NIH. Anyways, let's go back to the point here. Um, this comes again from Whitney Webb and the title of the article, and this is the first one in a two-part series, I believe. And this comes from October 7th, 2021. Uh, Moderna, a company in need of a Hail Mary. So scrolling down, not only did the COVID-19 crisis obliterate hurdles that had previously prevented Moderna from taking a single product to market, it also dramatically reversed the company's fortunes. Indeed, from 2016, right up, until the emergence of COVID-19, Moderna could barely hold it together as it was shedding key executives, top talent, and major investors at an alarming rate. Essentially, Moderna's promise of quote-unquote revolutionizing medicine and the remarkable salesmanship and fundraising capabilities of the company's top executive, Stefan Bonsell. Real quick, Stefan Bonsell has been progressively selling all his shares in Moderna, I think finally relinquishing any ownership, and he's completely nuked his Twitter account as of the past couple of weeks. And we, we got that on the show card or got that on the record a couple of weeks ago. Now back to uh, Whitney Webb. Were the main forces keeping it afloat in the years leading up to the COVID-19 crisis, Moderna's promises, despite Bonsell's efforts, rang increasingly hollow as the company's longstanding penchant for extreme secrecy meant that despite nearly a decade in business, they had never been able to definitively prove that it could deliver the quote-unquote revolution. It had continually assured investors was right around the corner. This was compounded by major issues with patents held by a hostile competitor that threatened Moderna's ability to turn a profit on anything it might manage to take to market, as well as major issues with its mRNA delivery system that led them to abandon any treatment that would require more than one dose because of toxicity concerns. The latter issue, though largely forgotten and or ignored by media today, 
should be a major topic in the COVID-19 booster debate, so forth and so on. Here's the last one I want to get on the record. In this first installment of a two-part series, the dire situation which Moderna found itself immediately prior to the emergence of COVID-19 is discussed in detail, revealing that Moderna, very much like the now disgraced company uh, the, Thanatos, it's not pronounced Theranos, um, but that's how it reads, Theranos, but I know that's not how it's pronounced. Had long been a house of cards with sky-high valuations completely disconnected from reality. Part two will explore how that reality would have come crashing down sometime in 2020 or 2020, 2021 were it not for the advent of the COVID-19 crisis and Moderna's subsequent partnership with the U.S. government and the highly unusual processes involving its vaccines development and approval. Despite the emergence of real-world data challenging the claims that Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine is safe and effective, Moderna's booster is being rushed through by some governments, while others have recently banned the vaccine's use in young adults and teens due to safety concerns. So the bigger point here, though, is they needed a Hail Mary. Now, let's not forget the Milken Institute, right? So we go back and remember what was communicated during that. Uh, and that was in 2019. And Rich, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure that was in 2019. At the same year in which Trump signs the Vaccine Modernization Act. So we had the Milken Institute saying, you know, Fauci sitting on there. And I forget the other individuals, but they're prominent in either epidemiologists or important figures within virology and uh, vaccine research, stating if only there was a worse pandemic or only there was a, yeah, if only, yeah, if only there was a pandemic that was worse in scope that we could finally bring up to date the vaccine technology no longer will be this viral vector technology. It'll be this MRNA technology. Well, they just so happen to have patents and been researching this pat this stuff for the past 20 years, Pfizer as well. So Whitney Webb mentions competitors. That's also true. Uh, I shouldn't say Pfizer, but BioNTech to be specific is the company that's actually developing this technology. And they were in a similar situation where their department that was uh, tasked with R&D developing mRNA technology was also hurting with investors because they weren't able to bring anything to market. It was unlikely that anything would emerge because of the safety issues that uh, would allow this to be brought to market. Except, of course, there was this miracle that happened called COVID-19. And all of a sudden, there's this one-size-fits-all solution. Well, the NIH sits there and says there's no treatments, early treatments. Hell, you can't even vitamin D. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about going out in the sun. Don't worry about getting exercise. Don't worry about doing anything. Just stay at home. Get super sick. Come in. We'll put your arm on Desivir, and uh, we'll get you intubated with an oxygen machine. And then, uh, you know, wait for the miracle vaccine. So to summarize, <clears throat> the NIH... They're all out of D3, but they got plenty of B5. <laughs> the other thing I wanted Fantastic. to point out was Chris Martinson uh, mentioned how Facebook helped to like poo-poo the early treatments. And I couldn't help but recall that right before Mark Zuckerberg came on the scene to manage Facebook, DARPA had just closed the project called LifeLog. Mm -hmm, the same great... time that they open up Facebook. It was like two months after. Or it was like they just changed like the name. Yeah. And went live with him and he's the front man for the operation of metaverse. There's also hey. someone in the chat here, like on the zoom ones, not the other. I don't, but, um, said something about a connection. Uh, Jimmy Wales. Was yeah, also yeah. That's Wikipedia. Wikipedia. That's Wikipedia. He's connected with Sergey. And uh, the Google guys, and I'm trying to yeah. remember the connection where they oh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and one of the Google guys went to summer camp together, probably for the world economic forum. Yeah. That's what I think what the connection was. I have to, I'm going scrolling through, but I think you're right. Yeah. Something of that nature. So young future leaders of the world. I got something for you. 
because um, <clears throat> you know Chris talked a lot about documents in there and some of those uh, documents that were there was 295 fully redacted pages from the NIH and um, I'm one of the nerds that reads those pages even though they're redacted mostly uh, you know and goes through I printed out some of them so I'm going to show you what I'm talking about but I found this when I went to get this other uh, the awardees for that that grant that, that he just went yeah. through. Right. Yeah. I found this, this is from the uh, office of the director of national intelligence, national intelligence council. It's the IC intelligence council. This was early on. This was like a year ago, but they're, they're assessing with low confidence that the initial SARS CoV-2 infection uh caused by natural exposure with animals <laughs> moderate confidence that the first human infection was most likely a result of a laboratory associated incident at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. <laughs> right. So they're like treading softly about it even back oh, yeah. then. But um, you know, that's not, that's not what we're here for. That's not what we're here for. Let me go back, zoom out over here. This is what we're looking at. <clears throat> this is part of the, uh, the intercept FOIA, request uh response type situation so chris martinson just went over in great detail this particular grant there's more than one there's 2014 and 2019 and then i also uh tweeted the 2020 to 2025 i think it was mm -hmm. ld if you look at my twitter from last week i had all these documents that chris was just covering i had tweeted them out uh if you'd find the one that pertains to uh me pointing out the NIH and Tony Fauci were still funding Wuhan lab and well, eco health. Alliance. And the Chinese are building new BSL three and four laboratories as we speak. Yeah. So, so it's not like it, it stopped. It's, this isn't going away. So we better yeah. learn the history of what's going on right now. Correct. Um, all right. So if we go, uh, I'm going to go full screen on this like this, we can see some of these blacked out parts, right? So <clears throat> I'm going to take this chronological page stack and i'm going to read it from the bottom up because that's how emails work right we don't want to read the most recent thread we're like what's going on that drove this thread that led to all these other redactions so if i go to let's, let's do it live doing live do i need to zoom out april 13th 2020 2 36 p.m <laughs> You zoom in a little bit. It's a lot of yeah, focus. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah. Let's do. Yeah, that's good. That's perfect. Or yeah, and that too. And I'll just move the page as I go there. Yeah. Right. All right. So this is the this is the last email that I printed out. Now I just chose like five of the pages that I was finding to be interesting. I was like, let's just print these. So this is how we're going to do it. The subject on April thirteenth, twenty twenty. Laura, NIH funding Wuhan virus lab. I hope you had a nice weekend. You're staying safe and healthy. I wanted to make sure that you saw our taxpayer watchdog group just exposed that NIH has been sending tax dollars to the controversial Wuhan Institute of Virology for years, including dangerous lab experience, experiments on coronavirus infected bats captured from caves. And there's citations and they're saying that Rubio and Matt Gates they're asking about this. So uh, yeah, they want comment. So it goes up the chain. Hey, Karen, Senator Rubio's staff uh, forwarded the email below. They want some input. So let's go to the next email. Uh, the new title is Senate Questions 
regarding the Wuhan Institute of Virology. <laughs> Hi, Tony Fauci's whole organization. We've heard from senators. Here's some samples of what we're hearing. They want to know, right? And then it's like staff to Rubio, uh, send an email, you know, these sort of things. So we're getting to, they're sending that up the chain. And now if we go to the next page, we can see a more important. <clears throat> oh, they, that last page, that top one seemed to comment. Well, that's, that's going to, oh, that's, that that's this the, email right here. I see. So I'm, my bad. It's I'm going to have to flip back to it. Yeah, yeah, I got you. All right. So now we're at April 16th, 2020, 12 noon, uh, 12.06, right? <laughs> Subject. Action by 3 p.m. today, 416. <laughs> Draft NIAID response to Senate questions, Wuhan Institute of Virology. Now let's read that email. Good afternoon. Using information provided by DMIDOCGR-LEG has drafted the attached proposal response to the recent congressional request for information on Fauci's group support for research activities at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. As you may recall, the Wuhan Institute of Virology has been supported through sub-awards from NIAID-supported EcoHealth Alliance Project. Boom! There's the mm. number right there. They know what number it is. Yeah, NIAID. And keep in mind, this is not redacted. This is what they left in here, Tony. NIAID right. also has been asked, quote, would you provide the funding history year I see for the Wuhan Institute of Virology, end quote. We have included a funding table in the draft response using sub-award amounts outlined in the NOAs for that grant number. Please confirm. Thanks, Chase Crawford. Public health analyst, uh, NIAID, NIHDHHS. Yeah. Look at the whole, like, Legislative Affairs and Correspondence Management Branch Office of Communications and Government Relations for the NIAID and NIH. Basically, right. it's just a bunch of whitewashing for so that's that organization. Chase Crawford's email PR right there. Propaganda. And it goes sense. to 12, 17 p.m. Now, they're, they're CCing NIAID bugs. That must be an interesting email list to be on during the day. <laughs> Subject, action by 3 p.m. today, same as before. Uh, Emily, Christina, Eric, and Alan, the legislative group has taken the materials we sent and re uh, received from the GM to develop the attached response for our review for 3 p.m. today. Let us know, Lillian. And then uh, no suggested edits from, from her. This is uh, the response back to Lillian. Uh, is this not to be made public? Yes, this is a leg item, not public statement. Public statement was that was what Christina M shared with you earlier. Let me make sure it's on screen. And, mm -hmm. the, uh, good. and that references the reporter link. All right. So they got it all nailed down. They're going to release it out. So here in the in the drop, here's their grant uh, proposal. Eco Health Alliance, read re the AI grant, right? So there's a, an attachment there. I don't have access to that attachment. Here's the director of grants management program for Tony's group and a couple other groups. Same as that lawyer, the same uh, three groups. It's the Department of Health and Human Services, the NIH oh, and IAD. They're actually all, they're all connected. There you go. I think the NIH might be under the HHS. I'm not sure on that. And then the Wide NIAID is under the NIH. So, yeah. So they're, uh, this part right here, request for a call because they had some questions. FYI, urgent. What's this? B5. <laughs> Go fish. <laughs> this is for convenience, and I have some ideas waiting to hear back. Uh, we're going to set up tomorrow. 
All right. B6, 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 B5, B6. B6 <laughs> All right. B6, so this five. one, uh, this is pretty much this whole page. So let's start up here. Um, this is from Emily at N I H N I A I D, who's been in this whole thread. Uh, and it's sent to several people here, and it's request for a call. B6, that's okay. B5. Hey, I'm looping you in to this request that's redacted. Uh, we'll be providing that short. Call out the circular redaction. We just know what that is. That'd be great. Mm-hmm. And then uh, right before that, it was this is part of that email right here. So like this part is part of this email because it was forwarded. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see this title request for a call. Hi, Emily. I hope all is well and you're having a nice weekend. I'm following up on the outcome of the subcontract from EcoHealth Alliance to Wuhan Institute of Virology, WIV. Please see attached instructing EcoHealth Alliance to discontinue providing funds to WIV. <laughs> Happy to discuss, Joe. This is April 19th. April 19th, right? That's oh a celebration God, of someday in American history, April 19th. Nothing Jesus to see there, Christ. folks. All right, so... Uh, Here's here's Chase Crawford again, remember? Public health mm-hmm. analyst. Mm-hmm. Who was the main project awardee? EcoHealth Alliance. What entity made the sub-award to the Wuhan Institute of Virology? EcoHealth Alliance. <laughs> Do we know why the sub-award for the Wuhan Institute of Virology went down in 2019? Just random fluctuation? Wow. <laughs> what happened in 2019 that they didn't use all the money that year or whatever? And then it's like China, Wuhan Institute of Virology, coronavirus screening and serology of non-human samples, viropathogenesis, serological serological testing, host receptor binding, spike protein sequencing, and in vitro and in vivo virus characterization. In vitro and in vivo. Have you heard that in the last hour? Mm Mm-hmm. Let's check who, who's sending this email here. Oh, this is part of the Chase Crawford email. So we just read the rest of it. Let's read the beginning. April 17th, 2020. Now, wait a minute. Didn't we just read April 19th on the other one? Maybe this one's being forwarded. I don't know. Well, let's see. The other That's one was still... April 19th. That's or Yeah, I think so. This is Chase Crawford over there. Action required. This is the subject. Action requested. Follow-up questions on Wuhan Institute of Virology. Additional sub-awardees. Good afternoon. We received the below follow-up questions about sub-awards from NIAID-supported EcoHealth Alliance Project R01AI110964. <laughs> and as you may recall, NIAID recently responded to multiple congressional requests for information on NIAID support for research activities at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So this is going on while he's denying to Rand Paul. They're like, well, nothing to see here. We don't know anything. And equivocating heavily on the definition of gain-of-function research, which is... I want to get a T-shirt like with this and a QR code attached, like that number with a QR code and just send people <laughs> to read the awards. All right, LD, did you find on my Twitter page... Um, that the, the two awards, there's the one they're talking about. And then there's the other one that goes on from like 2020 to 2025. So even though the USA Today fact check thing says that Tony's group, Tony Fauci's group stopped funding EcoHealth in April of 2020, which they did, but then they turned the funding back on right away. I don't know how that works. 
Dazak Dazak speaks with a British accent. Maybe you should ask him. All right, can we uh, see that if you found it? Well, let's see. Is this is this one of them? Um, we are honored to, to be chosen by DARPA for this important grant, which will greatly accelerate our efforts to develop antibody messenger RNA therapeutics to combat a wide range of infectious diseases. Said Stefan Bansell, President and CEO of Moderna got a screenshot can you make that whatever graphic is in in the attachment full screen so people at home can see it clearly on their version um let's see is that uh probably not or, or it's, it's send, little... send it to send it there like i have the original of that jpeg or whatever is in the yeah i was gonna say i can just take a the save it as an image and then bring it up and then but can you yeah. can you right. tell the providence of the where I pulled that quote? What did I? What was I pointing out? Where is it said? Is that my claim? Am I making these claims about Moderna and DARPA and Bonsell? No, no, no. This is from. Um, I know how to read. That's what you're saying. This is from PRNewsWire.com. Oh, I've heard of them. They're green check mark, uh, Microsoft approved, truth yeah. telling place. So. PR Newswire is what the New World Order and Klaus Schwab used to get their PR, their press releases out there. You know, the real question I have is why did they allow that one grant to be released inside those emails? Like, why didn't they redact that grant? Like, I'm curious now, my mind's just wondering, I'm like, is it a red herring? Is it there? They Are they going to be able to build a straw man around it and then tear the straw man well, down? And then... I think the straw man, Tony, is the non-inclusion of mi6 porting down and the real people that drive all these programs in the first place and so darpa's grants a limited DARPA's hangout grants, yeah. would be to just tell half the story and burn down america's reputation and sully its character through the, the non-inclusion of yeah. the real actors who use america like a prophylactic and fuck the rest of the world with it yeah that's right that's in line with the who and and uh as a correlation the wef as well Makes sense. But by the way, just for yeah, Jimmy Wales was a 2007 graduate from the WEF Young Global Leaders alongside Sergey Brin and uh, Larry Page. So, all right. Well, for that, I'm going to show you this. This is a book. This is more Thanks. of a nice to know about artifact. You know that guy who made the Money Masters, Bill Still. Yeah, that was a, once that was upon a, good a time, one, really. he wrote yeah, a book yeah. called "The New World Order: A Plan of Ancient Secret Societies." An ancient plan of secret society. Sorry. And um, I got this. I didn't know about this book until I interviewed Bill about, uh, you know, money masters and other things. He's like, did you know I actually wrote a book? And he's like, I'll send you a copy. So this is written in 1990. And uh, I mean, quite the table of contents in here. Like he, he's definitely. he Vice Ops Illuminati, French Revolution of the Great Atlantean Plan. The ancient secret societies. That's interesting. For not the, pan, for the pan no internet in 1990, kids. Like this man was at a library. Oh, the American job. Microfish. But let me just Whoa. flip toward the end. This is page uh, 147. So this is like two thirds of the way through the book. Central banking, the Council on Foreign Relations, and FDR. And he talks about uh, Rothschild family and Carol Quigley right here. So yeah. let me just read a little paragraph out of this book. New World Order. Let me uh, make sure it's in focus for you guys. And uh, where'd my pen go? There it is. On the financial front, the priority became the creation of central banking in America. The Rothschild banking family of Europe had learned hundreds of years earlier that once you control the credit of a nation, you control its economy. Carol Quigley, uh, Carol Quigley professor. Oh, my camera froze. Do you see that? 
Yeah, we can. Yeah, at least it's not my whole Zoom. At least it froze in a good place. Carol yeah. Quigley, professor of history at Georgetown, Princeton, and Harvard universities, wrote in 1966 in his book *Tragic Hope*: "The history of the last century shows that the advice given to governments by bankers was consistently good for bankers, but was often disastrous for governments, businessmen, and other people generally. Such advice." could be enforced, if necessary, by manipulation of exchanges, gold flows, discount rates, and even levels of business activity. I would add to that uh, liquid uh, natural gas and propane <laughs> and electricity. And well, a whole other bunch of other things. set the price of gold, by the way. But, that's a but uh, you know, a lot of the stuff we talked about tonight is, is found throughout, you know, even older older books from 1990 before the internet. Well, let's not forget what Patrick Wood said. When we interviewed him last week. Um, that you know, at first it was about having economic control. Talked about the Bank of International Settlements in Switzerland, but then they sort of transitioned with the new cybernetic transhumanist vision about gaining control of the individual's mind, heart, soul, you know, mind, body, soul, disposition, totally. And they're doing that through these advanced technologies, bioengineering, implants, you know, um, sort of all that, all that stuff that sort of is a ominous reflection of what the future might, might manifest. Bioengineering implants. It's important to note though, because it seems like if you go back early enough, they're hey, interested in economic control, but then this it seemed to transition into this trans transhumanistic vision. Go ahead. This was for after uh, intermission, but since you said implants, I'm going to show you this one. This book's from 1991. You see this syringe with the microchip? This is 1991, one year after that other book I just showed you, right? Here's the following page. This might be interesting. Department of Defense, 1970. ARPA. That's interesting. What Synthetic book? biological agents. They're not doing it, not because they're not interested, because they didn't get funding, and then they got some funding. And then, anyway, that's different history. I wanted to show you this part, because you're talking about different types of energy control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. There's, it's a metaphor. Using, using paper yeah. money as a pay, as a inductor yeah. Yeah. in the currency. And Babylonian woes that I mentioned earlier, he uses similar figurative language in describing the idea of money being a form of energy and different capital as forms of energy. Let's go ahead. I'm sorry. I mean, this, this, this is interesting because it's talking about in terms of induction uh, of a current economic law. capacitance, <laughs> conductance, inductance, yeah. Rothschild's energy discovery. War is therefore the balancing of the system by killing the true creditors, the public, which we have uh, taught to exchange true value for inflated currency and falling back on whatever is left of the resources of nature and regeneration of those resources. Mr. Rothschild had discovered that currency gave him the power to rearrange the economic structure of it to his own advantage, to shift economic inductance to those economic positions, which would encourage the greatest economic instability and oscillation. That's like Soros right there. Mm -hmm. The final key to economic control had to wait until there was sufficient data and high enough speed computing equipment to keep close watch on the economic oscillations. That's the stock market created by price shocking and excess paper energy credits, paper inductance, inflation, right? And so the internet's like a big electronic inductor. It was Bloomberg that was machines. The, <laughs> that was under the section that we got parent capital is paper state. inductor. And, uh, I believe this is quoted from Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars. 
but yeah. it's in this book right i was here. gonna say it seems like a bill yeah this is the size of the book too behold a pale horse bill cooper yeah so i'm just saying it's not an ominous sign <laughs> of the not times at all. at all not at all the fact he was able to the internet was in its nascent phase so it's not wow it, you could even say it was in its nascent phase well that's nascent, nascent whatever nascent nascent, nascent. You know, Made Saddam, Saddam, potato, potato. <laughs> All right. Now, I want to see the Moderna president get called out on this whole his patented product that he was funded by DARPA. And then he's got this patent in 2016. And then it ends up in SARS CoV 2. And somebody actually thought to ask him about it with a camera in front of him. Let's see what happens. Now scientists find the virus contains a tiny chunk of DNA that matches sequence patented by Moderna three years before the pandemic began. Your reaction, Stefan? What can you tell us? So my scientists are looking into those data to see how accurate they are or not. As I've said before, the hypothesis of an escape from a lab by an accident is possible. You know, human makes mistakes. So uh, is it possible that the uh, Wuhan lab in China was working on uh, viruses uh, enhancement or gene modification? And then there was an accident where somebody was infected in the lab and then infected their families and friends. It is possible on the claim you just uh, mentioned, uh, the scientists are analyzing to know if it's uh, real or not. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I was struck by the line. It matched a genetic sequence patented by Moderna for cancer research purposes, Stefan. Yeah. And that's the type of things that the team is looking at very carefully to know, is it is it real or not? Okay. So it, it takes a bit of time to analyze yeah. all the genetic sequence. If it's real or not. How we don't need the whole genetic. Yeah, we don't need the whole genetic sequence. We just want to know about that part that your company has patent on inside of this other thing that looks like it came from your parent company. Which, by the way, is unique to all the other. It's synthetic. We can't find another biological sequences that have been or any sequencing because we only can buy sequence if biological creatures. DARPA funded Moderna. Might then DARPA have intellectual property rights to do as they please with whatever Moderna found for them? a reasonable deduction yes yeah, well then absolutely. it'll definitely be banned can't have that out there just sort of shut him up he talks about he's sort invested of, in this he very cleverly doesn't really answer the question though doesn't necessarily build a strong man it's a sort of a red herring just sort of oh man it's actually more of a non sequitur he goes to talk about the origins of the virus that's that's all well and good but this there's a patent for a synthetic uh type of uh, yeah he tried to wet market the whole thing He's like, look at those people. You can grow synthetic stuff over sequence. there. Maybe it came from there. Yeah, like, and that's the question. Like, there's a patent for a synthetic sequence that is not, does not, uh, is not correspond to any other biological organism. It's like one in three trillion odds or something. Yeah, one in three trillion. That's the, part of. Yeah, let me bring that up here. That's part of this. Okay, so LD, back to the Twitter because I don't want to leave that thread open. Um, so there was the Stefan Bonsell uh, quote that we just showed and it had the other part of the article and that's all good but there was the um the two grants for eco health alliance that i had tweeted and um they would have been all together with a bunch of eco health tweets 
So that's how I make the breadcrumbs easy to find in between me reposting memes. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm got a little. All right, that Cecil Road ones is probably the last of that day. I would close it off with something like that. So look so at my tweets from earlier. Earlier that day. Yeah, probably. Um, okay. We might see some funny stuff in there. Oh, yeah. there you go. Go back to that plutocrats one. Click on that yeah. for the audience. Let's see that big picture. Okay. This is from the 22nd. What's uh, the subtitle of that book? Yeah, the <laughs> plutocrats, the rise of the new global super rich in the fall of everyone else by Christia Freeland. I'm sure she doesn't mean it the way it sounds. No, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's got a different meaning. Um, let's see. I'll yeah, recognize do, you know, you, do you know what? Okay, yeah, was, finance okay. minister. Okay, Canada, so there's some Soros New World order. order and Biden New World Order right there where oh, yeah. you were at. That's part of our uh, our uh, show. What's it called? Yeah, it's part of the show card the for thumbnail. Tonight. The thumbnail. Yeah, <laughs> the thumbnail. Yeah, yeah, that's a show card. Uh, okay. Do you know what day it was? What date? Hmm. Hmm. Well, I don't. I don't but I'm thinking it was right back. before where you're at. So if we just trudge okay. a little bit further. Oh, yeah, no problem. Advertise my Twitter timeline to folks. <laughs> There's the queen. It's substance the queen with the left. Ivermectin, by the way. No, that's that a, a that's that might be a specious report, but it's still kind of oh. haha. Hopefully she lives the to be questioned about it. <laughs> oh yeah, you mean the stromectol? Well, yeah, say the supposed stromectol. But it, you know, it was it was circulated on their news channels, not ours. Nine News had to apologize for that. But we're we're back a a week back now, and uh, I'm not. Oh uh, well, not seeing it. Do you, okay. It must have been a week and three days back. Okay. Because <laughs> there's three trillion chance that COVID developed the code naturally. So, yeah, I got those links. I can put them in the next time we have a clip. One. I'll take them from my computer upstairs and send them to the computer here downstairs so you guys can see. Because now people are waiting with bated breath to see, like, wait, EcoHealth is still being funded for Wuhan lab type stuff till 2025? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. I thought we got that on the show card before. Maybe we didn't. Maybe we didn't. I thought we went over that. I know I went over um, the creation of new BSL laboratories in China. That's continued onwards as well as let's not no, just the grants that, from Fauci that like, it's a real thing. He's still funding yeah. them. There's two separate grants. And then Which we talked about the one grant, but I wanted to put the other grant on the record. Okay. And uh, I'll get, I it. thought there was another, I thought, well, never mind. I don't even, I, I, I thought we had gotten that on the record prior to, cause we went over a couple episodes ago or God knows when, um, grants associated with continual investment in Wuhan Institute of Virology or gain of function research in general, but maybe we didn't, but yeah, I agree. We should need to, we should get that on at some point. All right. So, uh, in the effort to move this show forward, cause we got a lot to do yet. And there's more surprising news to come than what you've heard thus far in the episode. We've covered like some of the milk toast stuff, but it gets more exciting. Um, before we get to the really exciting stuff, including the intermission, let's move into the vaccines, lockdowns, therapeutic section, and take a look at uh, Dell Big Trees. Monologue. So I would suggest skip that only because like it's sick and it's really good. But if, since we're at two 30 almost in the morning and we have to hit intermission and the nine 11 videos after that, 
in order to expedite this section, I would just go to the Jackson report that will cover all the meat of all the section. It's not very long this week and it covers all the main details that all the other all right. clips will cover after, uh, after Jackson report, I want to hit the, uh, Rogan guests who revealed, mm. uh, the government's digital ID nightmare. Yep. Cause that's solid research for folks to do too. That's, that's some real evidence-based, uh, that's, situation. That's, that would be good. Yeah. The juxtaposition between those two will give a, Sort of over a panoramic overview of this section. I do encourage people to check out Del Bigtree's opening monologue because while some nations have opened up and much of America seems to be okay, what's going on in uh, France can or it's continuing in France, I should say. Obviously, what's happened in Canada, what's continuing in Australia each week is insane and it becomes more and more belligerent. The actions become more and more belligerent by the officers and by the politicians. Uh, demanding that the officers or legislating that the officers do something. So plutocrats be plutocratin, dude. Yeah, you got it. So it's good. But we, since we focused on that a lot, I, you know, we'll get, let's go there. to the Jackson report. Do that. Dun, 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 dun. I think it's the same thing music I used to have for history. So it doesn't repeat. That's why I think I like the Jackson report. No, it's just kidding. <laughs> it might be the same music though. I'm not sure. Once again, Jeffrey, there's just so much to report on. Um, I think eventually we're actually talking about giving you your own show where we can just hand you all of the things that didn't make it into the high wire. <laughs> so people can expect that coming soon. But what made it into the high wire this week? What are the highlights? Well, let's stick with Canada for a second. So as I was preparing this segment last night, suddenly something happened in Canada that that really shocked a lot of people following this. Take a look. All right. Dogs and cats living together. We were very clear that the use of the Emergencies Act would be limited in time. When we invoked it, it would be in place for up to 30 days, but we said that we would lift it as soon as possible. We've held updates and briefs with ministers and officials every day, often multiple times a day. And today, after careful consideration, we're ready to confirm that the situation is no longer an emergency. Therefore, the federal government will be ending the use of the Emergencies Act. We are confident that existing laws and bylaws are now sufficient to keep people safe. Of course, we'll continue to be there to support provincial and local authorities if and when needed. That dude's cadence, man. I'm sorry. Does anyone feel like you can trust him farther than you can throw him right now? And and all and now that I couldn't get anyone in my government to agree with my Emergency Powers Act and every single civil rights group in Canada is suing me, uh, I've decided to withdraw it for your own good. Uh, right. An incredible moment. It truly is dogs and cats living together. I mean, we are living in insane times. By the way, I've, as I said before, I have a brand new system, so there's a couple things that they're still working out. But I know it's going to be rocking uh, once we, we get it all together. But go ahead. Continue yeah, on. and uh, he was defending, Trudeau was defending this emergency act just days before this statement. And it, the, the convoy and the, the protests and uh, the blockades of the borders, those were mostly over uh, last week. So yeah. he was defending at the beginning of this week and he comes out and says this. And, you know, people are saying, well, he, he a lot of people are saying this was for politics. He 
he made this emergency act and uh, made, made it go forward because of politics, and he's ending it because of politics. Right. And I started looking, is there any evidence of this? Has he ever played politics before? And I found this 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 uh, blog from 2015 that the Huffington Post ran. Uh, listen to this. Why Canada will become a dictatorship under Trudeau. Now, this wasn't written this this week. This was written in 2015. It wow. says here, the li- this is when he was a Liberal Party leader. It says, the Liberal Party under Justin Trudeau has become a dictatorship. The leader of that party does what he wants, does what he wants, when he wants, and no one dares question him. Now that we know that Trudeau runs his party like a dictatorship, we must ask ourselves, is there any indication he wouldn't do the same as the leader of Canada. It goes on to say, could Prime Minister Trudeau be trusted to make decisions for the good of the country, not just for his personal self-worth? Would Trudeau call in the police to enforce his vision? Let's hope we never have the opportunity to ask those questions. And of course, those ask, those questions were asked, and we saw how they were answered. Mm. And you know, just after our show last week, the police moved in and uh, they they cracked down hard, as we saw from those videos and the protesters yeah. in Ottawa. And the headline here, interestingly enough, uh, the Parliament was. Supposed to vote on this emergencies act, police crackdown forces Canada Parliament to cancel itself. So this act was declared dictatorially by by Trudeau. It wasn't even voted upon democratically. So uh, they reconvened on Monday, this past Monday here, and they did vote this through. So this is kind of a egg couple on the of days face. ago. Seriously, I mean, you're, I'm glad they signed their name to the, that document, yeah. so we will never forget who was against the citizens and and siding with uh, what appeared to be a dictator all along. Yeah, and so as here's the headline as this emergency act passed on Monday it says vote on Trudeau's use of emergencies act passes with NDB NDP support. It was it was voted on passed by 185 in favor 151 against. But notice on that headline it said NDP NDP that's the new democratic party in Canada. One of their major planks of that political platform is defund the police and stopping police brutality and violence. And I, I can't help but laugh because oh my they God. Did, when the chips were down, I guess, they did the exact opposite. They brought in the most militarized police to literally run people over with horses, beat them with batons, knee them while they're on the ground, and we saw all the rest of it. So yeah. it, like you said, it's really great that these people show their true colors when, when peaceful protests were upon their right. front door. Now, uh, finishing off here, one of the uh, protest uh, heads, I guess, or rather heads. This was Tamara Lynch. She she uh, headed up the GoFundMe page. She was detained, arrested. And this is the headline here. Key convoy organizer Tamara Lynch uh, denied bail. Uh, so in the head, in the article here, the court judge said, your detention is necessary for the protection and safety of the public. Now, she's being held without bail on something called counseling to commit mischief. So mischief is this big catch-all term with interfering with, you know, everyday life, with government actions, with people's everyday goings. She was counseling people to commit it. So she didn't commit wow. herself. She was denied bail. Uh, this can be basically any time for a first-time offense is just a fine. Uh, it, it can hold up to 10 years. But since she was denied bail, she is going to sit in a provincial court until the judge rules on a decision. This could be months. So she is essentially detained as a as a political prisoner of Trudeau, I guess, at this point is wow. what we're looking at. Um, 
And and what this 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 uh, emergencies act did in Canada is it caused a lot of people to you know I'm seeing uh, posts all over the place people are pulling their money from the banks it's it's atrocious for bank commerce they're bringing it into smaller local federal credit unions but a lot of uh, well what do you expect rights- when you freeze people's accounts right for simply donating I saw a story of yeah I think it was an ice cream shop owner that her her entire business was destroyed because they printed that she had given two hundred fifty dollars to try and feed some of the truckers. She said, I didn't really even know what I was, you know, donating to, yet they opened up their accounts. I mean, all of this, they froze their accounts. I mean, just really, really crazy things. And, and, I, and I think, too, we talked about this last week, those people that keep saying, you know, Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies of the future. I mean, it just feels like at any moment these governments can just turn all these things. I don't know. I mean, it's not my area of specialty. We'll bring in someone to talk about that. But boy, when they just want to shut you down, they certainly have no problem doing it. And freedom's just right out the door. Right. And yeah, we did see that. And so there are court cases now going on. They're not being dropped since this emergency act has been revoked. We have the Canadian Constitutional Foundation and the Canadian Civil Liberties Association are asking for a hearing in Canadian federal court. And then even even uh, Alberta's premier, Jason Kenney, announced that he's going to do a, a court challenge. And this isn't so much, obviously, to revoke the act because it's already revoked. They're looking for justica- justification from Trudeau for this decision. So they want publicly accessible information on why the government decided to do this act. The only way the the Canadian government can get out of this is if they call for national security or cabinet secrecy on this information, which, you know, is very likely. But that that's still ongoing now, these court these court proceedings and holdings. Um, So that's 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 really what we're going to keep an eye on at this point to see if they come forward to give the evidence, because we we still don't understand what evidence besides some truckers honking their horn outside there. was. Well, we know what that means now. That's right. Well, <laughs> let's switch over to the United States. Okay. So this happened uh, just recently, and uh, we're collating some information on it. But the FDA just uh, just received a new head, or perhaps an old head. Biden picked uh, a new head. Biden picks Robert Califf to lead FDA. Um, people are blasting his pick as an insult. Now, keep in mind, for a, for, uh, for a year, the FDA really had like a substitute teacher in there. And it really had no head in Janet uh, Woodcock. And a mm-hmm. lot of people, including uh, Dr. Malone on this show, was saying that, you know, she was she was going to step down at any time, which she has yeah. now, obviously. But uh, in doing some research here, much like Trudeau, I look back into the into the ar- archives and I found this article from 2016 in Salon magazine. And this was from 2016 when Caliph was the uh, picked at that point to head the FDA the first time. It says the FDA now officially belongs to Big Pharma. And it goes on there to talk about his extensive, extensive ties to the pharmaceutical companies. We're talking uh, Merck, Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, uh, Regenera. I mean, the list, we'd be here for five minutes talking about this list of, uh, of interests that he lists as comp- uh, conflicts of interest in his research. But one of the things he did was he defended Vioxx. That was way wow. back in the day. Mm-hmm. And if anybody, uh, and here's the article, this from uh, 2004, he did a PBS interview when he was still director of Duke's Clinical Research Institute. And if anybody remembers, uh, Vioxx uh, was the painkiller. It was put on the market. The FDA fast-tracked it. 
And at 1999, I believe it was, by 2000, Merck already knew, Merck was the maker of the, the drug, they yeah. already knew that this thing was, in, through its internal research, was causing blood clots, heart attacks, death. They kept it on the market, FDA kept it on the market. And here's what yeah. he said in that article at the time. You know, he gets this home run position to talk about this in 2004. He says, quote, I would say that Merck played, played by the rules from everything that I've seen, including some of the recent things that have been in the newspapers uh, and, and emails. Now, remember, he was wrong about that because if you look at history, here's what the headlines really said. Merck pays billions for Vioxx. Merck agrees to pay $4.85 billion. Yes, in the Vioxx settlement. So let's take a little deeper dive into Caliph here. So Here's one of the headlines. Now, what has it been doing in the last couple of years during the pandemic? A lot of people want to know this. Uh, and here's a headline. Appointing Google's health DC strategist would bring risk to FDA's credibility. And you know, looking at that headline, I say, what credibility in the FDA? But it says here in the article, in September 2019, Califf stepped down from his, his Duke position for a full-time job at Google, running the policy and strategy teams, translation of the lobbying teams for Google Health. Keep in mind, 2019, right before the pandemic began, he jumps into data analytics. Now, let's go right to Google Health and check out what they were doing from their own words mm. during the pandemic. Uh, here it is, using technology to help take on the COVID-19 pandemic. It says here, we are maintaining a sharp focus during this rapidly evolving time of uncertainty on providing authoritative information and resources word. to help keep people safe, informed, and connected. Our major COVID response efforts are focused around keeping people informed with trusted information. So it's not authoritarian, it's just authoritative information. I mean, we're talking about the Google. So now this guy not only is a pharma shill that already worked for the FDA and tried to exonerate a company he had previously worked for, ultimately they ended up killing 100,000 people or more before they had to pay out billions of dollars. But now he's in this incredible cabal we've been talking about with big tech. So he is the perfect guy to bring in the censorship and everything around the pharmaceutical companies because people like us are trying to get the truth out to the people that we can't trust guys like this. And it seems like this is the battleground now. So one of the first statements he put out uh, as bec after becoming FDA head was looking like this. Here's the headlines from Epoch Times. New FDA chief says he will prioritize fighting misinformation. So we're not talking about maybe doing a better job in uh, drug applications, right. better job maybe getting some of the conflicts of interest. Preventative treatments for COVID, you know, all of these things. Maybe investigating, creating a better data collection system for those people either injured by the vaccine or knowing why they're in the hospital. Like, you know, those kinds of things that you would expect from a modern society. No, let's just shut anybody up. That's my number one job that is asking questions of the work we do here. You know, the FDA is the place he should start uh, investigating right. uh, the misinformation campaign. Right. And, you know, about one week before he slid into that FDA position, we have this memo coming out, interestingly enough, from the Department of Homeland Security. This is their summary of terrorism threat to the U.S. homeland. It says here the United States remains in a heightened threat environment fueled by several factors, including an online environment filled with false or misleading narratives and conspiracy theories and other forms of mis, dis and malinformation. So, again, we're seeing this as a major battleground for uh, not only government agencies that have no business in, in, in policing this stuff, right. 
and governments that have no business in, in censoring speech. We've seen this with Joe Rogan, and now we're seeing this as really there, there's there's now this target. A lot of these agencies are looking forward, and as this COVID pandemic and the pandemic response, you know, really starts to come to a close here. We're reporting on this like slow trickle for the last couple of weeks here. We're seeing a lot of people trying to make their moves for the next big thing mm. off the back of this momentum. And with this misinformation, we have California Governor Newsom. Uh, he's going to do his own state unit, his personal state unit, run out of his Capitol office, basically. This is the headline. Newsom rips into Fox News, OAN, Newsmax, calling them propaganda networks, announces new state unit to combat misinformation. So you notice all those uh, those news yeah. agencies are people that really have reported more balanced on people like Newsom, people like Cuomo during the during right. the pandemic, talking about some of their issues that they had there. So it looks like they're going to have kind of a state-sponsored media group. Newsom's, for example, is going to collaborate with 250 media outlets. So you can expect basically uh, just spouting a true the propaganda machine. I mean, that's really sure. what I, I have a group to stop propaganda. Now let's go ahead and, and say what that is. Put the mirror on this. You are starting a propaganda machine. You have the funding from the government. You have Homeland Security now behind you. I mean, these are these are scary, scary developments that really do make us reflect upon, you know, historical moments when other leaders didn't like what was being said about them. What do they do? They start controlling the media narrative. Right. And, you know, for anybody new to this, I see a lot of doctors and scientists and thank God for them stepping up over the past couple of years. But anybody new to this discussion in 2015, we have uh, SB 277 in California. This started this kind of nationwide push to mandate all types of vaccines and to, mm -hmm. and to remove a lot of the barriers between these pharmaceutical companies and, at the, you know, the children uh, for schools. But we're getting this push out of California again now as this pandemic's winding down. And here's some of the headlines coming out. There's a slew of bills. California bill would allow kids 12 and up to get vaccines without parents. So here wow. we go. We're trying to eliminate parental consent for to get kids vaccinated. Remember, then, this is, by the way, just for everyone out there, this we first saw this in Washington, D.C. Uh, ICANN has a case uh, in court right now. We're waiting for a decision at any moment. We have been fighting uh, that um, new law there that, again, allows young children to make a decision to be injected with a totally experimental product that could potentially manipulate their DNA if we are going to at least uh, trust in the words of the inventor of mRNA vaccines, Dr. Robert Malone, leading to all sorts of unknown health benefits. Uh, you know, we're talking about myocarditis over and over again, the detriment to these kids. And now they get to make that choice without the parent even being involved. And I want to point out how incredibly terrifying this is. Imagine, let's just say, you know, it is rare. We have a rare incident where you've been injured by the vaccine. If your kid got that vaccine, Vaccine. And these bills always carry one part, which is the insurance company that's paying for it is hiding it from the parents. The doctor's going to hide it from the parents. Now you're the enemy and your child has done something you know nothing about. So let's say they had that anaphylactic moment at home. It didn't happen in front of the doctor. They're seizing in your in your house. You rush them to the hospital. You don't know what's going on. And maybe they say, oh, it looks like a blood clot and they fire heparin into their body. Well, we already know that they could also be, you know, suffering from thrombocytopenia, which would be a lack of blood clots and now you have a whole problem and nobody knows what's going on because you've been taken out of the equation of the medical decisions to be able to say what did they just eat what just happened i don't know i mean you know they had some carrots you know for lunch today 
and and forget about reporting on myocarditis at that point. You know, now that you're talking about this, right? Because a lot of uh, I think all of the cases that CDC and ASIP were following were people or kids that were presented to the hospital emergency rooms. Who do you think's taking them there? The 12 year old kid driving himself there or herself? Right. It's the parents, and they're not going to know to do that. So right. uh, other things coming out of California as well. This is our friend uh, Richard Pan, California lawmakers targeting kids and working classes for mandatory COVID vaccines. So here we go, uh, you know, we have a COVID vaccine that's, you know, effective. children and the poor, let's go after the children and the poor. It's a great idea, said to Richard Pan, what a beautiful human being he's turning out to be. Right, it, it never met a vaccine he didn't like, including yeah. one that's really not that effective against stopping transmission <laughs> right. or infection, but we're gonna mandate it anyway. Yeah. And then here, one following bill, this is the final, final one here, California bill targets doctors' websites. Here we go, pushing vaccine misinformation. So that's gonna be, if this bill passes, that's gonna be law in California. And this bill doesn't just target the doctors. If a doctor treats a patient out of, outside of standard operating uh, care, which is ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, budesonide, they're gonna be put up uh, in front of the medical board and have their license reviewed. And this so is going to be there you in go. You save someone's life in California that you could lose your license. You're not supposed to treat them with anything. Let them almost die. Then bring them in. Give them, you know, remdesivir, shut down their kidneys, throw them on a vent. If you do that, we'll celebrate you and give you awards. But God forbid you use a drug that's working all around the world. We're going to pull your license. For those of you in California, I just want to say my heart goes out to you. We're all, you know, we all left California to come to Texas. We're refugees. Uh, come on down. The water's warm here, folks. I don't know what you're going to be able to do there. I mean, I'm glad you're there. Obviously, we're going to be rallying there very soon. Announcement coming just around the corner, working out final details. But my God, what has happened to California? Such a beautiful state, such beautiful people. It's like what we're watching in Canada. Of all the places in the world, you got to destroy uh, California. Yeah, and Dell, here's a quick summary of how media manipulation works in one headline. So check this next headline out. COVID won't end up like the flu. It will be like smoking. So as this talking point of COVID is just a bad flu was a conspiracy theory for so long, now that's being accepted in the mainstream. That's what the data shows. And yeah. so they take this talking point and spin it. So the, the need for the vaccine here is kind of waning with its effectiveness. The boosters are not effective. You know, we can't boost forever. So they're going to say, let's let's try to let's try the one last effort here to make this thing last as long as we can. So they're going to say it's, it's more like smoking. And what does smoking do? Well, we have to look at insurance premiums, things like that we can tack it onto. So it says here in the article, long term actions for COVID might include charging the unvaccinated a premium on their health insurance, just as we do for smokers or distributing frightening health warnings about the perils of remaining unvaccinated. So that right there, they're setting up kind of an agenda. They're drumming up some support to maybe get this thing. We've seen headlines like this before, but they're trying yeah. again to get this thing uh, looped into insurance premiums. Um, again, trying to. You know, I have an idea and I've been floating this and talking to several people that could afford to start a new insurance program. Here's what I like to say. Can you imagine an insurance program that, you know, lowers your or, you know, your rates if you haven't had any interaction with a pharmaceutical product actually starts investing in the unvaccinated. I see a future where that's going to happen. This is all a part of the discussions we're having behind the scenes with other medical entities. It's time to build a new paradigm. And by the way, I think that insurance company will make so much more money than those insurance companies that are going to, you know, charge you more for not being vaccinated. What happens when they start watching an insurance company that their premiums are so cheap and they never have to pay out because as it turns 
out the unvaccinated individuals never go to hospitals, aren't dying, aren't getting sick, and they don't have to pay out. I mean, I think it's a perfect. If you're out there and you want to get a part of it, definitely reach into info at icandecide.org. Uh, I'd love to see enough people to come together to start a new insurance program. I think that is a great way that we can start changing the system. Let's show the world. And, and of course, they'd be attacked, right? You'd be attacked if you had an insurance program like that. But say, hey, it's our problem, isn't it? We're the ones betting on the unvaccinated. We're going to bet and say they're the healthier people. It's going to be cheaper and insure them. Go ahead and keep insuring those. They keep pumping them with fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh boosters and see how that works out for you. Right, exactly. And Dell, our team, our team of researchers, veteran researchers, doctors, uh, they've been talking to us behind the scenes about this next yeah. headline. It's super important. If anybody remembers one thing from this segment here, remember this. Coming soon, climate lockdowns. This is in the Hill. So a lot of people are saying, you know, they're going to shift the COVID restriction policies and the apparatus that have been built. They're going to just change lanes on that and bring it to the climate change agenda, the climate change narrative. And so this appears to be, you know, again, we're seeing this these talking points all of a sudden enter the, the media. Check this out. This is even in nature. Uh, this is personal carbon allowances revisited. So if, if anybody don't know, doesn't know what that is, personal carbon allowances was this idea to get into people's every aspect of their life and tax them. Uh, surveil them and restrict them for the amount of carbon they're using, whether it's, you know, heating their house or driving their car, tax them by the mile and so on and so forth. Listen to what this article says here in Nature about this. And this was after COVID. During the COVID-19 pandemic, restrictions on individual individuals for the sake of public health and forms of individual accountability and responsibility that were unthinkable only a year ago or a year before have been adopted by millions of people. People may be more prepared to accept the tracking and limitations related to personal carbon allowances to achieve a safer climate. It goes on to say other lessons that could be drawn relate to the public acceptance in some countries of additional surveillance and control in exchange for greater safety. Uh, it, it, oh, we man. Hold on a second. I'm going to have to <laughs> like a little truth moment here. I, I'm going to tell the audience right now. This is one of the conversations that's been going on for the last several months. As I've told you before, we have an international body of scientists and lawyers and specialists that we meet with every week to put this show together for you to make sure that we vetted it no matter where it is in the world. We want to get it right. But there are a couple of people out there on our team that have been saying, Dell, this entire tracking system, the vaccine tracking system is just paving the way for what will ultimately be a global warming tracking system. This is where it's going to go. It's going to go into climate change. Mark our words right after this COVID pandemic. You're going to watch them start to want to track you over your footprint uh, in the environment. Now, I say this as someone, I'm, I'm still an environmentalist. I grew up in Boulder, Colorado. I want clean rivers. I want clean air. But I'm not down with tracking human beings to achieve that. And so I, I just got to put it out there for those of you on my team uh, that have been trying to get me to talk about this, and I've been saying that's crazy talk. How would they ever move a vaccine passport into a climate passport? You win, I lose, I owe, a I owe you a dollar, and you know exactly who you are. Right. And a lot of headlines, too, are saying that, uh, uh, that climate change is a greater public health emergency than COVID uh, ever yeah. was and things like that. So how would they get here? Well, there's a lot of ways that they could possibly get there. Um, and that, for that a vaccine passport. <clears throat> Climate change is this big threat. Wasn't it Edmund de Rothschild from earlier in this discussion tonight who we presented uh, the UN footage where he's calling yeah, for all this said. stuff in the 1980s 
that inspired the Agenda 21 that brought about Klaus calling for the fourth industrial revolution and the Great Reset, which is the switching of COVID-19 into the Great Reset agenda, which is the carbon agenda and the global warming agenda and the technologies for them and not for you, which is the plutocracy or the plutocrats agenda of Christia Freeland. Is anyone seeing the pattern here? It's a finite planet. There's only so many people doing this. And a lot of them work at the World Economic Forum these days. An awful lot of them. Yeah. World Economic Forum. Many such scholars. uh, Instances of that. Yep. Can we go to that Rogan clip? How far, how long do we have in the Jackson report? I think it's at the very end, but I'm not sure. Probably another like five minutes. But I mean, that gives the, well, send people to the high wire to watch the rest of the Jackson report. But I want to see the, uh, the Bank of England cryptocurrency track trace database. Make one quick statement, and I'm not sure. And people can fact check me because I'm not going to make the assertion this is true. But I saw something this week that the revocation of the Emergencies Act in Canada, they didn't revoke an aspect of the act that had to do with seizing bank accounts. I'll at least that's what I I saw some headlines about that, but I had not followed up to see if that was actually true or not. Um, I know part of the Emergencies Act had to do with the ability to seize financial assets, but I don't know. They, I've seen different people talk about this or just murmurings about, well, they revoked, revoked the Emergencies Act, but they didn't revoke the aspect associated with financial seizure. And if that's the case, and I'd like people to research this. Or Is that kind of like links. them set, uh, cutting off the SWIFT? To Putin, mm-hmm. yeah, right. I mean, that's a good analogy for it. And like, like financial there, terrorism, a, we, won't, we won't be able to get to this. But uh, uh, shout out to Viscaldi in the community because he sent me this. I mean, it's, it's James Corbett discusses the fallout of the crackdown in Ottawa. It's an hour long podcast he did. It's fantastic, but he goes into detail that this is the globalist wet dream. They want to be able to control the bank accounts. We, I played uh, Larry Fink from um, was it BlackRock, CEO of BlackRock, I think, talking about how they want to be able to control uh, financial capital on the ground level, where we use it from like commercial lending institutions and so forth and so on. That's what they want. Once they get that control, man, they got the game. And it alludes to what you showed earlier in the Bill, Bill Cooper, build a, pair, build a pale horse. That's, and we'll continue that thought after intermission mm-hmm. about yeah. one clip away, but also... It was mentioned about the Gavin mm. Newsom changing the ages of consent, these sort of things. Gavin Newsom, correct me if I'm wrong, he's one of the World Economic Forum young leaders of the future who became a leader in a very uh, World Economic Forum friendly state out there. In this document from October 2021, and we covered it in October 2021. Week 2021. There's the implied consent process. There's the part where if the school puts a thing on a bulletin board and you didn't see it and the kid goes to school, that's the implied consent. There's nonverbal consent. There's uh, uh, consent may not be required. They're working toward this. Who can give consent? These sort of things. So it's not like Gavin Newsom came up with this idea. Let's do this thing. He's acting as part of the orchestra, and this is one of the pieces of music that they're doing right now. That's the we have him on the World Economic Forum. Uh, So yeah, you're correct. 1989 BA in political science, Santa Clara University, and here it says here uh, elected as mayor of San Francisco, granted marriage licenses to same-sex couples, initiated plan to bring universal health care. Blah blah blah. And pursued local solutions to global climate change. 2007, re-elected to current position. Governor of California, United States, Office of the Governor. What economic form? Doesn't give me what... what so I what wasn't just imagining his coterie. 
it's actual factual type thing. All right. Can we go to the uh, Rogan clip? Yeah, yeah. Bank of England, Track Trace Database Society. Do they have a plan for you? And inside that plan, would they threaten to shut you off if they don't like how you're spending their new central bank cryptocurrency, which we talked about two years ago? But now people are talking about central bank cryptocurrencies. The Bank for International Settlement. If you go to their site, you can look up uh, the central bank cryptocurrency white paper, the PDF. And if you go far enough back on my Twitter, you can find it there too. But let's cover the audience of Joe Rogan figuring this out in the past week. This is the Jimmy Dore clip, right? That's yeah, the one I, I think have. he does. Yeah, Jimmy Dore plays the Rogan clip. Yeah, and that's nice and safe. Okay. Because you know what? That's Steph, yeah, that Stefan Boncel dude, he's also on like Spotify over there. So we, we'll use Jimmy Dore's clip of this, the incriminating information from Spotify. <laughs> I'm here with American journalist Max Blumenthal from the Gray Zone. And uh, I, we're going to talk about digital IDs. So now I saw a, a video of Tony Blair speaking about digital IDs from like 2019 before COVID. And he was talking about what a great thing they would be for. And I can't find that goddamn video, but he was talking, I have it somewhere in my computer, but I can't find it. But, and he was talking about uh, how digital IDs would be great for consumers and for businesses. It would be great. It would be convenient. It was all about uh, business and the convenience for the. And so now during COVID, he says this about digital IDs. So he's all for, he's been for digital IDs for a long time. They want them and they're going to use whatever argument is convenient at the moment. And so now he says this. You can create a digital ID today that is much more easily protected so you can deal with a lot of the privacy and surveillance issues that worry people but it's a it's a natural evolution of the way that we're going to use technology in any event to transact daily life and this covid crisis gives an additional reason for doing that because look i, I could be wrong about this but when i look at for example how you restart some businesses how you restart international travel i think people's disease status for example, have they been tested? What is the result of that test? And um, have they had the disease? Do they have the disease? I think unless you're able to record some of this data in a way that people can use, it's going to be difficult to, to go back to anything like a, 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 a near normal in things like, like, like transport. So if you're going to start international travel again, how do you do that unless people can be easily tested and have some record of that test? How can you have freedom freedom of movement unless it's not free and you're totally totally monitored? And the thing that used to be super personal that we have to spend, we have things called HIPAA laws to keep your medical stuff pre- now it's just going to be on an app and, and the government's going to have access to it and any other jag off in the world apparently is going to be able to get at that. And he's just saying, oh, it's, it's the way you, it's the natural evolution of things. It's the natural evolution. So now on, on Joe Rogan, this gets brought up. So uh, here we go. Do you feel like you're sounding the alarm yes. for people that don't understand what the fuck is going on? So here, I'll put it up for you here, yeah? So there's the video. Yes. I don't know if your camera can see that, but the, no. there's the video. There's him speaking about it. The G7 is launching a set of public policy principles for retail central bank digital currencies, yep. CBDCs. Central bank digital currencies could be a digital version of money, a bit like a digital banknote that could be used alongside... Right, so that's the guy who runs our economy in the UK. His name's the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And here is the article. 
Bank of England tells ministers to intervene on digital currency programming. Yeah, And here's a quote from the article. This is in the Telegraph, the one he pulled up, okay. but it was behind a paywall. So I'll just read the quote. Digital cash could be programmed to ensure it is only spent on essentials or goods which an employer or government deems to be sensible. Oh, my God. Holy now, shit. I'm going to take it one step further for you, Joe, right? So the vaccine passport infrastructure is in place. But now we know that the vaccine doesn't stop infection or transmission, but the Checkpoint Charlie exists everywhere. They bring in digital banking, central banking, digital currencies. You've got a scenario now that you're checking in and out everywhere you go using vouchers that are programmed and you can only spend where you're told you can spend them. There's another word for that, man. That's called the Chinese social credit system. That's what it's called. And anyone who watches Black Mirror will know what I'm talking about. That's that TV show, right? Yeah. So... What they are telling us, and when I say they, who's they? People in power. That's the head of our economy, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, second most powerful person other than the Prime Minister and maybe the Foreign Secretary in the UK, right? He's telling us, I just played it there for you, he's telling us that's what he, as the UK, the head of the G7, want to bring in for the G7. So a scenario where, like in New York at the moment, because the, the passport infrastructure is in place, you bring in that digital currency and you've got this total control. And if I'm speaking to you the way I'm speaking now, and my employer or government, you heard that in the quote directly, yeah, deems me as saying or doing something inappropriate, suddenly I can't actually pay to come here and speak to you anymore. My, my digital currency won't even pay for the ticket because it will be known that I'm coming to speak to you. Sorry, your, your vouchers don't allow you to purchase that ticket to go and speak to Joe. And so let me bring in Max Blumenthal from the Gray Zone. Uh, that's chilling. We've talked about this. And uh, that's what happened up in Ottawa when Justin Trudeau instituted the Emergency Powers Act. They froze those people's bank accounts, uh, which to me is a form of terrorism. Uh, so what, what and people don't seem to have a problem with this. I mean, the lockdown left people in the uh, in general, people don't seem to have a problem with this. What do you say, Max? Well, they won't even address it. But let me first say before getting into the issue, that was Majid Nawaz speaking, and he was the founder or co-founder of a think tank in the UK called Quilliam, which ironically was heavily involved in beefing up or providing sort of Muslim support for the UK security state as it sought uh, new surveillance powers after 9-11 against the British Muslim population. So there is a real irony about him warning about new mechanisms of social control and mass surveillance. I think he should acknowledge the damage he did with Quilliam uh, before he goes off on another tangent as accurate as what he said might have been. And, uh, and pause it. Yeah, he is. Yeah, I wanted to make sure that we got to the part where Max talked about Quilliam <laughs> and Majid's uh, possible. Like, if I had to look as an outsider, into that looks like doing work for anglo-american establishment to beef up the uk ministry of defense's reason to be more surveillance-y after an op that they ran alongside a couple other good american special relationship friends the other aspect is he's like the chancellor of the exchequer who's the second most powerful person under you know it runs the country under the prime minister that's like saying biden runs america yeah 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 that's oh, yeah. like he has no the idea bottom the of the upper pyramid of power you know there's, there's like the pyramid the people see and then there's the pyramid of power that has like that figurehead as like uh the person channeling the currency of their mm -hmm. elite rulership uh yeah so i saw thought that was interesting because he 
kind of should know better. He's talking in like very low level, low altitude terms about that topic instead of getting up to the rarefied. Let's see it from the big picture meta view of how this works. So there that's are a interesting. Few Alex Thompson's and Earhart's there. Yeah. You know, there yeah. are a few of them and yourself, obviously. Um, you know, there's not people who care to read and then share this useful knowledge that we find and turn it into wisdom and protecting other people's freedom with that evidence-based reason backed up rational perspective on reality. Right. And obviously I wouldn't be here if I didn't support that or or I've, I mean, I became familiar with Roach's initiative back in college, believe it or not. And my international business minor, I was taking in the courses I was taking associated with that minor. I was given a book by a teacher called empires of profit, which talks about Roach's last will and Testament. And then the foundation of the round table groups. And that's where I first became familiar with it. Um, so, I mean, even back then in college, of course, a teacher ended up getting fired, but that's a different story. <laughs> so Rhodes uh, like, well legacy is that people traded, uh, their hard earned dollars for a, a colorless, worthless stone that they were convinced represents love. And that's the power of PR campaign yeah, from PR. people that are doing it to the world right now. The beers diamond cartel. Um, look, there's also the issue, but at least he tells for all his machinations in the past and his dubious nature associated with the Quilliam group or whatever the, 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 the think tank he set up, at least he told the truth about this because this is about the enslavement of the entire world period. And maybe he has some insider knowledge, at least from his perspective. Well, I think he might see more like what's going on than he probably did 20 years ago. That's Let's give too. him credit for that. Yeah. I'll give him credit and, for that. Because the same with Ben Swan, like Ben Swan's a really great reporter, but like he said, with the it's America that's the issue. It's like no, it's not America. Like all your facts are correct, but your context is wrong. You know, I'll give I'll I won't I'll give more. I saw a dude. uh, It's in the it's in the YouTube playlist. We don't have time to cover it right now, but it was a we could put it in the notes. It was a Reason magazine. Oh, it was about. It's not about the Great Reset. It's about the Great Escape. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those videos where I, I agree that with the conclusion. I agree with the yeah. conclusion, but the logic, the grammar and the logic is way askew. And I was yeah. like, this is awful. And yeah. So I don't know if we'll have time to cover that this, this episode, but what I wanted to do was key in on the fact in that, that last clip where they're talking about the bank of England mm-hmm. and this cryptocurrency and this whole CBDCs, sort of thing. Yeah. I'm interested now in knowing what's the history of the bank of England and this is where we can go to intermission with Aaron and, and Melissa. I want to get one thing on the record before we go to intermission. This comes from James Jordan. And this was mm-hmm. earlier this week. Um, he posted in our production channel. While everyone's focused on the Ukraine, uh, Deutsche Telekom to build a global vaccine verification app for the World Health Organization. So this happened on February 23rd. This is out of Reuters. And the World Health Organization signed a contract with uh, Deutsche Telekom subsidiary T-Systems to build a software solution for global electronic verification of coronavirus vaccination certificates, the telecoms company said. Now, the important thing about this to note is Billy Boy Gates last week was upset. He's sad that the... He was sad twice in his quote. Yeah, (laughs) that the uh, pandemic for all effects and purposes is over. I mean, it's essentially Omicron acted as nature's vaccine. Uh, It's going to be endemic. But it's not like the World Health Organization or various nation states are going to let this go. And any like at the time when it's all ramping down, no, they're still building camps and they're still building yeah. track trace database you systems, and they're going to convince us of something, some way, somehow, because their plans not. That's the whole thing about this yeah. this this history that we're in the midst of unfolding right now, right? Like the planners of this 
they staked out their plan over a hundred years ago. You got they it. called their shot. They're like, we want world global government. Here's kind of how we want to do it. We're going to get working groups and they're bought into it. So it's not like we're going to wake up one day and all of a sudden these people stopped trying to steal the world. Or, it's not going to happen anytime soon until we take action to stop them. You can't take action if you don't know what the call is and what the game is yeah. going on that they're playing and who's doing what. Because they're not telling you, they're not telling the main group of people out there that we're surrounded by every day. They're all being lied to. They're not telling those those people the truth. They are losing their freedom. Those of us who take it upon ourselves to read between the lines and read the lines themselves. What's going on here? Yeah. It's not inference. It's like we're just reading what the, what the evidence is easily, readily available by people who have cable connections and can. Well, in a way, it is inference. We're moving from premises to a conclusion by the act of reading. But I get what you're saying. Like we're able to read and draw the conclusions. Yeah, sorry for my pedantic nature. But the the bigger point here is it's also not. I want to point out this out to people before we get into mission. Mass formation psychosis has not stopped. Notice the myopic focus all of a sudden on Russia and the Ukraine. Like I, I noticed this in my family. I was over at the focusing on one small thing. You got it. Yeah. yeah. This, uh, the tunnel vision sort of perspective. And I noticed this in my family, which understands is more conservative in nature. They don't necessarily support Ukraine by any stretch of the imagination, but I can see even the sort of Fox news perspective, having this very subtle subversive technique insofar as making you feel bad about the Ukrainians specifically not understanding the larger issue that you should feel bad about the entire situation in general and both the people standing in line to pull their money out of uh, Russian banks in Russia and also the people in the Ukraine that are actually being attacked by Russia. It goes both ways. In other words, human beings on both sides are being heavily manipulated and controlled and uh, losing their ability to live life for the past 120 years or all of human history. So, I empathize and sympathize with all the people who are being oppressed by got it. that globalist regime who has rigged the game because they can't uh, use logic and reason to win the game. So they're using uh, sure. the intellectual bankruptcy solution, which is violence. Use violence, trickery, skullduggery, deception. All right. Yeah, so I'm we're going to play the Academy of Ideas video. Then we'll get into the Aaron and Melissa Dykes part two of the trust game. And, uh, in there, oh, yeah. there's oh, so, the, yeah. the history of the Royal Mint, the Bank of England, uh, all these sort of things that tie right into like uh, world banking situations, SWIFT, Bank of England, track trace database, all this sort of stuff uh, comes together very nicely. And, Is there uh, a section, because we pieced this together, I had this as separate intermissions, but that, as we talked in the beginning of the show, did we want yeah, to show you, like You're talking sections. for the trust game? For both the trust game and do we Scrub still want to, to show the, the MK Naomi like, portion too? Because uh, in the trust game, go to about 1805. 1805, okay. And cover up to like 18 uh, until uh, end of the Civil War. End of Civil War, okay. So that's for LD and that's, yeah. That's the part most Americans aren't familiar with because they're familiar with the Federal Reserve creature from Jekyll Island kind of thing. Um, but they're not familiar with the the kind of the bill still money masters angle the second bank of the united states being run by the rothschilds and then andrew jackson kind of routing them out and then and then uh lincoln gets in there he has to print his own because they're you know the rothschilds are funding the confederacy and uh that sort of stuff and there's also the the saving of the bank of england the taking over of the the royal mint uh, those are essential elements to understand because if you if Soros is being funded by Rothschilds today 
in this Ukraine type of situations going on. What happened back in the 1800s for them to get so close to the British Empire that their agendas became the same by the end of that century? And then the British did that to us in the 20th century. And the, the, this all comes in this week, this covered on the town hall, but why are there two fascists in the U.S. Senate, fascistas, uh, when they have become a symbol of fascism? And that all happened right after the Civil War, too. So it's like there's all these very interesting symbolisms and ironies uh, that emerge like right around. Of course, there's the larger plan of reinstilling the banking system of England Not, in the 19th century. Well, the fascist is an ancient symbol that comes, oh, from, comes Rome, from Rome. Yeah, yeah. Strength through unity with a little force attached to it. That's mm -hmm. what the axe is, right? It's yeah. also like uh, yeah. you know, but 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 the Rothschild logo is the five arrows, and their motto was like strength through unity. Like they had this whole sort of thing too. So there's that. So when the banking interests did come back in after Lincoln's demise, you got it. That's my point. Right. You there it. you go. You got it. That's well said. All right. Now we're going to intermission. We'll be right back. And there's a whole bunch of interesting stuff that's going to connect did to what we talk about after the intermission. Did you want anything to do? Should we just play those two clips and skip the MK Naomi book? No, uh, want to, I want the Cooper want clip at the end. Yeah. So and it which, should go Academy of Ideas. Of okay. So it's an hour long and I'll search for it while right. we're in intermission. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, Sorry. it's not the Jesuit part at the beginning and it's not the Jesuit part at the end. It's the part where it just plays Bill Cooper reading his own book, I think, because I think okay. I found the pages that match up with what's. Oh, perfect. Said. Okay. We'll find that while the other clips yeah. are gone. Okay. Perfect. We're done. Sorry. I'm done. We're done. Oh, in cool. Yeah. The audience is going to enjoy it thoroughly and they're going to find it insightful and they will appreciate uh, all the work we did to find these things and put them together for your convenience. This content is made possible by individuals like you. Become a supporting member and access our growing library of membership courses and videos. Learn more at academyofideas.com members. The real question is whether the brighter future is always so distant. What if it has been here for a long time already? And only our own blindness and weakness have prevented us from seeing it around us and within us, and kept us from developing it. Across the globe, a confluence of factors is destabilizing the fabric of society. Many government institutions are corrupt to the core. Many politicians are so detached from reality that they view those who want freedom as enemies. The legacy media has morphed into the propaganda arm of the government. Instead of seeking the truth, the function of these institutions is to augment state power and demonize those who dissent. To make matters worse, global economies have been ravaged by destructive government policies, and while rampant money printing has created a mirage of economic stability, this mirage is quickly giving way to an ugly reality. Politicians tell us that if we are unhappy with the way we are ruled, then we can express our displeasure at the polls, or even run for office. But this is to assume that the democratic ideal is the best way to return freedom to an unfree world. This is to overlook the corrupting influence of state power. This is to forget that the massive bureaucratic class that operates many of the levers of government is not replaced through elections. And finally, this is to assume that state power is the solution to what ails society. Perhaps state power is the poison that is destroying it. A more practical solution to what ails the modern world may be to allow the dead weight of the state to collapse in on itself, as it inevitably will, and to soften the blow of this collapse through the creation of a parallel society. 
In this video, we are going to explore what a parallel society is, how it played a pivotal role in the fall of communism in Eastern Europe, and how the creation of a parallel society may be our best chance of returning freedom to an authoritarian world. If it proves impossible legally to compel the ruling power to change the ways it governs us, and if for various reasons those who reject this power cannot or do not wish to overthrow it by force, then the creation of an independent or alternative or parallel society is the only dignified solution. The basis for the parallel society was born in the mind of Ivan Yurus, a Czech poet and the artistic director of the rock band The Plastic People of the Universe. After members of this band were arrested in 1976 for refusing to tow the government line, Yurus called on the community of Czech artists to create music labels, publishing houses, concert halls, art expositions, and other such infrastructure that existed independently of mainstream society and outside the grasp of the communist state. Yurus hypothesized that if enough infrastructure were created, an independent society would spontaneously form and function as a pocket of creative freedom in a highly oppressed society. Yurus defined the independent society as a society not dependent on official channels of communications or on the hierarchy of values of the establishment, and as he further explained, the independent society does not compete for power. Its aim is not to replace the powers that be with power of another kind, but rather under this power, or beside it, to create structures that respect other laws, and in which the voice of the ruling power is heard only as an insignificant echo from a world that is organized in an entirely different way. Eurus' idea caught the attention of the Czech Catholic philosopher and mathematician Václav Benda. Benda saw in this idea the seeds of a non-violent solution to the destructiveness of communism. However, for the independent society to have real-world social and political impact, it needed to be extended beyond the realm of music and the arts. For the stifling bureaucracy and heavy hand of the communist government was suffocating all areas of life. And so Benda coined the phrase parallel society to refer to all social, cultural, and economic structures that existed unconstrained by the state. He called such structures parallel structures, and at the height of political oppression in the late 1970s, Benda urged Czech citizens to begin creating parallel forms of education in science and scholarship, parallel political structures, a parallel information network, and free parallel markets that form a parallel economy. And as H. Gordon Skilling explains, outlining the parallel structures which had come into existence or might do so in the future, Benda argued that these might gradually supplant or at least humanize the existing official structures. The rationale behind the creation of parallel structures in the parallel society was simple. As the communist government had a monopoly on force and was too powerful to challenge head-on, it was best to turn away from it and defy it by ignoring it as much as possible. Rather than trying to eliminate oppressive state structures, it was better to build up better ones that could function as alternatives or replacements to the establishment system that was in the process of dying. A well-known communist dissident, Yasek Kuran, captured this rationale in 1980 when he responded to the torching of a communist headquarters by stating, Stop burning down committees. Let us build our own. Or as Ivan Yurus explained, the parallel society began in spontaneous acts of mutual self-defense in different parts of society. Those who take part are active people who can no longer stand to look passively at the general decay, rigidity, bureaucracy, and suffocation of every living idea or sign of movement in the official sphere. 
And because these people sooner or later recognized that efforts to bring about the slightest improvements in the official sphere were exercises in futility, it was only a matter of time before they said, Why not invest our talents, abilities, goodwill, and enthusiasm into something that no one will be able to corrupt, that we will be able to decide about ourselves in the end? The parallel society provided individuals the means to express themselves freely without fear of censorship and to fulfill their goals and aims without being suffocated by the bureaucracy of the state. Furthermore, individuals felt that by turning towards parallel structures and away from the establishment structures that functioned as vehicles of the state, they were influencing society for the better. The parallel society thus served as a much-needed source of hope in a society which had succumbed to apathy due to decades of communist rule. And in the latter half of the 1970s and throughout the 1980s, this hope inspired people throughout all of Eastern Europe and the parallel society infiltrated many areas of culture and the economy. Even my most audacious expectations have been considerably surpassed, wrote Benda in 1988. It is no longer necessary to show that the parallel society is possible. By the late 1980s, the parallel society in Eastern Europe had become so strong, decentralized, and decoupled from the state that the communist authorities lost their grip on power. The revolution which swept through Eastern Europe in the closing months of 1989 was a spontaneous product of the massive discontent and the yearning for freedom of the peoples of those countries. It was also a culmination of the independent activities of many citizens as they sought to defend their rights against the party-state system and to create a parallel or independent society as a challenge and an alternative to it. One of the more famous examples of a parallel structure was the underground film industry in Romania. The communist dictator Nicolae Ceausescu outlawed the possession and distribution of Western films. However, the entrepreneur Theodore Zamfir created a vast underground market smuggling Western films into the country and then translating and dubbing them into Romanian. The demand for the films rapidly grew, and as the Romanian people were exposed to Western culture, their eyes were open to the full extent of their own oppression. As one Romanian dissident put it, the seeds of freedom that were planted by the films grew. Zamfir made a fortune off this parallel market and he became one of the most powerful men in Romania. And in an interview for a 2015 documentary, Zamfir explained, During the 1989 revolution, everybody was in the streets because they all knew there was a better life out there. How? From films. Given advances in technology and the capacity to spread information, goods and services across the world, the potential to create a wide variety of parallel structures on both a local and global level is significantly greater today than it was in communist Eastern Europe. And so rather than passively waiting for a political savior to bring us freedom and save us from societal collapse, a more realistic strategy is to actively participate in the construction of a parallel society. We must create all kinds of independent parallel structures, that is, structures unmanipulated by totalitarian power. Contributing to the creation of a parallel society could amount to, among many possibilities, consuming independent media instead of legacy media, using alternative mediums of exchange rather than government-backed fiat currencies, using social media platforms and decentralized digital infrastructures that promote freedom of expression or supporting local businesses rather than global corporations that further the agenda of the political establishment. It could amount to creating self-sustainable communities, conducting scientific inquiry or scholarship free of institutional pressures, 
or consuming and creating educational resources, art, music, or literature that pays no heed to the establishment status quo. Any action or enterprise that expands the realm of freedom while creatively circumventing censorship and top-down authoritarian or totalitarian control is a boon to the parallel society. For as Egon Bundy, one of the leading figures of the Czech underground, explained, When the activity of those who oppose the establishment becomes articulated, it will be in forms, methods, and ideas that are totally unknown, incomprehensible, and unacceptable to members of the establishment. And that is how it should be. Once a parallel society is sufficiently established, a society is no longer under the same grave danger as when it relies solely on the structures and institutions that are appendages of the tyrannical state. For if these establishment structures collapse, parallel structures will soften the blow of an economic or social breakdown. Furthermore, parallel structures cater to the authentic needs and wants of the people rather than the political class and so they tend to be more life-promoting than the establishment structures. As parallel structures develop and solidify, more and more people will instinctively turn towards them, and as the parallel society expands, so too does the sphere of cultural, economic, and political freedom. A genuine parallel society would, by a process of metastasis, penetrate all the important social structures. And as Václav Havel further explains, the ultimate phase of this process is the situation in which the official structures simply begin withering away and dying off, to be replaced by new structures that have evolved from below and are put together in a fundamentally different way. In 1988, a year before communism in Eastern Europe collapsed, Ivan Yurus reflected on the growth of the parallel society and on the dramatic social changes that were following in the wake. The parallel society has proven its worth, he wrote and it is the only meaningful structure that people can create if they do not wish to remain mere appendices of the political and social structures created by the ruling power. Learn more about our membership, access transcripts, and the art we use in the videos by visiting academyofideas.com. Started like 1650. I think the Everyone first section knows. is like the Napoleonic Wars. So we'll start. At this, that's the 1650 is the second bank. Of... These ideas were evident, many taken from the Enlightenment, embodied in the system of exchange, visible reminders, re-exchanged each time it changed hands embedded deeply in minds and forms of currency. Transmitting again and again through the symbolism and iconography of the money. In Haiti, the first successful slave revolt in history that became the second successful independence movement in the Americas. And from there it spread vigorously to Colombia and Venezuela, Peru, Ecuador, parts of Brazil, Panama, all undergoing independence from 1810 onwards. 
Indeed, the germ of liberty caught on throughout these lands, as evidenced by its coins, repeated images of walking liberty or seated liberty, the liberty cap, aka the Phrygian cap, again symbolizing capital, not invested in a single head monarch, but in the people in per capita liberty, a blazing sun and the all too well known pyramid with an all seeing eye. These and other symbols of revolution reoccurring in the currencies of Argentina, Chile, Paraguay, Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Bolivia, and even Puerto Rico, whose attempted independence from Spain failed, but which identified with Bolivar's larger independence efforts. The Dominican Republic, notably less inspired by the exact symbols, but also pursuing independence, and for a brief time in 1821, both inspired by and in direct conflict with Haiti, which got the ball rolling and with whom it shares its island, as well as Cuba, which used the Phrygian cap, the blazing sun, etc., etc., which asserted independence in 1868. The coin of the realm was circulating the ideals of liberty, even if liberty proved to be a vanishing spirit. What might be the ultimate purpose of this system of symbols? Why did they become so widespread on the faces of these currencies? Second National Bank of America. So, in essence, they've turned the Second National Bank of America into a museum for enlightenment. Part 3. Jackson versus the Bank. Story. Andrew Jackson, president who fought against the Second Bank. The Second Bank of the United States' mission to stabilize the currency fell short as wild land speculation in the western states like Tennessee were enabled by easy lending practices. It all turned quickly on its head when the Second Bank tightened credit in 1818, creating a debilitating cascade of foreclosures and, yes, panic. Andrew Jackson was among those who lost significantly in the land investments. In 1819, with stabilization efforts, the bank was saved and the people were ruined. By the 1820s, the Americas were effectively decolonized, with Spain withdrawing almost completely in the wake of Latin independence movements. However, gunboat diplomacy carries a great deal of weight, and Britain, whose world-dominating navy was built up by the Bank of England, maintained a de facto status as the protector of the Americas, with windfall towards its trade. Bank payments in gold resumed in 1821. 
1820 brought the Missouri Compromise, escalating bitter controversy as Missouri was admitted, but as a slave state, although slavery was prohibited above the 36-30 parallel. In 1823, future President John Quincy Adams, as Secretary of State, wrote the policy that became known as the Monroe Doctrine, under President James Monroe. It officially opposed European colonialism in the Americas, treating the Old World in Europe as a separate sphere of influence from the New World. Britain attempted to issue a joint statement with the U.S. on the Monroe Doctrine, but then their 1812 memories were explained as preventing a unified approach. Following runs on banks in 1825 and 26, the Bank of England averted a liquidity crisis as Nathan Mayer Rothschild supplied it with sufficient gold reserves. One report in December 1825 described some 10 treasure chests of gold amounting to 100,000 pounds brought to England from France. The Bank of England and the merchants in the City of London campaigned to regain public confidence in the wake of financial panic and speculation, attempting to reassure that the system was sound and that gold reserves were at their highest levels, allaying apprehensions that cash payments could stop again. In March 1826, outcry arose in London after cases of bank customers being refused payment in gold and offered Bank of England notes only. At the exact same time, Nathan Rothschild was reported to have paid into the bullion office of the Bank of England not less than £2,100,000 during the previous fortnight, further backed up with bullion. On the crest of a continued wave of independence and liberation, Simone Bolivar attempted to unite the newly freed nations in Central, South, and the Caribbean Americas at the 1826 Congress of Panama with cooperation and participation with the United States. However, support from the United States was lacking due to Southern opposition to political goals intent on banning slavery throughout the Western Hemisphere. In 1827, during a minor loan case in the Court of the Common Pleas in Newcastle-on-Tyne, England, involving famed banker Mr. Rothschild, the judge questioned whether any man without the express consent and authority of the king could legally advance a loan to a foreign power. Throughout the mid-1800s, Manifest Destiny, the mythical idea that former colonists, now United States citizens, were meant to expand across and occupy the entire continent, grew out of the power dynamics established by the Monroe Doctrine and connected historical events, obviously. By 1830, after success in the UK and early experiments with rail delivery in the Northeast US, the first American steam engine train was built, which, subsequently the following year, exploded. But the implications of the future were clear enough. President Jackson began his war against the Second Bank of the United States and its executive, Nicholas Biddle, who'd been appointed by Monroe. Andrew Jackson, president who fought against the Second Bank, and Nicholas Biddle, a man who fought on behalf of the Second Bank and on behalf of the Rothschild banking interest. Opposing the fundamentally corrupt monopoly of the bank, Jackson called upon Congress to establish a substitute that would have no private stockholders or foreign investors, no power over land speculation. When the special representatives were sent east by the pioneers to plead their cause and to protect their interests, they were refused audience and greed overcame all consideration for their rights. But a bank with only the power to issue bills of exchange. Jackson succeeded in linking the elitist bankers, whom he claimed were using their power in making loans to influence politics, with a threat to democracy. To settle a default on a loan, in 1830 the Spanish monarchy handed the Rothschilds the rights to the Almaden mercury mines in southwest Spain. 
At the time, mercury was an essential component in the refining of gold. With the rise to these mines, the Rothschilds had a virtual global monopoly and therefore significant control over the gold refining process. These operations expanded greatly in 1852 when they acquired the lease of the Royal Mint Refinery in London, which they maintained for over a century, allowing them to control global gold output. It should be noted that in 1832, the elite Skull and Bone Secret Society was established at Yale, and its founders were tied to the East India Company, sister institution and one-time rival to the Bank of England. Skull and Bones exemplified privileged, erudite men of the Anglo-American power base, with three of its members becoming President of the United States, three more becoming Chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and numerous others high-level executives on Wall Street and investment banking. In the 1832 election year, President Jackson's opponents made the bank a major issue and maneuvered Nicholas Biddle in January to apply for the bank's recharter four years in advance of its expiration, expecting Jackson to veto the bill in order to criticize Jackson for exceeding his authority by using veto power to block legislation. Instead, Jackson gained considerable support. Because done nobody liked them banks. Jackson vetoed the bill on July 10th, a week before on the 4th of July, Meeting with his running mate Van Buren, he famously declared, The bank, Mr. Van Buren, is trying to kill me, but I will kill it. Bank director Biddle bankrolled the campaign to defeat Jackson, playing right into Jackson's claims that the bank interfered with the political process, thus gaining the confidence of the common man and winning in a landslide re-election. The nullification crisis tested states' rights, after South Carolina declared federal tariffs unconstitutional and thus null and void. President Jackson signed a bill authorizing use of force against South Carolina, who subsequently agreed to a compromise tariff, but afterwards nullified the force bill on principle. The Bank Charter Act established Bank of England notes as officially legal tender, printed at the discretion of privately owned shareholders. These actions now serve to define modern central banking, including the assumption of the role of lender of last resort and trustee of Britain's gold reserves. In the wake of Jackson's bank challenge, money lending functions were assumed by a wave of local and state banks across the United States, drastically increasing credit and speculation. The second bank of the United States, still under charter, responded by contracting credit, stockpiling reserves, and triggering financial panic and sharp interest rates. President Jackson redirected criticism about the financial state of affairs to Biddle, whom he chided had all the money, further inflaming anti-bank sentiments. The bank is very understated. They hid it in the back corner where no one By April 4, 1834, the House, led by Ways and Means Committee Chairman James K. Polk, declared the bank ought not to be rechartered, instead urging the investigation of whether the bank had deliberately instigated the panic through shady monetary policies. <laughs> By New Year's Day 1835, President Jackson paid off the entire national debt, which is the only time in U.S. history that that has ever been and will ever be accomplished. The federal government raised funds through the duty revenues and the sale of public lands acquired through expansion. Less than a month later, on January 30, 1835, President Andrew Jackson survived the first assassination attempt ever on a sitting U.S. president, just outside the Capitol, 
when an unemployed Englishman named Richard Lawrence misfired a pistol aimed at Jackson, then pulled out a second pistol that also misfired. Andrew Jackson began beating the would-be assailant with his cane until both the president and would-be assassin were restrained by Senator Davy Crockett. In a bizarre turn of events, the attempted assassin claimed to be the deposed King Richard III from the Middle Ages and told his interrogators that money would be more plenty with Jackson dead, while claiming that he could not rise until the president had fallen. Needless to say, he pled insanity and was institutionalized. In 1836, the charter for the Second Bank of the United States expired. Derivative speculation and other unstable schemes spread to state and local banks as real estate on newly controlled lands exploded. Figuratively speaking, of course. In 1836, Jackson's Specie Circular Executive Order responding to wild land speculation required that all government lands be paid for in gold or silver coin. However, as a result, banks had difficulty meeting the high demand for specie coin over banknotes. Jackson left office in April and the following month of May brought the Panic of 1837 a financial crisis that deepened into a depression that would last until the mid-1840s. The combination of Jackson's policies, speculative lending in America, declining cotton prices, wage drops, and the results of Britain's restrictive lending and lack of investment sealed the fate of a classic boom and bust, with prolonged economic pain. In response, New York banks suspended specie payments and discounted paper money redemption and specie coin. A recession lasted the majority of the next seven years, while banks collapsed, businesses failed, and jobs disappeared, leading to mass unemployment. The national debt, so recently paid off, now swelled. In the year after the anti-bank Jackson left office, under his successor Martin Van Buren, Britain exported a hoard of gold to the U.S. The article notes that the Bank of England, via Mr. King and directors of the board of the Bank of England, gave life and animation to the U.S., but will lead to extensive orders for our various manufacturers by sending a reported £1 million. The Rothschild Banking House sent an additional £250,000 and other firms various amounts, totaling about £2 million sterling. The newspapers touted the astonishing effect of the gold transfusion on the economy, enabling the U.S. to resume desired cash payments and meet bills from Canada. Ironically, it was on the package ship George Washington that 100,000 sovereigns were shipped with a larger payload on the Columbus. The first bank of the United suck. Second Bank of, uh, uh, Second Bank of BS. As with all history, there's the main story that takes center stage to consume the majority of the audience's attention. And then there's the behind-the-scenes story, taking place in the background, which goes largely undiscussed. Between 1836 and 1837, Jackson began transferring central bank deposits from the now set to expire Second Bank of the United States to selected state banks, 
which by that point were popping up by the hundreds. The U.S. was also negotiating a loan of 1.2 million sterling from the Bank of England to, quote, aid in America's transition away from the Second Bank of the United States, end quote. Draining further gold from two central banks, thereafter reallocated to American states. Hard currencies flowed into state banks to pay for land purchases, as dictated by the species circular. More than 57 million acres, while credit for public projects expanded uncontrollably. At work, however, was not just Jackson. Financial houses based in the same country the young American nation fought two wars against were very much at the heart of this expansion, with Barings Bank chief among them. Canals and railroad projects, mortgages, all were readily financed by loans doled out from London's financial houses. And according to Reginald McGrain and foreign bondholders and American state debts, at least 42 major individual investors held titles of nobility in England. These investors had become accustomed to lending out an abundance of their idle funds and wantonly placed implicit faith in American securities. Quote, All stocks and bonds carrying the pledge of the faith of the state were given careful consideration. And thus, with the great accumulation of energy and currency, the stage for panic was set. But this particular panic was triggered in Britain, when in March 1837, three Anglo-American lending houses based in the city of London, Wilson & Co., Wigan & Co., and Wilds & Co., were suddenly unable to meet their immediate engagements. And after two rounds of intervention, the Bank of England refused to nurse these three W's any longer. And so these lending houses suspended payment by June, in turn compounding trouble with British finances and turning off the spigot overseas. As McGrain wrote, quote, The financial crisis in England destroyed the credit bridge over which American commerce flowed. Large amounts of protested bills were returned. American merchants appealed to the Atlantic seaboard banks for specie to remit to Europe. But much of their specie was already across the mountains as a result of the specie circular. After Jackson supposedly killed the bank, Nicholas Biddle immediately attempted to get it rechartered in Pennsylvania promising the state a $4.5 million bonus and millions more in concessions, which induced Pennsylvania to unwisely put all its eggs into Biddle's banker basket and allowed this iteration of the U.S. bank to take control of all Pennsylvania's financial functions. Its stocks, subscriptions to railroads and turnpikes, loans and payments, debts and obligations, etc. Pennsylvania even suspended its taxes on property relying on the bank to come up with that income instead. As the recession spread and national debt swelled, Biddle also attempted to set up a branch of the zombie U.S. bank over in Britain, endeavoring to establish a, quote, running credit of one million with the Bank of England in the hopes of circumventing bearings as the dominant house financing American trade. McGrain continued, The breakdown of the financial system in the U.S. gave Nicholas Biddle an opportunity to demonstrate his cleverness as a financier. The United States Bank and its associates came into possession of mercantile notes representing loans made on cotton. 
If the price of cotton could be raised, not only would the banks be strengthened, but American merchants would be able to liquidate their foreign debts through the usual method of cotton shipments. Biddle, therefore, decided to advance funds to cotton planters in order to enable them to hold their crops for a rise in price and to set up his own establishment in Liverpool to which the cotton would be consigned. But Biddle's U.S. bank couldn't keep up the payments on interest and fulfill its too-good-to-be-true promises to Pennsylvania. Instead, it failed epically, and the zombie bank had to eat its own, closing its doors in 1837. Same year it was rechartered. Once leading the nation's prosperity, the entire state of Pennsylvania was now in default and on the verge of bankruptcy. Quote, its failure left the state of Pennsylvania practically without... So you get the gist of that, and we're going to play the last clip in the intermission, and then we'll go to the post-intermission and wrap it up. Uh, But you get the gist. There's uh, some financial interests. They come to power. They are also partnered with uh, a former military conflict kind of group that America had been engaged with a couple years before. And instead of, um, I mean, Andrew Jackson, he won the Battle of New Orleans in 1814 that sent the British packing home. And the British were, you know, 1812, they burned down the White House. They were in D.C. Redcoats be everywhere back then. Andrew Jackson, 1814, sends them packing. 20 years later, they're back with economic warfare. And Jackson, like he went broke after that, right? Like right after the 1814 thing, it said at the beginning how he had lost a bunch of money. So the economic warfare started right after that. And as the Rothschilds rose to power and aided the British empire, bailing out, like they bailed them out with Wellington. They bailed out the Bank of England. They got the Royal Mint. They got that Mercury Caduceus on their, their, uh, their doorway and that represented the the spain uh uh mercury mines that they need to refine it and then you put that together with like the american gold rush who where did wells fargo come from whose bank is that who's bringing all that gold from california west coast back to where the royal mint to make coins for gold that goes around the world with you know here's liberty on it all right so um let's play this last clip in the intermission it is uh it was from a video that was titled like 12 monkeys is going on now or something like that. Oh, 12 this, monkeys movie. Yeah. Yeah. This is happening in real life. Yeah. How we're all living in it now. So let's go ahead and this is just, I'm, I'm not advocating that whole video because I found it interesting. Yeah, it's kind but, of, you know, it's gnarly. Yeah. It has some really but, good bits and some really, but the part where I was listening to this p- clip we're going to play got me to go look in the book. I found some interesting things, but let's, let's go like that. Let's do it like that. Which, oh, do we have the time code for it? As the yeah, Club of Rome section. So I was looking for it, but it's a lot of this like Catholic dude. Right. So as soon as the Catholic dude's off screen, as soon as the Jesuit superior general, I mean, it's the Black Pope at the beginning and end of the video. It's interesting enough if you want to see what the Black Pope has to say. But uh, the, the Jesuit superior general, I think he's technically called. But in between that, was the audio clip that I was like, where did they come from? Did they come from his radio show. And then as I got into the book, I think it was Bill Cooper reading his own book passage during a radio broadcast. And I found the passage. I, I, think. I think this is like, well, I think this might be an LD. It's like, uh, around yeah, he talks about, well, 
Yeah, I think this is it. So 24 minutes, I think. Let me put it on screen. We can work it, it through together if we have to. Yeah, pretty. I think it starts at 24 minutes. Try that and see if that makes if that makes sense to Rich. If not, then we'll keep searching. Crawling right. my book, including the documentation. Oh, yeah. Sounds like yeah, this is it. Because I'm looking at the club. Dr. Aureli Pacei wrote this, and you can find it. You can find it, ladies and gentlemen, on page 607 of the Global 2000 Report to the President, which was signed by Jimmy Carter. He said, and I quote, Man has skyrocketed from a defensive position, largely subordinated to nature's alternatives, to a new and dominant one. From it, he not only can and does influence everything in the world, but voluntarily or unwittingly can and indeed does determine the alternatives of his own future, and ultimately must choose his options for it. In other words, his novel power condition practically compels him to take up a new regulatory function that willy-nilly he has had to discharge with respect to the world's mixed natural human systems. Having penetrated a number of the erstwhile mysteries and being able to sway events massively, he is now vested with unprecedented, tremendous responsibilities and thrown into the new role of moderator of life on the planet, including his own, end quote. The funding for this project was obtained from the United States Congress under House Bill 15090 in 1969, where $10 million was given to the Department of Defense's 1970 budget. Testimony before the Senate Committee revealed that they intended to produce a synthetic biological agent, an agent that does not naturally exist and for which no natural immunity could have been acquired. Within the next five to ten years, it would probably be possible to make a new infective microorganism which could differ in certain important aspects from any known disease-causing organisms. Most important of these is that it might be refractory to the immunological and therapeutic processes upon which we depend to maintain our relative freedom from infectious disease." End quote. Sir Julian Huxley said, Overpopulation is, in my opinion, the most serious threat to the whole future of our species. The project called M.K. Naomi was carried out at Fort Detrick, Maryland. You'll find reference to it in several congressional investigations. You'll find reference to it in the research of some very good investigators. But that's about all you'll find. You see, most of the people involved with that project have mysteriously disappeared or died. All of the records are either so highly classified that you'll never see them for the next hundred years or have been destroyed. Can you imagine if the public could have access to the research funded by Congress and conducted under Project MK Naomi to produce to produce synthetic biological agents to control the population of the world. Too far-fetched? Get off your lazy butts and start digging, like I did. And you'll find out that it's not far-fetched at all, 
to find reference to these things and to these discussions and to meetings concerning these issues and to proposals and to implementation of plans ever since the end of World War II. Our viewers today, I... All right. So <clears throat> the book he's talking about is his book, Behold a Pale Horse, William Cooper, published 1991. It was almost the title of this week's episode, but I thought it was too gloomy given what's going on in the world. But uh, <clears throat> let's just dip into it real quick, real quick. We had that reference earlier tonight about uh, the energy discourse and the paper currency induction method. I wanted to jump to page 119 because this is relevant to what we're talking about. The executive level here at the, pre uh, he's, pre this is from, let me do it like this. 1953, during the Reese Committee's uh, investigation of un-American activities into the International Nonprofit Foundation, the president of Ford Foundation, a fellow named H. Rowan Gaither, said, quote, we, are at, we here at the executive level are in, <clears throat> let me do it again. We at the executive level here were, e were active either in OSS, the State Department, or the European Economic Administration. During those times, and without exception, we operated under directions issued by the White House. We are continuing to be guided by just such directives, the substance of which were to serve to the effect that we should make every effort to so alter a life in the United States as to make possible a comfortable merger with the Soviet Union. <clears throat> All right, so now we'll get to the relevant pages. These are, um, I couldn't find the exact quote, so I tracked down the pages as follows. 166, uh, he's talking about a third study of the Club of Rome ending in 1968 to determine the limits of the growth. So we know about this. We've talked about this in earlier episodes. However, Bill uh, Bill Cooper didn't have the internet back in 1991. So good for him, knowing that the Club of Rome, they had done these various studies starting uh, back here. The first study during World War II, the second studies in 1957, Huntsville, Alabama. And then it goes to the Club of Rome, which then goes to the World Economic Forum. Over here, the several top secret recommendations were made by Dr. Aurelio Pache of the Club of Rome. He advocated that a plague be introduced that would have the same effect as the famous Black Death of history. The chief recommendation was to develop a microbe that would attack the autoimmune system and thus render the development of a vaccine impossible. Maybe this is the same quote. The orders were given to develop the microbe and to develop a prophylactic and a cure. That'd be like a vaccine, right? The microbe would be used against the general population and would be introduced by vaccine. Now, that's the part where I'm like, they had an aerosolized mRNA vaccine that they're going to spray on bats. How did Bill Cooper know that in 1991? Well, hold on real quick. In Project Diffuse that you read on the record yeah, um, the that's past DARPA. two weeks, here it says the chief recommendation was develop the microbe, which would attack the autoimmune system, thus render the development of vaccine impossible. That's actually in the project. In the Diffuse. document, yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's in there. It's in the DAZAC DARPA diffuse proposal. Yeah. The prophylactic was to be used by 
the ruling elite. The cure would be administered to the survivors when it was decided that enough people have died. The cure will be announced as a newly developed when in fact it has existed from the beginning. This plan is part of the global 2000. The prophylactic and the cure are suppressed. I was like, oh, that's prescient information. Mr. Cooper from 1991 in the past. Let's look at this page. Page 168, talking about Pache. Uh, page 607 of the Global 2000 document, report to the president. Sir Julian Huxley said, so this is continues to be what he read on the radio clip there, right? Word for word, pretty much verbatim, because he's talking about MK Naomi at Fort Detrick, Maryland. And then it talks about the loosing of something else that might've been cooked up by these people. And um, let's see, the Hague Kissinger depopulation policy. And where was the other pieces? I was trying to sort out where were the uh, MK Naomi references in this book, but there's on page 170 Kissinger created this group. So the global 2000 report calls for doubling the, the figure of, uh, investing in this depopulation movement. Henry Kissinger created this group after a discussion with leaders of the Club of Rome during the 1974 population conferences in Bucharest and Rome. The Club of Rome is controlled by Europe's black nobility. Interesting claim. Mm. Alexander Haig is a firm believer in population control. It was Haig who backed Kissinger, yada, yada, yada. All right. So then they go into uh, oh, wait, population no. bomb by Ehrlich. I'm just kind of like showing you, he's mentioning Pache and this whole agenda of Club in Rome over several pages going into page 172, where he starts to talk about MK Naomi and Fort Detrick under the supervision of CIA. And we know that means under supervision of MI6 and it's tied to Port and down because they're not, they're not separate. So it's interesting what he had to say. I'm not saying what everything that Bill Cooper said here is true. I'm just putting it on screen and saying uh, there's there's something to what's going on. I think there's a lot of noise and a little bit of signal here. We need to maybe focus and uh, uh, figure out these various parts and which you know are more actual and factual, and which ones are speculative in his book from again before the internet. It's uh, you know he's going to the library. He's putting stuff together. He's got some personal experience. He claims to have been attached to Office of Naval Intelligence. He says that uh, a lot in his work, these sort of things. So it's not about the messenger, who, by the way, was killed on November 5th, mm -hmm. 2001. Remember, remember, remember the 5th, the of, 5th November. of November. Gunpowder, treason, and plot. Sure. Yep. Well, that's when uh, Bill Cooper met his and demise. By the way, his death, that people aren't aware of it. Law enforcement. He was shot yeah, by. I was just going to say that. Yeah. He was shot was by people with badges who may not have liked the content of his book. I don't know if they were well, fans. The whole situation surrounding them even being there and showing up to the city. Like, it's a very strange anomaly. He also situation. predicted 9 11 on mm -hmm. his, what was it, the hour of the time or something like that was his, his radio show. His back radio show. Yeah. And uh, so between Bill Cooper, Alex Jones, Johnny on the spot, Alex Jones continues to live. Bill yeah. Cooper does not. That's true. That is very true. There is a, uh, he mentioned a computer model in uh, being developed for the Club of Rome. And that was Jay Forrester's model. Yeah. If we remember correctly, he froze on the screen, but I see he's still. Oh, I'm um, froze. Let's see what's going on with this. But either way, um, that's Jay Forrester's model, the cybernetician, um, talking about 
uh, closed system feedback loops um, in the environment and weaponizing Arthur Tansley's idea of ecology that Arthur Tansley rightfully called out as just as that. Arthur Tansley. Ecology. I know that from uh, Adam Curtis. The movie, abuse and I? abuse of vegetational concepts is what he claimed was that, that Farrell Forrester was doing. Of course, that ended up in the Club of Rome is for the first publication. And you can actually see that famous diagram where he talks about pollution and human interaction and supply chains. And he has all these arrows pointed to various bubbles on this map. Um, it's very interesting, but a complete fabrication of his own. Anyway, so I'll just point out, I'll just point out the obvious, the club of Rome report limits the growth, all that sort of conclusion type stuff comes about after Macy conferences. They're like, what is possible with our command and control? Right. And they're like, all right, let's make some goals. So there's not a lot of, you know, it's not too far a leap between MK ultra to MK Naomi, you know, what's possible oh, yeah. versus practical applications. And the Macy uh, conferences are that. important, right? And I'll get back to this in a second. The Macy conferences are important because Forrester is sort of like the actionable arm of the thinkers behind cybernet- cybernetics, such as Norbert Wiener and um, human use of human beings. And that I went want to check that book. Yeah. I did a little bit of a deep dive into that because it was mentioned when um, you were in Florida, we got into that, especially the idea of cybernetics as being a helmsman, Kybernetes, and uh, how he viewed sort of the industrial viewpoint from the standpoint of emerging AI technology. This is 1950s. 1950s are talking about this stuff. I'm not going to read this. I'm just going to get it on the record. Like if you just search like MK Naomi for Dietrich plus for, this is like the first thing that comes up. Um, I guess this is part of one of the releases associated with some JFK files. I don't know. It's on archives.gov and they sort of, this might be some of the congressional uh, research into the matter. Um, I don't know. Is that, is that B5 there, Rich Law? Just kidding. <laughs> but you get the point. So you can check that out. Oh, there's IG Farben. Uh, so on I, oh, maybe not. Sorry. Anyway, Rockefeller Commission, staff members. Anyway, it's, it's, I love how the Rockefeller Commission got to the bottom of all the Rockefeller Foundation investments in these things. <laughs> CIA really? Yeah, right. Is Nothing there a case CIA. where the invest, look, Rockefeller found like Rockefeller Commission investigating Rockefeller activities is just like Dazak investigating yeah. the lab where he funded it is just like, you know, when, when the Philip people doing it, and it's like Alan yeah. Dulles being on the Warren commission. Oh, Do we yeah. notice a pattern? If you pay attention, you might catch the rhythm of the song that's being played and it's not God bless America. <laughs> Speaking of that, it's a good Speaking segue. of that. Yeah. That's a good segue. Let's, let's try it out. There was a new nine 11 piece of footage that was floated in the past week. Here's the story. I wake up as I do every day. Eventually I see, I got some messages. I checked them. I got a message from a buddy of mine. He's like, I think you'll find this interesting. So I clicked the video. The video is an analysis of the video that was released. Okay. So this guy, Kevin, he releases a video on his YouTube page. He might have 10 videos on his YouTube page, by the way, I've watched all 10 videos by this point in the conversation today, but earlier in the day, I had no idea who this guy was. So I watched the analysis and I thought, interesting. And I don't hear the song because it's not in the analysis. He cut it out so he didn't get copyright and he won't show the video because it's probably a honey trap. So we're not, we're going to just show you stills. We're not going to play the video. You can go to the YouTube page and see the thing. So I watched the analysis and then I'm like, of course, I want to see the source material. And the guy who did the analysis thoughtfully linked the source material. Here's Kevin's original post and video. And I watch and I check it out and 
I watch it again. And then I have my wife come over. I'm like, Hey, watch this. Let me know. Like, what do you, what do you see? And the long story short, cause we're not going to, do we want to risk playing the, the honeypot video? Like it's, it's like if you're a mouse sniffing around a mouse trap and it's got peanut butter on it and you're like, I don't see peanut butter too often. This is really, this is kind of like, if we the, take the, down the YouTube stream, we it's kind of like peanut butter on yeah. a mouse trap. So I don't want to get my nose caught in it necessarily, but I want to show you that the mouse trap exists. We could preface it by one shutting down the YouTube stream and two by saying we don't necessarily endorse the video itself because we can't necessarily verify the claims in it, but it is just an interesting artifact at three in the morning or four in the morning that we would like to preserve on this time capsule we call GTW. Or we could yeah, just show and the what stills. I'm thinking is LD, if we can get Jeremy Reese maybe and we can uh, have a commentary on it, even if it's just during the week and not during the live show or something like that. Uh, he's somebody who I think would, would have some interesting thoughts on the, the Providence and how that video came to be. Cause if you dig into it, just like what I did after I watched it. So I watched the analysis. I watched the source video three times, probably four times. And then I went and watched every video on that guy's YouTube page. And then so many things jumped out at me. So the guy who posted the video is a retired Lieutenant Colonel from the United States air force who has worked on special, uh, airplane type, uh, experimental airplanes at like groom Lake, Las Vegas type of airport air area 51. You might call it. Yeah, area 51, he's worked, right. he's trained overseas at the UK. His retirement party is held in London. He's got an American flag and a British flag behind him. They played two national anthems at his retirement because he's an Anglo-American double crosser. It seems I'm not making accusations. I'm just saying, you know, where is he coming from? He's pretty close with this Anglo-American agenda. And he was Johnny on the spot that day to not only get this footage that we might show or have to like show stills of, but he also identified it was allegedly United airlines, which I thought was pretty good since the, the plane was in the shadow from where he's standing. Then he said, it's the second commercial airliner. And at that point, no one in the world knew that except really the terrorists and the intelligence agencies and the people that were like doing it. Right. No, it wasn't they shown, announced it in the mainstream yet. World trade center seven had no footage of it shown to the public until the following day. And that guy's they're filming it live. He's not, there's no radio or anything playing around him telling him what's going on. There's a couple parts. There's like three parts of the story that were known too early at that point. I'm like, Hmm, that's pretty shady. It's almost as if the people who were doing it, he works with them and they sent him like, and his footage didn't make the cuts. They're like, ah, just hang on to that. But when world war three was a break about to break out and Russia invaded Ukraine, he uploaded that video apparently to YouTube, which is why it became popularized this week. Right. Yeah. It was a big talking point in the GTW community itself. I saw a lot of uh, discussion around it in the various channels. So I'm not making accusations. It's fresh news from the past week. I just, uh, it's been brought to my attention this morning and I'm like looking through it and clicking and I didn't put too much time into it, but I saw enough to say, Oh, and so at the end of the video, he's got some other footage. He cuts in a song and that's where it got interesting. Cause it's like, there's a thumbprint of like (laughs) spookiness on the end of it. And basically he plays this song, uh, uh, God bless America. And it's a song that was recorded during world war one, but wasn't released till world war two, 20 years later. And like this guy made this footage in nine 11 and 20 years later, he releases it. And then if you read the sign on the front of the bus, there's a whole bunch of little Easter eggy type things in it. It's also the time of the video. It's which is why I think it's like mouse trapping. Yeah. 
You know, know what I'm saying? I hear you, dude. I hear you. Like it's there's like numerology, there's all this weird stuff going into it that people are really getting into and reading into. And there might he's either communicating through these sort of esoteric sciences or it's a mouse that's a honey. I'll, pot, I'll, I'll go trap, one or two better. Sort of they show his entire retirement ceremony. He shows you the program. So there's a whole bunch of information you can glean from this. Then one of the other videos he uploaded on the same day was like this horned owl. And there's like a Northrop Grumman horned owl reaper drone type situation. There's just all this stuff that, so anyway, weird, not saying occult people run the world and control CERN and things like this, or right? we I'm should not play that, that. And then a Greg Reese video right afterwards. Cause Greg Watch Reese Aaron and Melissa Dykes. Yeah. It's, there's a lot of videos they got that'll tip yeah. you off to what's going on. And it's way above like Ben Shapiro's pay grade. Let me just tell you that, right? I'll just draw. It's those late. dudes out there with millions and millions and millions of followers. This is above their pay grade, but it exists. And you can see it like at truth stream media or grand mm-hmm. theft world or Corbin report or any number of people that are actually looking into the sources, reading the documents and not waiting for some other source to filter it out for them. So <clears throat> we can cover that. Let's look, let's look at the analysis. And then we'll leave, let people go find the source clip and his YouTube page, just like I found it for myself. So let's check out. Uh, I'm not sure. I just make this LD. What do we got? I don't oh, have on the show card. But... Yeah, I've got it pulled up. You got it. Oh, I didn't know it was playing. And who's That's... the maker of it? Uh, what's his name? Jeez. <laughs> Sorry. Um, it was on, I've got a foot pedal. I'm still trying to get used to. That's good. Um, got, LD's got three foot pedals that he can work stuff now. So he's like getting oh, yeah. coordinated. He's like the drummer. Three buttons. Yeah. Three buttons. Double pedal. Button. And then you got to control the hi-hat. Who is this? He's it's, like the drummer from the band that didn't die. He's not like our Keith Moon. He's not our John Bonham. He's <clears throat> he's going to be with the band a long time with these pedals. All right. Let's see if you can make this. Who, who's that? Yeah, let's get to the Yeah, this is the, the page is called The Outer Light. Uh, never seen, never seen before nine... 11 video drops same day as ukraine invasion so, yeah i had never seen this uh this creator's work but someone who i trust uh f- for interesting things showed it to me so i looked and this one happened all let's right. check it out hi this is ed just want to talk about something quite interesting so we're going to take a deep dive into kevin westley's uh channel there on youtube and the 9 11 footage never seen before in 20 20- 20 years so there's a lot of cryptic things happening in at this particular channel so just some background or some context here on what's happening this video uh, which is 9-11 Kevin's video is never released uh, never footage ever seen before of 9-11 and not only that but key footage of the plane hitting the towers But it gets more interesting than that when you have a look at the other videos on this channel. First off, this footage was released the same day as uh, Russia invaded the Ukraine. Okay, and a lot of people are thinking that even maybe now that you could have, uh, you know, something spin out of control into World War Three. However, that is interesting on itself. So let's just take a very quick look at this footage here. So I'm not going to play it because I'll link you to the channel. 
But basically what happens here is you have a plane hitting the towers, right? Uh, you have close-ups of the towers, as you can see here, uh, planes, uh, you know, hitting the towers. First of all, you've got obviously smoke from the other plane, and then you pan back to the people. Uh, let's just play this uh, bit of this video here. But he said on his channel, uh, I think in the description of one of them, you know, that he took this footage, right? Well, there's something allusion to that. I can't remember exactly where it is. So he must have been at the location when this was going down, right? When all these things were going down at the location taking this footage. Quite interesting stuff, actually. And of course, we have here after a little bit, you have the plane itself, as you can see there, the plane flying through the sky into the towers. Now, that's important, obviously, historically, right? If you want to watch the whole video, of course, I'll put that in the description, although you should be able to find it quite easily, actually. You just type in that name there. It's got 146,000 views. Now, what's interesting about that, obviously, is in regarding the video itself. So he would have had to been at the location when he took it. So if you go to his channel, you see a number of interesting things. It seems to document the life of Kevin Wesley. And this was Kevin's video that he took at the location. Now, you have to be clear with a couple of things. It's possible Pause that it someone could pretend. Are the videos, uh, the, I noticed when I went to that YouTube page on my own outside of the video we're watching mm -hmm. that it showed like, here's Kevin's videos. And then when I clicked one of the other tabs, it popped up three extra videos. And it's about like uh, his time in Germany and there was like yeah. a Hofbra House video. Oktoberfest slideshow. Oh, is that showing in there? Ceremony. Yeah, I'm okay, saying yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, good. I'm, yeah, I'm there looking at it. Yeah, because if you just go to the home on that page, it doesn't show yeah. those three videos. That happens yeah, right, a lot, right. actually. Yeah, yeah, right that happens a lot. That's pretty common. Yeah, yeah so I watched all of those. Yeah. I it's them the out. one under the videos, yeah. All right, back to the video. Tend to be someone else right, for a long period of time, including having their retirement ceremony published. So just putting that out there, although I don't think that's the case. So you have this 9-11 video posted the same day as the invasion of the Ukraine. But what's interesting about this also is if you take the video and then go to the end where it just show, seems to show stock footage, well, his footage that he probably took on vacation, you turn this up, you're going to get uh, some music. So let's have a listen That's to the this UN. music here. God bless America. That's what's kind of playing. You can't really hear it. And that's copyright thing, probably for on, on his end. All right. So what did the bus, when the bus pulled up, what does the sign say? I didn't, I didn't catch it right here. Can you scrub back uh, just a it's second? It's a little blurry. Let's see. Tracy something. I saw comments about a sign that was either on the front oh. of the bus or the train, and it shows both right there. So. I'm guessing Amazing Race. It looks like race. Amazing mm. Race. Mm. That's mine. And what's this train say when it cuts in? B. Does it say anything on the front? Just B? B, right. yeah. The B right. train. So then people noticed that God Bless America also was held in an embargo 
for 20 years. That's what they call okay, it when they hold so, a piece of media. Uh, in regard to that song, it's quite well known or to some people, but as it was pointed out by one reply here, and there's a lot of information that uh, cross-referenced here from the Chans, God Bless America okay, was written in uh, 1918 as the storm clouds gathered for World War I, but wasn't released until 20 years later when the world stood at the brink of World War II. Just like this, just like now. Peace to us all. Um, so... Um, it's quite interesting, isn't it? And I believe this is a screen cap from the comment section here. But the point is, is the video is 9-11 footage never seen before. Okay, then it cuts and it kind of, that's ends and it shows other probably travel footage taken around the same period with God Bless America in it about storm clouds gathering. Remember, this was posted the time of the Ukraine invasion. And, uh, and this was a song that happens to be in the video at that point that hadn't been released for 20 years until the build-up to World War II. It's actually rewritten. There's some information which I read about it online. So it's a purposeful message, right? It's a purposeful message that has these that is layered to have effect, right? And has an effect, obviously, in reference to the Ukraine or something along those lines. Is it a scheduled video? I don't know, uh, you know, or did they upload it particularly at this date? Um, do you have some of that here? So who is Kevin Wesley? Remember, it shows very clearly the planes hitting the towers. Well, apparently, Kevin, if you look at his channel, works in nuclear. Okay, for instance, um, this here, if we go to program, you'll see that he, on December the 23rd, 2014, which was the day he, around uh, about the time he retired in 2014, if you look at his uh, retirement there, it says an honor here, uh, Lieutenant uh, Colonel Kevin D. Wesley, 15th of January 1992 to the 1st of September 2014. And it goes through, um, you know, what he was in charge of, you know, his background, you know. Uh, you know, and things of that nature. And in that, you can see he is someone that, uh, you know, uh, was an exchange officer at the United Kingdom's Ministry of Defense, atomic weapons, uh, and things of that nature, right? So when you cross-reference that, okay, uh, in relation to all this stuff, which you get is the LinkedIn profile and things of that nature. Here's some of God bless the America. There's some of the... Uh, text in terms of the lines there um, so here you have if you were clip if you clip on that video you see special programs flight flight test manager at uh, where uh, well uh, that would be at Las Vegas Nevada where do you test planes in Las Vegas Nevada well, one of the places there obviously the biggest test range is what um, and that's at the Air Force Flight Center there uh, one of the places you test flies, uh, planes is actually Groom Lake, right? Groom Lake, Nevada, Dreamland, right? And he is involved in atomic weapons. And okay, you have these layers of the song being released and things of this nature, uh, 20 years old, never seen before 9-11 footage, when a lot of people would be very interested in seeing that footage. But... It remained never in the public domain, wasn't even sold, it looks like to any channels for 20 years or nothing happened with it. 
it was just laid in a can somewhere, as they say, obviously a videotape. But, uh, you know, special program flight test manager. Okay, quite interesting stuff there. And here is his LinkedIn. Check out the LinkedIn page of this individual. Kevin Wesley there, again. You can reference this because there's cross-references with what he says in his own uh, bio there in his retirement, right? Worked for Boeing for seven years. Chief engineer. Chief engineer, right? Well done. I mean, it takes a lot to get to that kind of position. Well done on that. Um, test director, as we see here. Okay, lead test director and things of that nature. Lead product flight certification efforts for the Department of Defense, the FAA, so on. Senior program manager, UK Ministry of Defense. This probably has to do with their nuclear weapons program that uh, they have over there, or at least, uh, you know, um, nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, here you have the B-61 nuclear bomb program management office. So he worked for a year there, uh, again, it's under the Department of Energy and the Department of Defense Nuclear Weapon Department Program, onto aircraft and into the stockpile. Deputy Director of Engineering, Nuclear Systems Wing. Okay, so this person Can pause it for a second? is an extremely serious... I bet when most people think about the Department of Energy, you don't think about the energy delivered by bombs. But clearly, that's what he's showing you. That there's a mixture. There's a mixture between the Department of Energy, Department of Defense, and the incendiary kind of weapons and uh, other types of weapons that they drop on other people around the world. Go ahead, continue to play it out. It's almost done. This person in a place, okay, with some ultra level. You'd need ultra level classifications, right? You must do, right? You can't walk into these places and get jobs. You can't do any of that, right? And this right. same person I'm sniffing. I'm sniffing. seems on, to have. Pause. The guy, the that whole movement with the letter that comes between, uh, it comes right before R, right? There's that group and they follow that guy and he's got the letter for his name. Sure. Group of people, right? Mm -hmm. I know what you're talking about, yeah. He held the atomic, the that clearance was Department of Energy clearance. Oh, really? I, yeah. I never really followed that. In yeah, depth, and so that seems really like a very double-crossy type operation right there, yeah, right? Yeah, From clearly. the get now, it's starting to make sense just because we're looking into this little piece right here, but we're starting to see the pattern to the bigger picture. All right, so double-cross propaganda. They use that single-letter movement to kind of pull people away and, like, polarize and demonize. Okay, could be a huge red herring yeah. yeah 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 all right let's continue to see what this analysis a really yields. well done red herring yeah uh a video that they recorded of the planes hitting the twin towers very important video because there's a very clear view of the planes hitting the world trade center building there that has never been seen before for 20 years then drops it on the day of the russian invasion Again, with illusions of the song to the end, maybe on purpose, maybe not, of the 20-year mark. So I just thought it was quite interesting to share this. Of course, a lot of other people can look into it. But isn't it a weird world we live in? Very weird, isn't it? Very weird indeed. So let's have a look at a couple here. Just uh, Of course, you can go over to his channel and check out his content. But these, of course, were 
added later, okay? Okay, so these are, uh, he shot on, uh, this is where the video was shot, right? Video I shot on 9-11 may not be published without permission, okay? Won't publish any of it. Okay, we're just going to just jump around it. This okay, is not like video this, But basically shot. it's pictures of stuff he shot on 9-11, so you can go check yeah, that He out. didn't shoot that. See, that's a misconception. And it here's says another one, Horned Owl. Okay, we've already got that one there. And this is, I guess, um, stuff to do with the Horned Owl. But what's very interesting about this is the kind of music being used, okay? The, very, the music being used. Good riddance, time of your life. Well, it's a death robot it's in the sky. What's going on the, here? The Lockheed Horned Owl is we don't death know if this the is actual, yeah. uh, someone impersonating someone else or something else or some kind of weird message. Pause real Who quick. Who really knows? We got into the owl as well, talking about the Saturnalian cult and how the, the owl represents sort of death or the messenger of death. In a way, it's like, a, it's not, it's like Mercury, the god Mercury, but it's not Mercury in so far as the mystery. And Minerva, yeah, it's more related. They talked about in Bill Clipper's book. I think I just mm -hmm. saw it earlier. <laughs> Well, let's stay on topic. There's a there's a unmanned drone that's called the Horned Owl, and that guy worked at UA U, United States Air Force on such projects. So okay, but that video is uploaded the same day. Is it like is that a pointing toward a drone type of situation? I don't know what what's the purpose of that part of the psychological warfare operation, Tony? When they yeah, upload those two videos like, together, man, I'm telling you, this feels so sketchy. Uh, I'm not saying the stuff that's being, I mean, this, it's, I don't even know where to begin. I'm like, it's almost too late for me for my brain to function knowing that's like, fine too. With, I just wanted like, to like, let people know it's out there. So by next week we can learn a lot more about it. Yeah, certainly I'll, I'll, we'll marinate on this quick. Cause I actually didn't watch it on purpose. I wanted to be, I wanted to see it like in this position. Well, as soon as we're now. done, everyone's going to go watch that video. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, circulating let me like know crazy if, again. But yeah. To me, and I don't want to be the spoiler, but let me know if you hear the plane coming before it comes into the video. Because it seems like the editor brings the sound and the picture into the video at the same time. <laughs> what was that one video we watched like 10 years ago? In plain yeah. sight, 9 11 in, in plain, plain sight, sight which does, I don't care about the messengers. They took source footage from the CNN CD mm -hmm. and they show you what happens when the planes are about to hit the building and the graphics have to go screeching halt and these sort of Dude, things. It's not even just the graphics. It's yeah. like the backgrounds context is different. Well, there was also 9-11 clues like by Simon Shack, I believe is his name. 9-11 uh, yeah. clues. Yeah, I remember him. And all the network stations that day had different hues. One was purple, one was yellow, one was green. It wasn't just like variations like All their cameras camera. were off. Yeah, it was like but, but, coordinated but it was, thing. But it was strange because it was dramatic how much they were off. Like it wasn't something you could deduce and say, well, it's probably just a function of the fact that the cameras are all a little different. No, this was like wild differences. Yeah, between, yeah. it's like NATO like, different. That's what yeah, I'm going to say. Yes. It's NATO different. NATO that's different. <laughs> <laughs> that's very well said. Yeah, that's this is seen. There's something weird here. I mean, this is this is a cult. It's like Psy War written all over it. But as we know with Psy War, there's a lot of truth that Psy War always imparts on their operations it's what they omit what they gaslight with what they draw attention to and building a straw man whatever they're attempting to do that we have to be careful of. but this is fascinating i'm not gonna lie so yeah so i'm interested to see what the yet to be identified object is in that guy's footage some interesting 
anyways, I mentioned numerological references. People are passing out in the channels as well and discord, all that stuff. So too late to get that on the record right now, but just, there's a lot of weird stuff that even beyond what Rich and I are discussing that has been discussed in the GTW discords. So if you're interested should, to join the community and, uh, yeah. All right. So at this point, LD, who do we got to thank for tonight's episode? Who's the sponsor of this episode? Let's check it out. Well, the sponsor would be our uh, our supporters, our community, Grand Theft World members. And if you're new to the show, visit GrandTheftWorld.com. Click here in the top right, join community, and uh, check out a level of support you'd like to give us. You know, we try to deliver a whole bunch of info in... Uh, big chunk of time <laughs> each week i also want to give but, a plug for my course so yeah. people that join let me just log in so people can see the thing um okay scrolling at the bottom so, so right, right now people who are uh members of grand theft world are getting access to your course how's it going to work Tony? yeah people who become subscribers or members obviously of the grand theft world community have access to join and participate in the course I'll be hosting and it'll start on March 17th. We had some backend technical issues we had to set up, which is why I delayed it one more week. Um, he had too many people interested and we had to build more infrastructure. That, that's that's good basically problem. what it goes good. into. Jocko would say good. I posted a syllabus for reading materials, some course materials, and well, that'll, so that's all in the works. Uh, you can sign up for it. If you become a subscriber to the community, it's in the announcement section. We'll also each week we have a GTW newsletter. It'll go out with the newsletter to sign up for uh, participating in the logic course. If one is interested and it should be a lot of fun. We'll go over a lot of the apply the fallacies to a lot of the situations that are, we have experienced on GTW and go over definitions that they keep equivocating on. Like how you can't be five a B five. And thank you. If you've been hanging out long enough to get that pun. <laughs> yay yay freedom if anyone right, gets your attention one. spans are getting longer all right good job good job so, yeah there's that also for people who hung out this long even if you don't want to become a member or go to tony's course and join that we got something for free for you we have the freedom vault we have a lead magnet up now on grandtheftworld.com if you just go there the pop-up will come up you get richard grove's freedom vault have yourself some freedom vault enjoy right down here. oh we have no strings attached though i may make you an offer for you know other things we have but take it have it nice Good. real quick too there's uh we understand the policy has changed with discord it's been a huge topic of discussion well i'll this tuesday we have a town hall it's bi-weekly now bi-monthly everyone has stated so this tuesday is the town hall at seven o'clock seven to ten and i'll discuss it further there but we are looking into solutions so nothing to be necessarily concerned about it yeah there's nothing but, to panic over yeah. and we've already had there's already a backup for that whole infrastructure on a different platform all exactly. ready to go you know it's like that scene in boiler room where the like the whole thing is over here and then they move it over there we got the same thing for the discord community just in case that location gets hot you got like yeah. a, a parallel society set up look at there that it's not the open society foundations we're, we're needing to create for ourselves. We want the parallel society foundations that we're building for ourselves. And Excellent. That's a good way to wrap it up. Yeah, let me uh, just who, thank who, the Rockfin Yeah, go ahead for the Rockfin Tipsters. Uh, Rockfin Tippers, T-Cam, Well Emanuel, Chalamoni, Fabrizio, DM, Thomas, BG, Peggy, David Otnes, Dylan, 
Grant D and Matt Green, thanks a lot for getting your comments in and uh, and uh, support over there. And we just humbly hope that the value we've provided you tonight is uh, equal or greater than that which you tipped us. Thank you so much. And uh, it's been a long, fun ride tonight, but we're going to have to pull the plug. Do we have someone to play us out, Tony? Do we have like a, a J.P. Sears to say something funny and witty and pithy for us? Yeah, we can do that. Um, I didn't. Uh, that's one thing I didn't. Let's see. Two to six facts about Trudeau that will make your blood boil. That's his most recent one. We did the ingress, but we didn't do the egress. Yeah, I did not. For this I, episode. I forgot. To we do figured that. out how so to get into it, but on. not how to get out. <laughs> Uh, how to go along with narrative believers, narrative scripts. So either one of those two, unless LD, you have something funny you want to show this week. No, I don't have anything queued up. Okay. I'll just go with um, six facts about Trudeau that'll make your blood boil or the narrative one. Either I don't want my blood to boil. It's actually go with the, the narrative morning. one. It's late. It's late. And that one's shorter. <laughs> so go how to get along with narrative believers. Sorry. I just realized. Yeah, that sounds like a good one to go to sleep to. How to go along with narrative believers. How to get along. How to get along with them. There you go. All right. Thank you guys all for tuning in and not dropping out. And uh, here's here's some insightful words to play us out. Thanks, everyone. Have a good night. Are you going to get the shot? Um, It doesn't seem worth it to me. Plus, I don't feel like I need the protection when you just look at the numbers. You seriously have no regard for anyone's well-being. I hope you die. During the past couple years, do you routinely find yourself having arguments with people who think the narrative is true? Do you ever worry about getting canceled by the rage mob? And does your propensity to apply logic in conversations with illogical people ever get you in trouble? Well, not anymore, thanks to narrative scripts. Narrative scripts have been developed to help you get along with friends, family, and deranged maniacs who have been brainwashed by the narrative. Watch how they work. Are you gonna get the shot? Of course I am. Politicians who are controlled by drug companies that routinely pay billions of dollars in criminal fines tell me I should. I blindly trust that they're looking out for my best interest, not theirs. I like that you agree with me. Wow! Let's take a look at another exciting example of narrative scripts working their magic to tame the rage of narrative believers. A year into Biden being in office, I couldn't be more grateful to have Trump gone. We are so much better off now. Boy, are we ever. The large amount of inflation and division he's creating is really bringing everyone together. We voted correctly, and Kamala Harris is charming. Also, all Republicans are racist, aren't they? Exactly. No more turmoil! Before narrative scripts, the only way to get along with people who buy into the narrative was to stop critically thinking, live in fear, and to be hysterically reactive and mentally unstable just like them. But with narrative scripts, all you do is keep your own intelligent thoughts quietly inside your own head, pull out the narrative script that matches the situation, and then say the words on the page out loud to the brainwashed subject. Just check out what happens when you're in one of the toughest situations imaginable. Talking with a friend who's triple boosted, but still got sick. Yeah, I got pretty sick. I think I got it from my wife. We're both jabbed and triple boosted, and (laughs) I'm so grateful I got them all, because you can only imagine how bad it would have been if I didn't. 
Well, that sounds so effective that you should probably get another. I will. But do narrative scripts really work? Yes, they do. Narrative scripts were written by actual narrative believers who haven't left their homes in over two years. So you know they're authentic. Check out what happens when the latest propaganda has colonized your wokest colleague's mind. Spotify must deplatform Joe Rogan because he spreads dangerous medical misinformation. You said it. Words are extraordinarily dangerous and must be stopped at all costs. Joe Rogan is personally responsible for definitely millions of deaths. He's truly the Genghis Khan of our time. And even though I've never listened to a full episode either, I know that what the doctors on Rogan's show say is false and that what I think is factual because of my years of working in the medical field. Down with Joe Rogan. Mm -hmm. Have you ever thought it'd be impossible to have a conversation with a liberal that doesn't end in either them exploding in a fit of rage or needing a safe space? Well, thanks to Narrative Scripts for the first time ever, now you can. Say goodbye to fits of rage, even when identity politics are brought up. Watch. Everyone just needs to get with the times. Some people still deny that men can get pregnant. Well, I... For crying out loud, what's wrong with people? Aside from being men, men are also the exact same thing as women and therefore have babies all the time. I don't know why this is so hard for closed-minded bigots to comprehend. I can't wait to give birth myself. Furthermore, my pronouns are he, him. What are yours? Thank you. Mine are was were. When talking to brainwashed people, typically rational thought, logic, and genuine care sends them into a chaotic fit. Kind of like what happens when you shine a flashlight on a rabid inbred possum. But Narrative Scripts lets you throw all that out the window so you can keep your brainwashed friend stable for the moment. Watch what happens with race baiting. It's wrong to do math because it's built purely on racism. Don't you think? Yes, math is very racist. The large numbers are very oppressive to the smaller numbers, which proves how systemic the problem is. It's literally everywhere. I'm glad you said so. That makes me happy. If you order narrative scripts today, you'll also receive five bonus scripts. The censorship is good for us script the let's mandate masks forever script, the open border is good for us script, the passports to segregate society unites us script, and the I wish the government would confiscate all the guns script. Say goodbye forever to liberals raging at you, high tension family visits, and destroyed relationships when you say hello to narrative scripts. Narrative scripts, written by brainwashed people for free thinking people. So you know the work. 
conspiracy is a story of history. It's the story of plunderers taking care of people who produce. They claim to take care of them through government, which doesn't give you anything. It doesn't take away first. So it's not creating something out of nothing. It's very real what they're doing. They're taking your rights or taking some people's rights and adding more to someone else's rights. If you haven't heard about our Grand Theft World community membership, here are a few of the things you've been missing. A mobile app where you can access replays of the Grand Theft World podcast and show notes. Access to the Grand Theft World community on Discord, where we crowdsource news and resources, and you can contribute to the show. The opportunity to participate in the Grand Theft World bi-weekly town hall. Exclusive content from Richard Grove, including behind-the-scenes footage and future access to unpublished material. 93 episodes of the Peace Revolution podcast, and the Grand Theft World newsletter delivered straight to your inbox each week. If you want to stay ahead of the great game, visit us at grandtheftworld.com, click or tap the button in the top right-hand corner, and join a vibrant community of researchers blazing a new path to truth. We'll see you there.